Welcome to the Vintage Rebellion podcast. I'm Stuart Skinner, your host for the show, and you are listening to episode 24. Let's just be-wing it. Joining me, as always, are the usual Vintage Rebels. First up, our loose completist, an R5-D4 focus collector, and all-round good egg. It's Dickie Hutchinson. Good evening, Rich. Evening, guys. Now, Rich, at this moment in time, what is your favourite piece in your collection? Oh, that's going to take some thinking about. Um, probably me loose imperial shuttle nice nice next up is our tie fighter pilot focus collector oddball enthusiast and star wars completist it's grant criddle good evening sir hello how are we i'm feeling much better thank you Stu. how are you i'm, I'm groovy good. now grant you're really into your cast and crew items at the moment aren't you uh-huh what would be your ultimate holy grail for cast and crew items oh i had this question on the kive cast um <laughs> But I'm going to change it this time. Maybe a Luciite star, which is uh, it's a cast and crew star that was given out to the crew on Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. There's three of them. There's one that says Star Wars, one that says Empire Strikes Back, and one that says May the Force Be With You. They do come up for sale. They're worth about £500. Um, one of those would look nice, especially if it came with the velvety kind of cloth. That would be nice. great. Grant, do you know how you're feeling so much better now? Uh-huh. Do you think maybe in about half an hour's time of the podcast you might feel a bit rough? Why would that be? Because we may have recorded this over different days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get ill later, don't I? Really ill. You, you, you might get a little bit ill later, so um, if we hear Grant's voice getting a bit scratchy, it's because he's going to be ill in the future. Yeah, yeah. If you see uh, mould on wallpaper, don't lick it. <laughs> I'm almost per- certain, though, Grant, you'll come good by the end. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Um, right, next up is the Ladies of the Wars lover. Having completed his pregnant Padme run, he's now working on a mint on card run. Our market expert, it's Peter Davis. Good evening, Peter Weedy. Expert? I don't think I'm an expert. I just read things and repeat them. Uh, okay. Um, Pete, of all your real mint on cards you've already put together, which has been your best value for money? I probably think that is the very nice Empire Strikes Back Leah Hoth which Uncle Ian helped us with. That was well, well under £100. And finally, a loose and mint on card collector with a side focus of Luke X-Wing pilot. He runs, he wraps, he's a desert rat. It's Jezebel. Good evening, Jez. 
Good evening, Stu. Good evening, lads. Good evening, everyone. Jez, from your collection, which piece do you feel you've really overpaid for? Oh, what a great question. Ooh. Uh, cloud car pilot, loose cloud car pilot. Yeah. What'd you pay for it? Um, it was about five years ago, and I think I paid £24 for it. So I think that's probably about typical now of a completely uh, of a complete one with genuine parts. So uh, considering everything has just gone up so much in price, maybe I just overpaid. Yeah, you've you've got that kind of muggy looking face, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a gift. Now, for the last two or three shows, we've spoken about Jez and the London Marathon, where he planned to run the twenty-six and a half miles in full stormtrooper armor. Now, Jez, first of all, did you complete it? And if so, how did it go? Yes, Stu, I'm really pleased to say I did complete it. And um, yeah, it, it was really, really good. I, I just had an absolute blast. Yeah, it was it was um, a little bit uncomfortable, I, I have to say. But it was, it was great. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. And I would definitely do it again in a heartbeat. And what was your time like? Right then, the time, five hours and 26 seconds. Does this include the time it takes you to get over the start line? Yeah, it includes the time it takes me to do everything, uh, to take my helmet off. When I need, uh, I started to uh, get a little bit, right, I need to drink, I need to take on some fluids. So I would take my helmet off and pass it to uh, a, generally a lady at the side of the road and just say, excuse me, would you mind holding my helmet? And I would then take a drink and then I would take my helmet back off her and then carry on running. Now, we found out last month that you've had just had your 56th birthday. Yes. So obviously you're not as, you know, things are, are beginning to go wrong in your body. That's true. Um, for over five hours for not urinating is quite a long time, isn't it? Did you <laughs> have any issues on the day? Did you just let it trickle down your leg? I um, I put the costume on about two or three times before I was entirely content that I wouldn't need another wee. Um, so, yeah, it was just a case of making sure I was hydrated well enough but not overly doing it. You just do see some people on these runs having to go to the toilet within about five minutes of starting. But no, I think I was suitably dehydrated at the end and no need for catheters or anything like that. Thank you very much. Now, on registration day, which I believe is the day before, you uh, you went along to Pinewood Studios. Yeah, yeah, I, I wrote to Pinewood because... Um, when Grant and I went to watch The Force Awakens at the cinema, when we left Pinewood, uh, we were on the public road and we tried to do a quick cheeky selfie with the Pinewood studio sign in the background. And some members of security started getting a little bit protective over the Pinewood uh, studio sign and felt that even though we were on a public road, that they, they wouldn't allow us to, to do this selfie. And I thought to myself, oh, I think it'd be really, really good to have a photograph just before of me in the Stormtrooper costume running just outside Pinewood Studios. And then uh, so I wrote to them. I wrote to them saying, hi, you know, this is me. This is the charity. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'd like to do. But I understand you, you know, you've got particular security issues. And uh, I understand security more than most. I dropped in the fact I've been in the military for 18 years. And uh, I said, look, you know, I don't want to be a nuisance. If this is possible, please let me know to confirm who I am. I will now email you from my work address. And uh, they were very accommodating and they allowed me on. And they, they welcomed me, took some really, really good photographs. And they presented me with the most fantastic sign with best wishes from all at Lucasfilm 
and Pinewood Studios to Jez running London Marathon for Make-A-Wish. May the force be with you and completely blew me away. So I've just got that back from the framers and I'm delighted. And where have you hung it? Uh, well, it's going to go. I'm not sure. It's either going to go in the Star Wars room, which I've now pretty much run out of space of from a picture hanging point of view. Or I might just put it in my office because... I'm an out-and-out proud Star Wars man, so uh, maybe I might just put that in my office. Wonderful. What a wonderful uh, piece of memorabilia to go along with your um, efforts. Yeah, well stoked. I'm really, really chuffed. Apparently, um, according to the uh, Pima Studios lady, Lucasfilm executives had to sign it off because they don't like having their logo on, you know, on, on random stuff. And it was Kathleen Kennedy who ended up giving the approval and she wished me luck and for a Star Wars fan to hear that, you know, two days before the run, oh my word, that was just, for me, that was the bee's knees. It really was. Wonderful. You had obviously agreed to run the marathon for the fantastic charity Make-A-Wish. And at the time, I think you told me you had to raise a minimum of two two grand. So can you tell us how much you actually raised and how the charity puts this kind of money to use? Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, two grand, I thought, was a massive ask. The most I've ever raised before was about 1200 1250 something like that. So, yeah, past the two, past the three, and then it's just gone up and up, and I've ended up, the current figure is £5,250, something like that. So £1,000 per hour of running, pretty much. And the, what the charity do with that is they just put it to fantastic use by giving children who are who are going through a particularly bad time who fight in terminal illnesses uh, and really really bad conditions day in day out uh, hospital visits and medication they can give them you know a day out they can transform their room they can introduce them to some princesses or something or other or even just take them to the seaside or a day out a day which they can remember or an experience which is not only great for the child but it's also great for their uh, constantly worrying parents or guardians. So a wonderful charity who do so much good. That's brilliant, Jess. And also alongside this, you run a competition for members over on Star Wars Forum UK. And uh, you made yet another wonderful video if you're doing the draw. Could you just uh, give us a brief bit about that? Well, I appeal to the community and I say, right, guys, you know, I want to do this prize draw. And uh, before I know it, I'm inundated with offers of uh, of prizes. And I think I, I ended up having about 20 prizes this time donated by people, very generous people from Star Wars Forum UK, who I'm very much indebted to. And um, and for everyone on the forum who, who sponsored me a pound, each pound would give them a ticket. And, um, and all of those tickets would go into a big random number generator. And yet yeah, myself, uh, my wife, and my children made another movie and or another little film and and we basically showed uh who won what and it was all done in one take uh, it's all a bit of a laugh get the kids involved and i think together people from star wars forum uk generated it was around about 810 pounds which is phenomenal for a uh for a forum group fantastic and the wider star wars community as well on facebook very very accommodating and very generous so um massive thanks goes out to to the whole community I must admit, Leo kind of stole the uh, stole the show on the video with some, <laughs> cl- some classic one-liners. Yeah, he thinks on his feet quite quickly, that kid. I've got to watch myself. Yeah, I think you could learn a lot from him. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, I think uh, I speak for Grant, Pete and Rich when we all, all say we're really, really proud of your achievement, Chez. Quality, mate. Very selfless act. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to add before we move on? 
Well, uh, just yeah, very quickly, because I know that we, we must move on. We've got so much to discuss, and this is the Vintage Rebellion after all. But I, I couldn't have done this without Steve Buckley from the UK Garrison and, and putting me in contact with him is Mark Newbold. But Steve Buckley, the, you know, the most generous guy for, uh, for loaning me his costume. Uh, mate, thanks very much indeed. He's a javeliner, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's Steve Buckley, isn't it? Yeah, yeah very, very good. <laughs> Right, let's move on to our uh, latest acquisitions for the month then, and um, let's go to Rich. Rich, what have you been buying? It's been a quiet month for me this month, and all of my pickups have come from Father's Farm. And I was delighted to get a loose first 12 action display stand, because I've been after one of those for quite a while. And I got one from uh, Nick Wayne at an absolutely cracking price, so I was pleased with that. I picked up the Hoth playset backdrop that Gary Smith's had in his store for about the last 15 years now. Um, and every time... I've looked at it for this one, I thought, you know, it looks sad, it looks pretty pathetic. But I walked past Gary Smith and went straight to the display stand and thought, I'm going to pick that up. Um, I'm going to I'm going to buy that and put, out, and put Gary out of his misery. So I'm glad I've got that finally. I also managed to get a 2-1B variant. And for some reason, I've bought the metallic one three, four times now because I keep thinking it's a metallic one that I needed. Uh, and it wasn't, it was the other variant, so I finally picked that up from Mark Walsh, which I was pleased about. And obviously you can't go to Father's Farm without picking up some more GW acrylics. So I picked up lots of cases from Jamie, who was a standard for Christian, and overall saving pennies for next month. What's next month? Um, June. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Grant, what have you been buying? Well, this month I uh, got myself a full-on mailer. Um, a helix pencil box, which actually has a sleeve on it as well. Uh, the sleeve's more difficult to find. And I've got some uh, set dressing from A New Hope, which is uh, pieces or fragments of the Crate Dragon, uh, which a friend of ours who will be coming on the show soon, Andy, he went out to Tunisia in 1995. He managed to find the Crate Dragon and picked up some pieces from it. So, um, yeah, really happy. I saw those at Father's Strong. Nice little pieces, because he'd even had a little plaque made with them, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. Yeah, and it's just... Uh, sort of like the area I'm going off into now is more sort of cast and crew and prop stuff. So it's, I find it really exciting because I don't know much about it and lots of new interesting stuff to discover. Can I just ask that crate dragon bone? You said that they had more of them at Father's From. He had two two loads, didn't he, with him? Yeah, they they both went straight away, Jez. Ah, uh, right. damn it! But I know if you want a piece, I might be able to find you a piece. Definitely, I keep contact Andy. And uh, that's proper cool stuff. Yeah, that that. That's ace. Yeah, that's that's a one. You know, I mean, this stuff uh, this stuff existed like two years before a Ben Kenobi action figure existed. Oh, yeah, we're going to have to talk. Yeah. And before we publish this podcast. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, Jez, latest acquisitions is your... <laughs> I think I've just bought a crate dragon bone. <laughs> um, I, uh, I've had a lean, lean month. Um, but I'm delighted to say that actually um, if, in my Luke X-Wing cabinet, I've just added a 35mm slide, um, one of the pre-production photos from uh, Kim Simmons' collection gone to Tom Darby, and it's just been sent to me, which is brilliant. It shows the Luke X-Wing uh, with the weapon, really good pre-production, um, 35mm, and it's actually of interest. Well, it's interest to me. It's a painted hard copy. And you can tell that as well, not just by the, the sheen of the paint, but the fact that this is the one with the thumb um, cut off of the of the figure. And you can actually see the uh, hard copy compound underneath. So uh, just the one item, a very small item. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, when you have someone like this in a hand, it really, really is great. So a nice addition to my um, collection. 
Do you know why he had a cut off thumb? Uh, I think it might have actually been just to demonstrate the uh, the hard copy underneath. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I will look into that and, and I'll report straight back to you, sir. OK, I'll give you five minutes. Um, let's go to Pete while we're waiting. Uh, hello. <laughs> hello, Pete. Well, hello, Stu. How's it going? Not bad about you. Nice, nice. Nice, quite even. So, things I've bought. Uh, I think my best score is a Chewed Tail exclusive. Uh, torn Torn with Solid Belly for £1. I think it's quite a, a rare variant, to be fair. But £1, and that's now set proudly being displayed because it was uh, lying on the floor on uh, Gary Smith's kind of bag of stuff. And uh, Fuzzy Buzzy Toys gave me a, a stapled saddle for him. So he's uh, he's now got a, a Death Star droid sitting inside of him. Isn't that nice? Um <laughs> I also picked up a Lando Calrissian Return of the Jedi mock, a uh, bit of a, a battered bubble, but all in one piece and all, you know, still sealed, which is quite nice. Um, um, I got off Dan Burgess a Empire Strikes Back sticker album, which is like about 75% complete. So uh, I will, you know, spend the next 400 years trying to complete it. Um, I also got some Empire Strikes Back cups and bowls, and some crazy guy. Uh, father's from gave me a box of old ship parts and ships partially complete which i shall spend many years trying to reassemble with the sticker around when you get to about 20 from the end you can write off oh yeah <laughs> directly yeah cool oh, oh. i've done that many a times i hope they're still uh they still respond to me i'll have a look in the sticker album it'll tell you whether it's dated yeah i'll <laughs> give it a go what about you Stu? <clears throat> Right, yes, I've added a few bits this month, um, a few oddball items, a, a McCall's Ewok costume, sewing pattern, from 83, which... Uh, I love I that. To, yeah, I'm very tempted to make it, make one. I picked up a Star Wars record tote, which I've been looking up for for about 18 months, but I didn't want to spend too much too much on one of those. I wanted it to be immaculate, and I finally found one at a good price. Um, added some Sigma for the first time this year. I bought the Boba Fett figurine, which is the last figurine I needed. Now, I was reluctant to buy this because I keep seeing them for like 35 to £40. Buy it now is on eBay, where I think the most I've spent on a figurine is £7 to date. But I finally managed to pick one up in an open auction for £2.74. Big thanks to Ian Sanderson, who sent me the tote and the uh, and the FET figurine. And also Sigma at Farthest From. I finally saw two pieces of Sigma. It's the first time I've ever seen it at a show. And uh, Mark Hockley had the Snowspeeder toothbrush holder and the 3PO turret music box, which I was delighted with. And a huge thanks to Mark, because he gave me both these pieces at what he had paid for them. Oh, lad. Good man. Yeah, it's a good, good, it's a good egg, that one. I think I've used that twice now tonight. Also, at Father's From, I got an ESB layer best spin off Jamie. Uh, really pleased with that. A nice, complete boxed Hoth Ice Planet place set from, uh, from Andy that Grant bought the Crate cr- 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 Dragon, is it? Yes, mate. <laughs> he's the same bloke I bought my R2 toy toter off at Christmas. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a really nice couple, aren't they? And uh, really, really fair prices, I think. And my final purchase of Father Strong was, again, from Mark Hockley, um, was the Kenner Death Star Complete, which I've been wanting for some time. And it was actually on my list of items that we listed out at the beginning of the year for 2016. So it's nice to tick something off on that. But I just wanted to go through those lists from the beginning of the year very, very quickly. Uh, to see how you're all getting on with your lists. And I'm going to let you swap one item out. But the only time you'll be allowed to do this 
So, Pete, on your list, you had any Han Solo mock. Have you achieved this? Yes. Well done. Uh, a complete A-Wing pilot. Sort of not. <laughs> right. Uh, a bizarre ESB oddball item. Oh, yes. A white Bespin Guard mock. Well, uh, last night, off our friend of the podcast, um, Michael Cooper, I have actually acquired that. So that's on its way via Ian. So, yes, I've done that one. And a C-3PO mint on card. Uh, not yet, but I'm still planning to get that. I think that would be achievable. It's a very, very good stop, Pete. Three out of five achieved. Would you like to swap either of them out? Well, t- yes, I'm going to get rid of the A-Wing pilot because I'm, I'm just not going to pay thousands of pounds for a gun. So I'm going to get rid of him, even though technically I've got the figure. I've not got the whole thing. I just can't, I just can't be bothered, you know? Okay. It's, de- it's depressing to have to think you're going to spend a fortune on a little tiny gun. So what are you going to put in its place? I am going to put in something for me, which is reasonably challenging, which is a, um, a mint-on-card power droid. Okay, nice. I like the card back of the power droid. It's Well, the figure's good too. I mean, it's got so much personality and design. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, Rich, let's go over to you then. French Trilogo R5. Yep, got that one. Have you? Yep. Seriously? Seriously. You're not making this up? Nope. I t- th- this was on last month's podcast. Uh, 12-inch Ben Sabre. Uh, I've been promised one of those about 14 years ago, and I'm still waiting for that to come. Well, I also promised you an Ewok village 16 years ago. That's only just come. So I'll probably get you that January so you don't complete your list. Um, a loose ISP-6. Oh, newest acquisitions. Yeah, you've just reminded us, Stu. I got a, uh, a loose Ewok village that was virtually completed for this form. Yeah. <laughs> Have you um, loose ISP six? Yep, I got one of those. Have you? Um, orange and yellow full set of tops. Now you know what? They are really two separate items, aren't they? No, we put them into one. You can't change the rules now. Right. Well, I've got the yellow set. I haven't got the orange set. Yet. Right. So you've got half of your list blocked on there. You're not. You're not changing the rules. Um, and a diecast tie bomber. Had plenty of those, but none were mine. Okay. So you have got two and a half of your five. Um, would you like to swap any out, but not the bomber? I think we best bet this is swap out the 12-inch Ben Saber. Okay, with what? Right. What am I going to really go for? Um, right. The only thing I've got left to complete my 12-inch run now, other than the Ben Saber, is the Princess Leia full set of accessories. The comb, the brush, the shoes, the mirror. That's what I'm going to go for. All of those items. Okay. And they are tricky to get as well. Um, Jez. Hello. Let's, let's have a look at your list because I love this list. Let's see how you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really get the theme of this. It was stuff you really want. <laughs> we did. Actually, if you go back and listen to it, it says it's achievable. OK. Um, how is your loose skiff hunt going? Yeah, um, I need to I need to get on with that and I need to set up some searches on eBay and stuff because I haven't been doing that. Do you know what? If anyone out there wants to be on Team Jez, that'd be amazing if you can help me search for loose skiffs because I'm rubbish at stuff like this. And it'd be really good to get one in the eye of the Geordie and the Taff. I mean, a loose ISP6. Right, so you haven't got a loose skiff. No, I don't have a loose skiff. I'd very much like a loose skiff. Okay, this is what I like about you. You could have just said a miscard, but your actual sentence was, I want a cool miscard that doesn't contain any of Jabba's goons. Yeah, why do I do this? Um, yeah. Still yeah, need? 
don't have one of those. Okay. Uh, a Palatoy Luke X-Wing. Yes, I have one of those. Well done. Thank you. Um, a DT Luke. Yeah, I don't have one of those. And how's your hunt for your three-pack going? Again, not good. <laughs> um, Jez, I'm afraid we're only going to allow one thing to be <laughs> switched true. out. You've got yeah. one of five. Yeah, can I have the entire list? Um, uh, one thing, I, I think the three-pack, and I know that every once in a while you can strike really lucky with a badly listed three-pack like Grant did a, a while ago, but I think um, I've got more chance of hell freezing over and me noticing that. So I'm going to spot. Uh, I'm going to swap the three-pack. For a six-pack? <laughs> yeah. I've got one of those. All right. I really, really want... Now, you guys can veto this if you want, but bear in mind I've got the hardest list. Um, just bear with me. I've never found yet a photograph of my childhood with a Star Wars toy or figure. And I see all these online. I see them at Facebook. I see them as people's avatars. And I'm really envious. And Star Wars was such a huge part of my life as a kid. Um, I, I really can't believe it when I can't find any photographs anywhere of me with like a birthday present or a Christmas present, you know, me unwrapping that rebel transport. Um, and or, or what I'd love to do is I'd love to find a photograph of me as a kid. Have you um, checked on eBay? What <laughs> photographs of me as a child? Yeah. There's, they got loads of stuff on eBay. Yeah. Um, I think, I on. think you'd have better chance going to the, um, the caves over in Denmark or somewhere to see if there's any drones on the wall. Cause surely cameras weren't around back then. <laughs> Yeah, fair one. I walked into that. <laughs> Jez, if it gets towards Christmas and you still haven't achieved this, there's no just going online and stealing another photo. <laughs> all, all I'd need is some sort of the the kids um, with the sort of bot bag with the big bowl haircut. You know, that, that's kind of close to how I looked, I think. <laughs> Bit of a yes, feral I, child, yeah. I did have hair back then. So your holy grail for the year is a generic picture of a child. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good thing, Jez. Not a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Mm. I'm sure yeah. there's a photograph doing the rounds of somebody holding a, a boxed um, rubber tube transport with a base and pudding coat. <laughs> Looking really knocked off. No, I, I was actually really chuffed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that was Pete, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> it was. I was holding it for the smaller child. So um, I am going to go and I'm going to... I will find one. No, I don't know. Yeah, put that on my list, because let's face it, I'm going to come last anyway, so it'll be a good challenge. Okay, let's go to Grant then. A Trilogo Leia Hoff. I'll make good news on that one. Uh, it exactly one hour and 40 minutes ago, one went for sale on eBay uh, for £144.55, pence, but I didn't get it. <laughs> it's how's, that, how's that good news? Oh, well, you can actually get one for £144.55. And two days ago, there was what I would say is a CHC9 condition one, went for £325. I thought it was fake and had to contact Joe O. And Joe O was, Joe O'Brien said, no, it's real. But I went for £325. Um, Trilogo Imperial Gunner. Yeah, just don't, don't know about that. Don't know anything about that. An hour and that. a half ago. Yeah. Oh. Um, Return of the Jedi FX7. Uh, oh, one came up for sale yesterday on what's the name of that faucet um, page? The toy, the big, pick. the big pick. Yeah, one came up on there yesterday for sale. Did you buy it? No. <laughs> um, Return of the Jedi C three PO. Oh, boring. Um, 
No, nothing happening there. Can't, oh. And your real high-end item on your list, a vinyl cape jower. Ah, oh, served that one in January. Served it. Like served it, mate, yeah. <laughs> um, would you like to swap one out? No. No, come on, I'm in for the long haul. Okay. So you are also at one out of five. So you and Jez are tied, but I'm going to give you a little... I think you're going to beat him. Um, well, obviously, I've just said I finally managed to get one of my pieces, which was the Kenner Death Star, but it's the first thing that I have got. I have got the Sigma 3PO tape dispenser, which is irritating me because I saw four or five for sale last year. Didn't pull the trigger, and now I can't find one. Uh, a Greedo 20 back, a Luke Farm Boy mental card, and a Yak Face mental card. And I don't think I'll be getting a Yak Face mental card because the prices are just mental at the moment. So... I'm going to swap that out for... I'm tempted to put a loose skiff and really hunt one down and then rub Jez's face in it. <laughs> Surely that would break the skiff. Yeah, I was going to say, they're quite fragile. Um, kind of guy you are. You know what, right? You, you talk about Jez's list, right? But it, it, actually, it's a pretty easy list. And, and I've picked up three of those items very recently. The loose skiff, the cool miscard, card, and the DT look. You're just, you're just not putting much effort into it Jez. that is true i'm not putting much effort uh, or money <laughs> into it so um oh, that's yeah. what i'm gonna get i'm gonna get some vintage shoes <laughs> vintage clark shoes i was watching a uh, a vintage shoe box with empire strikes back on it recently it's quite battered you could get the shoes to put in there how long were you watching out for man what a crazy that you were watching a box i was just watching it <laughs> just sitting there watching it well, where was this box to then it didn't move where was this box to then? <laughs> I love it, class. It was just sitting there. Was you trying to move it with your mind, Pete? Huh? Was you trying to move it with your mind? No, I was just seeing if it did anything. You watch it walls just, as well? Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and paint. Which, I mean, when it dries, it's amazing. Right, well, we are going to return to this in September. Okay. Cool. So, um, at, the moment, at the moment, Pete is leading there. Three out of his five. Rich, two and a half out of five, and the rest of us all have one. Right, let's go move this podcast on a bit then, boys, and let's go over to Rebel Briefings. Mailer Mysteries. Big 12-inch takes pride. Vectus needs a rocket for this. The Rebel base is on the moon on the far side. We are preparing to orbit the planet. Rich, Mailer Mysteries. You've got me intrigued. Yeah, well, I think the Palatoy mailers are something that's not really documented that well. And I think there are still discoveries waiting to be found. But a post on Star Wars Forum UK got most of us intrigued. So before going any further, for the listeners who don't know, what do I mean by a mailer? Well, this is when you would either have the nameplates cut out from a Palatoy point of view or the uh, proof of purchase on the back of the Kenner cards, I think. And you'd send off, I don't know, is it five or six? You'd send them off. And then about a good month or two later on, you would get a particular figure sent back to you. Perfect answer. Or you would get an apology notice because they were out of stock, which frequently <laughs> yeah. happens, I think. 
Palatoy Melas, I've spent a lot of time researching this, and I'm sure you all you guys have as well, and we've probably got completely different ideas of what was actually released as a Palatoy Mela. What do we actually know can concrete see existed, guys? Just shout them out. What do we know? Emperor. Nine num. General yeah. Maidin. No. No. Forlom. Forlom, yep. Anakin. Anakin, Fett, yep. Display stand. No. Nope. The satchels. Yeah, ah, the back, a bandolier, yep. And the uh, Darth Vader. Case. The carry case, yeah. But once I was doing a bit of research, I was actually surprised how much there was. I mean, Dengar was one that was fairly common. Akbar, every one of the mini rigs and the speeder bike was available as a mailer. Really? Yep. For a long time, it was believed that the PDT-8 was the only mini rig available as a mailer, but I believe all of them have now been identified as oh, being okay. available at one point. There's that uh, survival kit as well, isn't there? Yeah, for the... Um, for the that. Yeah. What appeared in this shot that made everybody scratch their heads? The Atat driver. The Atat driver mailer. I mean, obviously, this was a photograph taken from somebody's collection of about five years ago, I believe. Um, and this guy is fairly adamant that that's how he received it. Well, just when we came back from Father's Farm, well, when we were at Father's Farm, I should say, uh, there was a guy there who had a Boba Fett mailers, party toy Boba Fett mailers, that had the Trilogo Fett in there. Which you would have thought, considering the length of time, that that would be impossible. That they exist. So I guess, I guess they do. There's all the possibility in the world, isn't there? Yeah, that absolutely makes no sense to me at all. That could it be that um, someone had applied for say a fall or something, and they didn't have them to send out, so they just sent out another random figure. Could be. That's a good idea. Yeah, it is a good idea, Stu. I was going to come to possibilities in a second. I just wanted to say, first of all, that there's no doubt whatsoever that the actual baggy is legit. Frank, our baggy expert has confirmed the baggy is a legit baggy, and I think it's possibly only the third he's ever seen. So there's absolutely no doubts whatsoever about the baggy, but there are doubts about whether the mailer that he has actually belonged to that baggy. So, um, Stu, you've come up with a good idea there. Perhaps somebody had sent off for, you know, forlorn or something like that and received the other driver in its replace because they didn't have any spare. Uh, I think it's got all the possibility in the world. I mean, they were selling the uh, Trilogo Fat mailers as far as from for £750 each. Uh, there was people there that were discussing them who actually had them in their collection as well, so it was a, it was a known thing. I also think as well as people really underestimate how rare some of the Pally Toy mailers are. Your Nine Numb and your Emperor are you know pretty easy to find. A lot of people have found some shop boxes of those recently, but the Denger itself is really I find it really difficult to find. I hardly ever see one up for sale, and this one comes the paperwork as well, which is fantastic. This definitely happened to me as a kid. That I sent off for a figure, and I can't remember reading. Um, an apology note or anything like that but I, I remember getting a figure which I wasn't expecting to get they they had sent me a, a different figure so at that point I thought ah okay maybe you can send off for anything so it says you know the emperor but actually now they've got loads of figures to send you so I then remember sending back two lots of uh, nameplates to say all right can I have this particular one and this particular one and then I just got two emperors so uh, I, I ended up with a load of Empress, but definitely uh, the first time I went to send off for a figure, I did get something I wasn't expecting. So uh, I wonder which one that was. Interesting enough, to forget the uh, Denga mailer, that was three names plus 30 pence postage and packaging. And later on, they went up to six names, hadn't they? Because as Jez said, you know, five or six. The Bandelier strap was only five, but the figures were actually six. The survival kit which is available till June 1981, four names. So the survival oh. kit is worth one more name than the uh, the Denga mail away. Seems a bit strange. Yeah, it is. 
I've, I've got a theory of how um, this Atat driver may have been sent out in the post. What do you think about somebody buying the Atat for Christmas? And then I know it says no accessories, no figures included, but you, you open the Atat, you've spent, how much was it back then for one of those? 30 quid or something? You spend £30 on the Atat and you've got some kid who was absolutely devastated. He had no figure. So the parents wrote in to Palatoy complaining about spending such a huge amount of money on this big Atat driver and you ruined some kid's Christmas and they sent it out because they felt bad. If that kid was so disappointed, though, surely he would have opened the figure and played with it. Good call. To, to, uh, I know some parents like that. But actually, what? if I got an attack for Christmas, I would have been over the moon. What did you get instead, Jazz? We've spoken about this before. <laughs> <laughs> He's not bitter. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I love my Revel Transport. Handbag, action figure handbag. <laughs> That's it. I don't like Stu's answer, but I think it, I reckon it's more along the lines of someone didn't want the figures. That, I mean, let's face it, his manners are pretty boring. I remember, apart from Adam Akbar, I think I had, it's the only one I can remember getting, and that's it. But uh, I think Stu's right. I think someone wrote in and said, actually, look, I don't want these boring figures. Is there any chance you could throw in a something or other for me, an Attack driver? And that's what they did. Is it just more likely that someone just threw an Attack driver in a box? Yeah, maybe. I mean, how many? I mean, how many? Just out of interest, because I, I don't follow baggies at all. How many figures were put in bags? All of them. Many all times. All of them. All yeah. of them. So multiple, multiple so, times. So they're they're hanging around. So I reckon someone just requested it. I really do. I created a really rare variable. What this highlights for me, anyway, is that some of our greatest palatoy um, researchers are still, you know, questioning, looking about. Yeah, I think Gary Smith's got a project underway where he's looking to buy as many of these as he possibly can. So start putting the heads together, guys, and start getting a definitive list of what was actually available as a Palatoid mail away, because I think it would be a wonderful resource. I've got a little Excel sheet that I'm making myself, but it's not very big. Death Star approaching. Estimated time to firing range, 15 minutes. Big 12-inch takes pride. Now, Rich, I know you're not talking about any of you lot, because I've shared a room with all of you. SWCA creator Gus Lopez once again drops an awesome article on the official Star Wars website. Now, before we actually go into the article, guys, what do you think about StarWars.com paying homage to us vintage collectors on their official website, celebrating the past just as much as looking forward to the future? I think they're just jumping on the Vintage Rebellion bandwagon. (laughs) Well, they've done that before, Stu, haven't they? Was it when we released Episode 7, they announced the title of Episode 7 around about that same time? Well, anyway, as we know, can I stop producing the 12-inch line after releasing the IG-88? But Gus's article goes into far more depth than much of what I've seen before. I mean, not only were the plan and other figures which I knew about, such as Lando, but they were also looking at changes of clothes for items such as um, a Yavin Luke or a Boiler Suit Leah. Now, guys, we all played with Action Man as a kid. Pete, obviously, you were a teenager by then, so you may not, not have done do you ever remember buying clothing accessories separate from the figures? Because I don't remember this at all. Um, I do with Action Man. Yeah, yeah. definitely. You could yeah, get Action it on Man, the uh, on the blister cards, couldn't you? Yeah, I used to get loads of accessories for Action Man all the time. So these were big sellers because I remember having the figures, I remember having the tanks, and I remember having things like that. But I can't remember going to the shop and coming home with clothes. Um, I can't. I can't remember being on blister cards, but I can remember them. Well, people would buy them, so family members would buy them. So whether they just removed them and then just gave them to cause, you know, kids and packaging, all goes all over the place. But I definitely had accessories because I had guns and helmets and all sorts. And of course, we've seen a lot of those appeared at, at Beach's auction recently, haven't we? 
Yeah, de- definitely remember having accessories. What he showed in his article were the following possibilities. So we'll just have a little chat about these briefly at first. So we've got Luke Yavin with his ceremonial clothes and medal. What looks to me like a red boiler suit, but Gus states orange X-Wing pilot. And Luke in a green boiler suit with leather jacket and goggles, something that wasn't in the movie. So have a look at those three guys. Which of those three do you think? Actually, that's really cool, and I really wish they had made that. The fatigue <laughs> outfit, the green one with the leather jacket uh, and the goggles is called Luke's fatigue outfit. Yeah. And uh, so I'm now reading in Gus and Duncan's prototype book. And in there, it's got this whole section on unproduced Luke Skywalker outfits. And it's saying that it wasn't based on anything seen on screen in Star Wars, but was an attempt by Kenner to expand the line of clothing for the Luke Skywalker large size figure. This outfit repurposed accessories from other Kenner lines, such as Steve Scout's binoculars, Han Solo's boots, Luke's belt in a new colour and the six million dollar man's goggles. And that's a sort of a general purpose fatigue outfit. The the X-Wing one I'd seen before. I've seen some slide transparencies of that. I'm really gutted that that one wasn't produced. But actually the ceremonial one, they're all really, really good. It's a good job that Han and Luke have the same size feet. Otherwise, the boots might not fit. Very good. But is that Luke X-Wing, is it orange or is it red? Yeah, it looks orange in my book. Is it okay so much as be a colours on my screen makes it look a bit ready? For me, I think out of those three, I think it's the Yavin one that I like the best. Well, uh, interestingly enough, 20 years later, they actually revisited this line, didn't they? And made the Yavin one. Yeah, that'll probably be the same medal that Han Solo wears on his action figure, hasn't it? Do you know what this reminds me of, though, is the first time reading from concept to screen to collectible. There was a big section on this and seeing all these 12-inch dolls and the box flats and whatever. It's really cool what could have been, what he could have won. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, in the Powers of Force 2 line, I really enjoyed the 12-inch figures they put in there, and they ended up stopping that line. And the 12-inch figures they got now, terrible. Full solid plastic, whereas back here, I mean, they had all the detail in the fabric, all the different types of fabric, really cool. Moving on to Leah then, we've got a few different Leah costumes here. We've got Leah in a blue boiler suit, we've got Leah in cold weather gear, and what I can only describe is Abba Leah. So... <laughs> Of those three, Pete, you're you're like the Leah guy. Of those three, which three would you have said, actually, that's the one that I want? I mean, in Star Wars context, they're awful, as in in End of the Film, there's nothing related. But the blue boiler suit one, I mean, that is racy, man. That is just like, that goes down to the, uh, that opens up to the waist. I mean, they talk about the not doing a slave Leah kind of thing, but that's, that's, that's almost pornographic. Charlie is angels, isn't it? It is, it is completely, but uh, how on earth they would even put that out there? I'm surprised people didn't wear up in arms, but uh, the kind of like um, cave girl one is interesting. Was that maybe an early kind of thing for um, sort of a Hoth outfit, maybe? <laughs> and then the other one's a kind of bit, I don't know, Walton's kind of outfit. It would have been the perfect disguise, though, if you had wore that on Hoth, because you wouldn't have seen her against the blue screen background. So it's actually a great idea. Going back to... Gus and Duncan's prototype book, they've got an image in there of three different Leas. And it said, uh, Princess Leah fashion concept photography from 1979. They were looking at doing this. And they saw, although the original large size action figures came from standard outfits, Kenner considered additional fashions for the line. For Leah in particular, Kenner's designers wanted to appeal to fans of Barbie and other fashion dolls by offering a range of clothing sets for the galactic princess. The above is an internal Kenner file photos showing some of these concepts and yet there's a kind of abba one there's uh one with 
sort of sheer, you know, see-through trousers up like Simon Cowell, sort of halfway between the belly button and the boobs, and another transparent sort of sheer red baby doll outfit, all of which with uh, with the standard Princess Leia haircut. So, yeah, three completely different ones there. But I can't remember seeing them in the shops as a kid. I remember going to get the action men costumes and stuff and, and the frogman and the grenadier guards and the SAS guy. I can remember all of those in the shops, but I cannot remember any 12-inch Star Wars figures. My first ever Star Wars thing was the 12-inch Luke Skywalker. But I never, I can never remember seeing any of those ever. But I don't remember having the box because I would have... I just remember opening it. I can remember having it. And I've still got it. Gus ends his article by putting in some box flat. The four that he showcases are Lando, both Leah and Luke Bespin, and Han Hoth. And I think those four, they've definitely missed a trick on them. And in particular, the Leah Bespin one, I think, is an absolutely fantastic uh, rendition of the yeah. actual screen character. A really good um, figure, that one. That that would be something. If that had been made, that would be the, the big 12-inch figure, wouldn't it, that everyone would have wanted. I mean, now, it's amazing. It looks like it would be really expensive to make, though, with all the detail and everything. Kind of like they did the um, 1999 Portrait Edition. You know, those, those were a lot more expensive, wouldn't they? Same kind of idea, like aiming towards girls' market for Space Barbie. It's just a shame that early 80s kids didn't really buy into these toys because we would have seen a lot more of them. But as, as Grant was saying before, um, the three and three quarter inch line was obviously so popular, and that's where Kenna threw all their efforts. Otherwise, this is what we could have had. Death Star will be arranged in five minutes. Vectors needs a rocket for this. What are you waffling about, Richard? At the last Vectors auction, there was a graded or at least a authenticated rocket from a rocket firing FET. And and that sold for from memory somewhere near the two thousand pound mark. Well, on April the twenty eighth, Vectus sold item four one zero three, which was described as thus Kenner Star Wars Boba Fett rocket firing L slot prototype three and three quarter inch figure was presented to AFA and was refused for the following reason. Body appears to have been heated open in order to place a reproduction rocket firing mechanism in the backpack. Comes with the AFA refusal report. The head is partially melted. Interestingly, the rocket sent with this figure was authenticated and graded. Okay, so that was the description. And this, by all accounts, even though personally I knew about it and I thought that I talked about it with a number of people, but obviously not the key guys, this flew under the radar and went for a quite, you know, decent price. I, I may have even snapped up myself at this price. £420 excluding fees. Vectors have said the head is partially melted. You've seen the photograph. Melted head, what do you think? That doesn't look like it's melted, Rich. That's because it isn't, Pete. I believe it was Chris Jorgulius came on to the Ross Bars 1221 back Facebook page and he said that it was not a melted face. It's what's known as a short shot. And have you heard the term short shot before? That does ring a bell. Isn't that a Beastie Boys song? (laughs) Yep. Yeah, um, it used to happen, I know, going to bore you now. It used to happen in things like um, bottle packaging. It, it was down to just, you know, people were just shoving plastic into the mould and that was it. You know, they weren't really caring about what it looked like as long as the plastic going through, so they weren't really moulding anything as such. They were just shoving it in, yeah, it goes in, it's fine, all the all the, the blow moulding things work, and they weren't really t- paying much attention to the shape and whether it was coming out, they were just looking at the plastic, but that might not be the case here. Well, what he hypothesises is that it's possibly caused from one or two things. Either the volume of plastic wasn't sufficient or the pressure 
wasn't sufficient to smooth it out. And it says that the line that you see is how the plastic flowed in and started to overlap back onto itself. So there might be some sensitivity with the heat, Rich. I mean, if the could be, yeah. the plastic if the plastic's not flowing, mm-hmm. it's just going to form really quickly. So I reckon that's down to yeah. Like, like I said, if they were just running it through, I mean, so we used to just run plastic through heads just to make sure the plastic was going through. But if the plastic wasn't melted, that you would get it would just set really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I look at that. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm no expert, but I would. That's what I would say. I, I would hazard a guess that they just shoved some plastic in there just to test it out, and it didn't set, and it wasn't, you know. And but before it even got to the corners of the mould, it it set. And he also talked about another um, short shot fit that he was aware of, and one that didn't have any hands. It was a handless rocket firing fit, which I think is great. That must be a sight to behold. That are these worth fortunes? I'm assuming they are. Well, we're going to come back to that, Grant. Okay. Are these, um, has this come from the States or is this from the UK? It was a UK seller, but it has to have come from the States. It has to be one of the, you know, the 80 or 81 known L-slot fits that there are. Well, no, because there's, um, there's that one paddy toy one, isn't it? Yeah, the one the one that Gary Smith has that possibly is a paddy toy, possibly may not be a paddy toy. We're not sure how it is. I've asked Gary actually for some photographs of that. So I'd like, you know, I'll chase them up and see if I can get some photos and have a look at that one. Obviously, there was a lot of talk and a lot of criticism of Vectors, actually. Um, a lot of guys said, you know, how could something like this fly under the radar? Brian Rockfell, who is one of the Rocket Fighting Fest experts, he said that it looks spot on from what he can see. He's aware of a FET which had been sealed in its uh, baggie but didn't have any spring mechanism at all inside it. So that then leads to people thinking, well... Did the guy who owned this at some point actually open it up? Or did Kenner themselves actually open it up to try and put something inside there? Chris suggests that Kenner possibly wouldn't have bothered because if it's already got its melted face or its short shot face, whatever you want to say, it's unlikely that they would have done any further work to it because it was a damaged figure. So the chances are it's possibly not Kenner and somebody after the fact. But, as Chris says, it doesn't matter if somebody's went and tampered it, it doesn't take away from the legitimacy of this item. You know, one of a kind, well, there's only, what, 80 to maximum of 100 L-slot fits, so we can't be too choosy about these items. And for somebody to pick it up at, you know, £420, including fees, is, to me, an absolute bargain. Rich, did you say that the missile has been sold separately? Yes, Grant, the rocket was sold at a previous Vectors auction. And personally, I think, I, I really don't understand why Vectors, or indeed the seller, would choose to sell this at a later auction, because... A lot of people knew about that uh, rocket. It went for quite a high amount. It would make sense to sell the two, if not together, certainly in the same lot. No rhyme or reason to me for that one. But this one's definitely flew under the radar. And I think if some of the the big collectors in the States had realised this auction was there, I think we could have seen this go go back to Pizza Point 4. I think this could have went for two, three. And I even heard one guy shout $4,000 as a probably truer value for this item. So somebody got an absolute bargain, and well done.
long time ago, long time ago. Far in a galaxy, far in a galaxy, far, far away. There once was a boy slave destined to save space. He wins a big pot of race and hits on a queen. That made a cougar quiet. Gets killed by Darth Maul, who is then chopped in half. Obi-Wan was trained, the one from Tatooine. It's the Clone Age, sent people rampage. Mommy got played straight, and East Bay is Padme. the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. You look tired. No. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. This is where the fun begins. Let the past between us. And a cunning warrior.
Right, I'm delighted to welcome to the Vintage Rebellion a collector who is highly regarded amongst the community. A young and as far as vintage Star Wars collectors go, at just the tender age of 30. A B-Wing fanatic with, and I quote, a collection of capacitance, a side <laughs> focus which I will ask you about later. He's one half of the hosts from the fantastic Car Car Show. Joining me this evening is Stephen Danley. Good evening, Steve. Hey, good uh, Good afternoon. Good evening. One or the other. <laughs> I mean, of course, it's, uh, what time is it over there? It's uh, about 11 a.m., so we're, we're getting there. <laughs> good morning, then. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to come on. It's nice to have that bit of a crossover. Yeah, no, and I have to say it is, it's a little weird not having Sky, even though we're never in the same room recording, but it still feels like there's this <laughs> gap in the room but no it's 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 great to be on thanks thanks again. Oh, it's like i'd order time for me steve and whenever i'm talking to these guys there's always a gap now steve i don't know if you understood that that that's rich from the podcast he's joining us yes <laughs> if you if you don't understand anything if you just shout out translate at any point and i can okay. read a question now steve february this year the kaifcast celebrated their sixth birthday and you've yeah just released your 71st episode, probably 72nd by the time this comes out, so quite a body of work you and Sky have already achieved. How did the Kaifcast originally come about? I guess, yes, over six years ago, uh, Sky and I actually lived in the same town in Southern California. We were both at the same uh, university. He had kind of threw it across this idea of, of wanting to do a, a vintage-related podcast. And uh, at that point, I'd never even listened to a podcast in my life. I barely knew what they were. <laughs> And uh, he he asked me if I would just come in as like a a guest host to kind of pitch the show. And um, so <laughs> we went over to his house and uh, at his dining table recorded a, a pretty awful show that I could never, <laughs> never bear to listen to again. But it was fun. And um, sure enough, uh, a couple months later, it uh, it kind of picked up from there and uh, the, the archive uh, offered to host it and. He's like, well, I got to record another episode. Do you want to just come in and do another one? I'm like, oh, okay. And then, sure enough, I became like this recurring guest host for like the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, so it started off as kind of a, a very small thing that, that it was definitely Sky's idea. And I was just really lucky to kind of be in proximity to help. And um, then when he moved to New York, at that point, we had, I think, been recording for maybe six months or so, and we just kept going with it. So, yeah, it started off as a very small thing. It's a bit easier for us, Steve, because we can actually look at your show, see your segment, see what we're like, see what we can change and what we can add into. <laughs> but you guys had nothing before you. How did you come up with the format for the show initially? So, uh, once again, that was it was all Sky. Uh, he kind of showed me the, the basic outline of what he had in mind with the different segments. And um, actually, I think one of my first contributions to the show was doing the, the market watch. And uh, soon thereafter, uh, Mike from, from Australia and, and Pete Fitzke from here in the States, they kind of became really enamored with that segment and would just start sending me stuff. And then it was just like, oh, you guys can just go and take it over. <laughs> That's great. And I, I honestly, I think that the archive is the, is the crux of the show. It, it all started with Sky trying to show interesting things from the archive that people might not have seen. And he actually, I think he started a little thread called Nugget from the archive. And then that became, uh, you know, one of my, my favorite segments of our show from there you know, developing an oddball section or, you know, unloved and, um, and then just trying to get different collectors on that, you know, focusing on a figure that, that whole thing, like the first maybe year of the show, we didn't really have that, that kind of figure of the month focus. And that was another, uh, sky idea is like, why don't we kind of base each show loosely on, uh, the figures in order and that, that kind of, that kind of really 
was where things came together, I'd say. I mean, we have that kind of structure, and it kind of gave us an idea of how long we could do this. <laughs> so we'll be talking about weird droids and Ewoks years from now, probably when Star Wars is, is something else completely, but we'll, we'll still be talking about vintage <laughs> figures. I don't think people really realize how much work goes into producing a podcast, do they, you know? No, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. And, you know, with, with us, it's more, it's kind of split like pre and post production. I mean, I, I, I try and do as much as I can up front to kind of throw ideas out there, throw items out there, get guests lined up. And then Sky does all of the editing. So it's, it's all. That's that's all him, and I, I can only imagine. I remember like when you were actually living in the same town, like watching him trying to put it together, and I was like, I'm like, there's no way I could do this. Um, I'm glad that you, that you have the capacity because I just it's beyond me. If if you did do some of the editing, would you jump in with your bit of singing? Oh God, no, <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah, just for some random bits in, doesn't it? Is it? <laughs> oh yeah, no. I, it, they're they're a musical family, the, the Pains. So. <laughs> So I, I, it's it's great to actually get that after the fact. Um, I've never never had a live performance that I <laughs> that I can remember. And you said you went to university with him. Yeah. So I mean, he he was a a graduate student when I was an undergrad um, at UCSB at Santa Barbara, and um, so we we met actually through Rebel Scum. He came into uh, our my family had a shop downtown that was like a furniture importing business, and that's how we we met really. Yeah, soon after that, we started talking baseball and realized we had all this stuff in common and just became really good friends. And uh, when the show thing came around, I just figured I'd, I'd step in to get it started and then that would be it. <laughs> you just never know with these things. You you also just mentioned about the, the Star Wars archive. Yeah. They they approached you, did they, or did you no, no. So and say, look? Sky, uh, Sky approached Gus uh, about, about hosting the show, um, and I think it might have even been, he might have tried a couple other places, and, and it was it was Gus who said, yeah, but, you know, it's a great idea, let's let's go for it. So, and, and it really worked out, because like I said, the, the archive is really, it's, it's where all the, the show's substance comes from, really. Yeah, uh, Steve, one of the genius ideas that you guys have had is pulling everything together onto the archive. Uh, and with the introduction of the blog, um, I'm certainly know that I've got a lot more interactive with it. Are you really pleased with how that's gone and how the whole interaction um, with the blog is going? Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Uh, when that idea kind of first started circulating around, which uh, Sky and his brother Bart had kind of pitched a look for it and... Uh, basic way of doing it and uh ron was also a big proponent of it and and his articles are just i mean his writing on the archive is already my one of my favorite things about it but to see these kind of more esoteric things that don't really fit into the database but need some extra attention it's it's just it's fantastic and um I've been helping, you know, I, I contribute an article or two here or there, but it's uh, my main function has just been kind of formatting it and getting the posts published, and which is fun because I, I get to see all this stuff kind of come through and kind of see what's what's in the pipeline. And yeah, no, it's it's great, it, and it's it's so much easier in terms of the technology to kind of throw a post together and, and get it published. Um, the the backend database stuff is I'm still kind of not really into that part of it yet, but. Um, so this is, it's a great outlet for, for stuff that, that doesn't really fit into any neat category. Don't sell, sell yourself short there, Steve. Some of your articles <laughs> on there are really good as well. Um, well thank particularly you. from an archival point of view. Yeah, and no, I mean, that's, it's, um, it's funny because I, I went to school to be an archivist. Um, so I, I think it's just funny to think about my career and the, the website as kind of being under the same un- umbrella. So I kind of live my life in the same, <laughs> 
like frame of mind. Um, and I, you know, anything that I can contribute that touches on stuff that you wouldn't see or you might not know about, um, I like to try and do. So yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really, you know, proud to be associated with it. With regards to the podcasts. Yeah. Do you listen to many other, other podcasts? Cause you obviously trailblazed the, uh, the vintage, <laughs> yeah, well, the collecting kind of podcast, didn't you? You know? What? Yeah. I mean, I, it's Sky, um, kind of opened the, the window for me to kind of the whole podcasting world. I, I, there are so many out there that I could never keep up, but I, I will say, I listen to a lot more than I ever did when we first started. Um, I mean, obviously, I listen to you guys and uh, some of the other collecting podcasts, but I mean, I love uh, some of the Rebel Force radio shows, like uh, the Star Wars Oxygen is just amazing. Um, I, I don't go into anything beyond Star Wars and movies so much. Uh, I, there's a couple of uh, great podcasts on the, uh, the Earwolf Network that are all kind of movie and comedy focus that i love to listen to but um yeah i mean it's it's bizarre i just didn't realize how expansive a genre podcasts are i mean they're they're just anything you can think of so yeah i definitely say my horizons have been broadened since we started it's amazing when you start you wonder how you you're gonna fill a show each month don't you and it's just like yeah it's never (laughs) well we feel nearly four to five hours each month (laughs) (laughs) we record about 10 but uh yeah (laughs) <laughs> I've always wondered uh, how much raw material you guys must have. <laughs> yeah, it's never a, a short session. What ca- what character have we got coming up next for for us? Yes, for you. Let's see. If we have. I think it's uh, Zuckus. He's our he's our next character. Oh, nice. I, and that's it's exactly what you just said. I'm like, how are we going to fill an episode about Zuckus? <laughs> I'm not really sure. We'll just uh, we'll see what happens. Last year, you were lucky enough to be involved in a huge fine, which was dubbed the Big Pick. Um, oh yeah for anyone who hasn't come across this they must be blind but can you give us a brief overview of what the big pick was sure i mean it's in terms of my involvement you know cj fawcett a good friend uh had reached out to me saying that there was a a pretty big find of vintage stuff that was you know in my neck of the woods and that uh he really he needed some help just sorting it and getting it packed and ready to, to send back back east and uh so he Along with uh, another local, Phidias Barrios, the three of us kind of went down to see this this collection, which is about uh, maybe an hour and a half from where I live. And it's, it's it was basically this this guy's entire you know life. I mean, he dedicated so much energy to to collecting anything Star Wars from 1977 all the way up through I'd say you know episode one is kind of where things cut off and then there was a couple things later but uh, especially with the vintage stuff it was you know not just the toys like every kind of toy from the line but a lot of uh, great he had some great scrapbooks of um, news clippings and uh, advertisements things that just are very, you know, ephemeral in nature. They just kind of come and go. So the fact that he had saved them all and kind of put them together, it just created this, there was a, you know, big history to it. It wasn't just the toys. It was the whole era that this guy had collected. You know, just to see all that over the span of two days was just um, a bit overwhelming, I'd I'd say. Why had he suddenly decided to sell up after all that time? Well, from what I understand, um, I think he had he just hadn't he was actually building a, a new storage place to have it displayed. But I think with the new movie coming out, he just 
he decided he he didn't want to to burden himself with it anymore and i can tell it's it's a tough thing to when you have that much that you've had for so long to let it go um I, but i think it was really just a matter of timing i it was i think around celebration anaheim that he had kind of approached some of the collecting groups including ours which i, I don't think i was there when when he did but saying that he had this huge collection that he was feeling ready he needed to to let go of and i i honestly i'm not really sure about the entire impetus to let it go but i think timing of of the new film and i think that was a big part of it um but you know he was still obviously a huge fan and he was really excited for the new movie it wasn't that he was leaving star wars per se but just you know coming to a point in in his life where i think he you know he has kids and just wanted to focus on that it was a, a crazy weekend was there any items in there that you were just gobsmacked to? <laughs> uh, I mean, there was some rare production, you know, carded figures in there that were pretty outstanding. Um, some, I think the one thing that CJ was the most excited about was a rare uh, version of the Vader case that had uh, some of the bounty hunter figures uh, included with it. But as far as for me, um, there was a lot of, you know, I'd seen a lot of the action figures and action figure toys in person before, but a lot of the uh, kind of peripheral um, items from the Kenner line that, you know, I'd seen pictures of, but never seen in hand but that was that was my my favorite part of it and that's where i you know i picked up a a movie viewer and and uh, a set of the cartridges um so i was very excited about that i think i i got a remote control r2d2 which um which is great because i was planning on writing a piece on that with tommy's like oh man i could here i can just get one <laughs> you know and, and so it's like a perfect reference point um but yeah it was that that peripheral stuff that that was the most interesting to me. When I interviewed Chris on the big pick, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, this, but I did ask, um, did you put the movie viewer down because I knew you would make a beeline for that. And when <laughs> once I saw the photograph of you holding that, I just envisioned yeah. you had it in your hand for the whole 48-hour period. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely, uh, it was early on, like, hey, CJ, uh, do you mind if, if, uh, if I hold on to this? And he said, yeah, that's fine. So I went and put it in a little corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's it's um it's a great piece and and it's kind of a, a related note. I there's other versions of it um one of which I had no idea existed until I went to Rancho Obi-Wan a couple months ago. But there's a Japanese version um which obviously I'm like, "Oh great, I got to find this now." <laughs> but yeah, no that that's that was a that was a choice choice item for me. Did you pick anything else up, Moira? You know what's uh, some of the other fun stuff? At least for me, that there wasn't really any value in it. But uh, some of the the Galoob micro machines from 1994, those were very uh, important to me as a as a kid. The first Star Wars toys that I could have ever really bought at a store. So I, I uh, got a couple of those sets um, that I used to have, and then one two pack uh, with Admiral Ackbar and Pruneface, who were two figures that I was very fond of as a kid. Um, and I didn't, I'd never had a two pack before, so that was kind of nice. But other than that, no, uh, most of it was all, uh, <laughs> neatly crated and, and put into a, a shipping container. Um, which that was a, <laughs> that was an endeavor, but. You didn't find any crazy B wings then? While you were... <laughs> oh, no, no. Uh, there was a nice boxed B wing, um, but I, I have, a, I have one of those. Yeah, uh, I imagine you've. <laughs> No, there, there isn't all that much to find with with the B wing pilot or B wing. So now moving on a bit, then let, let's start going in into your collection. Now, as I mentioned in the sure. intro, you're you're a youngster. You're only thirty years old. Yes, a nineteen eighty five baby. So two years after the release of Jedi, 
a lot of us collect because of nostalgia growing up through that period. So what was your introduction to Star Wars and to the toys? So I'll say that in terms of the movies, I don't remember a time where I, I wasn't familiar with them. They, they're just one of those things that I just always remember. Um, and I have, I have to give credit to my my older half-brother and my mom for that. My older half-brother, he's 10 years older than me. So he had, you know, he grew up in the original era and had a bunch of the toys and uh, the first exposure I had to those was things that he had given me to play with. Then the, the, I'd say the the incident, I call it the incident, that really is kind of cemented in my mind. Um, it must have been uh, 19, late 1988, early 1989. I was really young, but there was a, a KB toy store uh, in Santa Barbara that uh, I just remember one night going with my mom. I think she kind of realized how crazy into Star Wars I was, so we went to see if, if our toy store happened to have anything left, and they had a bunch of all the lame Return of the Jedi characters, and a couple of Power Force, Power of the Force characters, and uh, some droids characters, and uh, they were, you know, marked for two for a dollar, or whatever, and uh, my mom, <laughs> being a, a hero, she just said, I'll, I'll just take everything you have left <laughs> for, for my, 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 brother and, my brother and I, so... We got home that night and just, it was, uh, pandemonium. I mean, it was, that's the one time that I got to pick out any vintage toys off the shelf. And, uh, it's, it's where I, you know, my love for all these Jedi characters came from. And that's, that's kind of what's geared my collecting. Yours is still nostalgic, you know, having yeah, a, yeah, it's a, it's stuff. a, it's a weird nostalgia. It's not a common one, I guess. Now, Steve, you've uh, uploaded a lot of videos recently back um, around about that time period where you acted out certain scenes from the movies or even <laughs> even scenes that you made up yourself. I mean, those must have been fun to create back then. Yeah, so um, uh, my mom, she ran a, a videography business, and so she'd recently just picked up some, some uh, editing equipment, and she had this sound effects board. It had all these great explosions and things like that. And uh, it was her idea, you know, to make a Star Wars movie starring my brother and sister and I and some of the neighborhood kids. We'd gone to Disneyland recently and picked up some of the uh, the masks and things. And uh, so, yeah, that was just like over a weekend. We uh, The story was of a very loose. <laughs> There's no real narrative structure. <laughs> you, you have uh, my sister was uh, what's that character from the live action Ewoks movies. <laughs> Oh, yeah. uh, the little girl. So she played mm-hmm. that character, which would have no, you know, <laughs> there was no sense to it. But it, it was Star Wars in the Dark Ages. I, I like to think of it. <laughs> so um, yeah, and then after that, I, I don't, I have these somewhere. But I did a lot of kind of stop motion home movies with with all sorts of toys, uh, vintage and modern. And uh, I have to find those and get those those uh, uploaded at some point. But yeah, that, that one that I posted to the archive, that was kind of the, that's where all that started. Yeah. I was going to ask if your mom allowed you to use a soundboard as you were playing with your figures to create some realistic explosions and things. <laughs> no, I mean, it, we, uh, I had a lot of fun kind of watching her edit stuff. And I ended up using it a lot when I was a teenager. Um, but no, no, that actually the, the, the weird sound effect in that, in that home movie that you might not know, we had this Starship Enterprise toy because we needed something to make a laser sound. And I think we'd gotten it for Christmas or something. And it, it's funny because we did not watch Star Trek as kids. Like I didn't, I had no, like she, I guess she did when she was uh, younger, but I didn't really even know what the thing was. I just knew that it made some cool laser sounds. So what she ended up doing was kind of putting the, the Enterprise right next to the camera <laughs> and just using that as like live sound for our, for our laser paddle. You should um do like a comparison video now. Maybe get your sister and yourself and 
reenact the whole thing frame for frame exactly the same. Oh, man. I, I don't know about that. I don't think my sister would be up. But she might be up for, like, a where are they now interview. We'll see. <laughs> that, that might be the first Star Wars Star Trek crossover on uh, on movie. <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> Get, getting back to your collecting, then. You, you said mm-hmm. earlier about micro-machines. You're like, oh, micro-machines. But I suppose you were only nine... Nine, ten years old, kind of, that era. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I remember clearly uh, a friend had said, there are Star Wars toys, new Star Wars toys at the store. And I, I, my mind was blown. So we, you know, took a drive down down to that KB where, where I got that vintage stuff. And it was just, you know, I, I'd never had any Micro Machines regardless at that point as a kid. But the fact that it was Star Wars and that it was something that something new, um, I, I absolutely loved those things. Um and I, you know, I collected them all the way through, not quite up to when they started making them for episode one, but, but soon, I guess before that. But, um, yeah, no, I was, I, I love those things. Um, and I still do. I mean, I actually, one of my goals for the next year or so is to finally get some of that stuff on display now that I've actually gone back and bought some of the stuff I used to have. So you, you were into the micro machines. Did you then do what we all did and then go into the Power of the Force 2 line? Yeah, so I I, uh, I was 10 years old, and that Christmas, I think, of 95, my brother, my younger brother and I got some of that stuff for Christmas. And we had all, at that point, I should say this, we had, we had been full into the vintage toys at that point. There was a comic shop that our babysitter had actually started taking us to uh, that because we wanted to figure out what else was out there from the old the old toys and so we were you know, like together collecting uh, a set of the loose figures at that point so i think we appreciated that there was new star wars stuff and we loved getting like the falcon and an x-wing that you know we just didn't have as kids um but the figures i think even at, at a young age we both kind of looked at each other and like oh something's weird about these especially that first wave yeah oh yeah yeah but i remember how crazy people were for them it's it's just strange to think about when did you come back into or when did you start properly collecting as an adult so i'd say that that was around 2000 so we never my brother and i hadn't finished our loose set we'd gotten close um and after episode one came out I even had some of the prequel toys and things. I started to kind of buy a lot of modern figures as as a collector, and I realized, you know, I need to go back and finish our vintage set. It's it just has to be done. And so I I went on. I think it was an old forum, not Galactic Hunter, Star Wars Collection. It was some old website before Rebel Scum that had a chat room, and uh, I just went in there saying, you know, looking for a a blue snaggletooth and uh, Brock Walker, who's become one of my best friends since then. He sold me a blue snaggletooth, uh, and that was what really, I'd say, got me back into collecting seriously. And, um, he kind of showed me the ropes in terms of, you know, the, the community and just what to, co- you know, what kind of things to collect. And, uh, that, that was where I really got started. So it was just finishing that, that loose vintage set, which I think beyond snaggletooth, I still needed to pick up the Luke Stormtrooper and maybe one or two other figures. I can't remember, but that, that's where it started. Outside of your focus and mm-hmm. putting aside your um, your collection of capacitance, I love <laughs> that expression, what else have you got still in your collection? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think people always kind of assumed I only collected B-Wing Pilot, but that, <laughs> that wasn't the case. Um, what I tried to do outside of that was just try and represent as much of the, the vintage line with as many different types of items as possible. So um, I had a you know near-complete carded run of uh, the figures on their matching movie card backs and then i had some some boxed stuff um but 
when I started to kind of get into pre-production stuff, I realized pretty quickly that a lot of that stuff was going to have to, to kind of be sacrificed in order to, to fund some of this other stuff. Um, so I think at this point, I've kind of whittled it down to you know having a little bit from the entire line um, and try and get as many pre-production stages represented as I can. And that that today is, is pretty much an impossible task. This is probably maybe 10 years ago I started doing that. So it's like that kind of golden period between 2006 and 2009 where it was still, you know, feasible and there was still stuff available. Um, but now, nowadays, not so much. <laughs> do you think the prices will come back down again? Or do you think they're here to stay? Because I know you're a market expert. You're a... <laughs> <laughs> no way. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's... It might come down at, at some point, but I don't think it'll ever be as low as it is it once was. So not a good time to be starting out then. No. <laughs> <laughs> now in the intro, and I've just mentioned it a minute ago, we mentioned your collection of capacitance. <laughs> Can you tell the listeners what what this is? Yeah. So um, again, as I was kind of saying, I, I collecting the stuff from the the main toy lines was kind of becoming difficult and um i still you know you're you're a collector at heart you have to you have to find something new to focus on and i was visiting uh todd chamberlain a couple summers ago and we were going through his amazing basement which is the toy chamber it is that that's the actual <laughs> the namesake of his business i'd consider that place and i i was kind of looking around and i saw these very strange looking they look like floppy disks uh but they had the movie part you know artwork on them i'm like what the heck are these and so i picked them up and i think i was standing there with with sky and ron and uh it was the first time i'd ever seen a ced or a capacitance electronic disc or you know, i forgot the acronym but that's where the capacitance <laughs> comes in. So uh, this whole joke about collecting um, kind of weird uh, film and video formats kind of started with that. And um, <laughs> that's, I think, <laughs> that's where the whole capacitance thing comes in. What will these be played through? A, a computer? No. So there, there was a, an actual proprietary uh, format. And uh, I think it's like it lasted very <laughs> very brief period of time in the in the 80s um so it had its own player which you would just insert the disc into and it actually played almost like a record so within the the kind of floppy disk looking uh container was an actual disc that looked more like a an lp so that would kind of um emerge once inside the player and it would play i think on a stylus from there and the quality was kind of similar to like a, a VHS VHS tape, from what I understand. Um, and I I really at some point in my life need to see one of these things in action, um, just just for the pure bizarreness of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think actually where I where I work, I work at a film archive. There, there's a rumor that uh, a CED player still exists somewhere in our basement, along with a, a cache of of discs. I'm like, we need to find this thing and and see if it works. <laughs> I've never even heard of them. Yeah, no, I, I had not until until I found these, and and since then um, I kind of branched out to try and get other you know film and video formats um, from throughout the world. So I'm trying to apply the same like variety in terms of items and in terms of countries with with that. So that's that's where that whole collection kind of came from. Well, Joe, what eBay hundred quid? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just the. They, they even look like a bit like a video. Well, they look like more like a DVD player, don't they? They're um, not what I was expecting. But yeah, no, it's it's a, I, it's totally bizarre to think that because you know, there was the whole VHS and Betamax war, but 
somewhere off on the sidelines was the CED player <laughs> that just didn't ever have a chance. <laughs> and the rest of this this little well, it's not little, but a bit of <laughs> side collection to yeah to your main thing. You've gone down. What what else is now in it? What are you actually aiming to get? So um, try yeah, like you know different formats. So I Super Eight. Uh, I've, I picked up a couple of Super Eight reels. Um, my favorites being uh, you know Star Wars from Germany, and then I think I have Empire Strikes Back. That's just a regular. Uh, the United States version. And then I, you know, in terms of video, uh, I got this strange, uh, Greek Ewoks live action film, like version that, you know, I, who knew that they would, you know, have this on video in, in Greece in, in like the late eighties, but I found it on eBay for, it was really cheap. I'm like, Oh, that, that, that fits this bizarre <laughs> spectrum. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, the Kenner stuff, I really like the, obviously the movie viewers, but the, there's a, a projector, um, that it functions in the same way. So it has Super 8 film projected in a, instead of like a, a camera looking device, it's like a little, I think it's called the Cineview. Um, and I got one of those from France. Um, so that, that's, that's one area of it. And then beyond that, um, what I'm really starting to get interested in is, promotional ephemera so things that were tied into the theatrical releases back in the day or or the video releases so brochures pamphlets um things like that um and that that's that's really been a fun and and relatively affordable avenue to, to pick stuff up and there was a recent auction um from emovieposters.com there's been a couple of those actually star wars posters and paper items and and i've been able to pick up a couple of strange uh things on the cheap from those but yeah, so that's that's kind of where my my collecting focus has been these days. So with, with the ephemery, are you looking at that worldwide stuff as well? Yeah, I mean, I'd say if I can find worldwide stuff, absolutely. Um, but you know, I'm I'm happy to pick up anything from here in the states as well. So I I think like things like uh, programs, and um, I'd love to pick up like uh, there was uh, pre-release screenings, so they had tickets and programs for those things like that. I'd love to, to eventually try and pick up some lobby cards. Um, I don't have any of those yet. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of niche things within that, that realm that I don't think get all that much attention, at least not nearly as much as the toys. But there, there's a lot out there to collect. So I'm, I'm really trying to, to learn as much as I can about that that kind of area of, of Star Wars. Stephen, a lot of those countries did their own take on promotional materials. Um, I'm thinking of someone like the Polish posters and the Japanese mm-hmm. posters. What, what kind of program really stands out in your mind? There's, uh, there's a Japanese program for Empire Strikes Back that it's kind of oversized and, and square in shape, but it uses the, uh, that fantastic artwork. Uh, the, the artist's name is terrible. His name is escaping me right now, but it's very, um, very like stylish compared to some of the, the programs here. They just have the film's logo on the cover, but there it uses the poster artwork in a really interesting way. It's hard to describe. I'll have to send you guys the, an archive link to it. Um, so that that's like one. I, I'd say like the the stuff from Asia, the, the the programs are really interesting looking. And then the the posters. I'm not really collecting posters. That's a, that's a whole other realm of insanity. But but what's nice with the the Japanese stuff, they had those the shirashi, which basically are miniature versions of the posters that were available at the theaters as little flyers. So um, I've been picking up some of those. And then just strange uh, paperwork from from places like Australia, like. I picked up this thing. It was from Columbia's uh, Fox 
distribution wing. Um, it's like an oversized, basically it looks like a, something you'd see like a newspaper posted on a, on a post on the street, but it has information about Empire Strikes Back and how, uh, cinemas in, in Australia can, can market it. So, so things like that I, I find really fascinating and, um, and kind of um, underrepresented in terms of the knowledge out there. So I'm really, I'm just trying to just find out as much as I can. Is there stuff constantly readily available? Um, yeah, if, if you do the right kind of eBay search, um, I'd say you can find some, some weird stuff. Um, and that's, that's been kind of fun. And it's, you know, it's not a constant stream, but I'd say, you know, it's caught, it's kept me going for the last couple of years. Um, and there's still so much else out there. Uh, but yeah, that's, I'd say I'd say it's a good a good little side focus to to go for. There was a guy in the UK who was going to make some kind of um, timeline on the releases of the movies in the cinema. You know, huh? when did Star Wars come out? When were the double bills out? When were the triple bills out? Is there yeah. anything like that in the states you're aware of? Not that I know of, really. I mean, there's there's some great books about you know obviously the, the making of the movies and the marketing of them. But in terms of a cohesive timeline, I think that's, that's hard. I think it would be a great thing to have really. I mean, that you can kind of piece it together through things like, like posters and, um, and programs and, and things like that. But to have a cohesive thing, I think would be fantastic. Now I want to move on to focus collecting and in particular your B-Wing focus. I'm in the infancy of my focus, which is great. I've only been doing it for about 15 months long and it's going to be slow. But when I have friends and family over, they look at, look at my collection and ask, I always go, why have you got several of the same figure? <laughs> and I try to explain it to them, and they just stand there, like, you know, baffled. But So what is it, do you think, that makes collectors want to focus on solely one figure? Or why do you want to focus solely on one figure? I think it varies for a lot of people. For me, when I started collecting B-Wing Pilot stuff, it was kind of at that really high point, or I'd say like the genesis of, of focusing on, on figures and putting together runs on a specific figure. And... At the time, I was really just trying to see what kinds of pre-production items were available for what characters, and um, with the B-Wing pilot obviously being not that popular (laughs) of a a figure, there was some really nice stuff still available when I got started, and I just, you know, thought, well, this is an opportunity to kind of get multiple stages of production at once for one figure and i, I and obviously I, the Beeling pilot was one of my favorites as a kid because it was my luke skywalker <laughs> um i didn't have a luke so that to me the Beeling pilot was just luke in his pilot gear so the fact that there was things like the the photo art still available um chromalins still available i'm like well it's it, it was tough at the time to to go for it, but I figured why there's no other time to do it than now. Um, so it was really more just seeing what was available and um, for for a figure I liked, and then that's kind of where it came from for me. But like I said earlier, like I, I try and represent other things that I can't with the B wing pilot with with other with other characters um, or you know vehicles or whatnot. But yeah, I'd say it's it's really if you have an affinity for a figure as a kid, that's one reason or if there's, say, a whole group of stuff that's obtainable, that's that's like the second aspect. And for me, it was both. With figure focuses, do you think they've taken off more since like the explosion in the internet? Or were these... I, I know that Kellerman had a, quite a big layer focus, didn't he, in the early eight, uh, 90s, and John Warren with his Stormtroopers. But right. was it that common? when you Did you see it common back in 2000 when you came back in that people were doing this? N- no. No, I mean, I, I'd say... 
I really didn't notice it until the, the mid 2000s, which is kind of when I was really getting serious about it. I mean, I knew at that point, um, I knew people that had character focused collections like Sky and Derek were Chewbacca. They had a lot of Chewbacca and then Derek ended up, <laughs> he has a lot of, of <laughs> focuses, but, um, but no, it wasn't, it wasn't nearly what it was, um, when I, when I got into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, in addition to like John Wooten's Stormtrooper run and, um, and John Kellerman's Leia, there was, you know, Gus had a pretty insane run of, of Jawa, uh, proof cards, I think. And so it sort of existed, but just not nearly as, uh, and now pretty much you can go through the entire line and you can find a focus out there that, that's been put together, which it's, it's really amazing. Um, and it's, you know, within a 10 year period, I'd say, it does seem that everybody has got, got got a figure focus now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask Stephen, were you fo- have you followed any of the Facebook threads on entitlement at all with focus collectors? No, but that's a conversation conversation that that I think I've I've witnessed before, and I completely like understand where where collectors that that aren't focused on a specific figure they have to me and in, in my mind they they have just as right to, as much a right to have an interest in something as a focus collector. Um, it's, I just don't really, I, I don't believe in that entitlement part. Sure, I, I think it's great when people, uh, look out for, for a collector that has a, a specific focus. Um, and that, that happens all the time. So that's, that's great. But at the same time, if, if a friend was interested in a piece that just as easily fit their collection as, as mine, I wouldn't hold anything against them. Yeah, I think what you said there is quite interesting, and certainly from my point of view, I think the the story and the journey and the conversations and the community side of it means much more to me than actually having the piece in my hand. When you have a lot of close friends that have you know great collections, it, it's still the fact that you can go see this stuff and appreciate it. To me, it's it's still within the same family almost, if yeah. that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. On one of your recent shows, you and Sky were um, actually discussing focus collectors and the. Um Saying, I think, I think it was Sky that was trying to say that he doesn't think people can call themselves a focus collector until they've been in it for a certain amount of time. <laughs> remember this I remember this. I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so going with that conversation, you you didn't go too much in depth with it. But what what criteria do you two both think that you need to achieve before you can give themselves a focus collector title? I I don't know. I think putting a, a year on it is isn't exactly effective. Um, I'm sure sure it. It helps to kind of cement someone as someone that has commitment to it. But at the same time, in a much you know shorter period of time, someone can go out and, and learn so much and not even, you know, necessarily collect a bunch, but at least show a, a passion for it. So I don't I don't think it's it's quantifiable, really. Yeah, um, I think you're it's, it's almost like you're buying and selling behavior is almost more behind it than than years. So, I mean, with, with me, I. I just don't, I guess with, I think about it this way. So say it comes to a point where I really, I need to get rid of a lot of my collection. It, I think of my focus as like the pillar that would remain once everything else is, is gone. And I, I, I tend to not want to sell stuff regardless, but it's just, if when you see someone that says they're, they're putting together a run, a particular character, and then shortly thereafter, it's, it's on to the next. It's more of like a behavioral thing where... I think it's just it's it's psychological almost. I, I agree with that. I, you, you see so many people, don't you? These fly by night people come in, do a focus, and sell it off. It's uh, yeah, just interesting to go on. Yeah, that. it's it's like a whole psychological, you know, you could do a whole study on on just that aspect of, of Star Wars collecting. How long have you actually been focusing on the B wing? I think two thousand five ish is when I I I picked up like more than one 
piece. So I think I got a couple of proof cards uh, and a first shot in 2005, 2006. So it's been since then, but honestly, it, I, for the last few years, it's been kind of, there isn't, there's not much out there to, to go for. So I'd still consider myself like a viewing pilot and viewing collector, but I don't, I don't necessarily like, you know, feel the ur- urge to just find anything and everything I can. Like I'm kind of, kind of feel satisfied with, with where things are and, and realize that it'll, it'll always be there. But yeah, so it's, it's been like 10 years. So quite a time. So before we go on to, onto your B-Wing focus, do you know Mark Belomo? Ah, uh, the name does ring a bell. I don't know if I know him personally. I was, go- I was going to ask if you liked him, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, oh, I, yeah, I don't think I know him. Because um, I just want to read you what he opens up saying about the B-Wing pilot in his Ultimate Guide, okay? <laughs> oh, okay, wait. I, he's a, he, he has a book, right? He wrote the book. Okay, yeah, okay. Now, his opening paragraph on the B-Wing page is, Having developed a reputation as the easiest vintage figure to obtain mint on card on the secondary market, due to the figure's ubiquity, this ease of availability, combined with the toy's lack of fine detailing, led Kenner's B-Wing pilot figurine to be regarded as an afterthought to most collectors. <laughs> he really is dissing the, uh, the B-Wing pilot here, isn't he? Um, he's having a proper proper pop at it. Can you just defend, defend the B-Wing to him? Because... I think he's been a bit harsh, personally. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny. Like, it almost it's almost perfect that I kind of focus on this character's I, my whole life. As you'll see in our show, I'm, I kind of make myself an easy target. <laughs> um, but no, I, it's when you think about the entire line um, and the fact that that the B wing never actually <laughs> appeared in the in the films all that much. You kind of get that argument, but to me, it's almost like. It's an opportunity to, to, to get creative and think of things outside of, of the movies, almost. Um, I mean, the, the figure itself, to me, I don't know about the whole detailing thing. I think it's a, it's a pretty nice figure for what it is. I mean, it's not, yeah. you know, sure, like, the, the Jabba aliens have much more impressive sculpts and, and are much more intricate, but you can do anything with the B-Wing pilot. He can, he can be anybody. So it's it's it, as far as like a kid playing with the toys, I could see the the utility. He's a he's a he, you know he's got utility. I'll say that. <laughs> as a child, I always thought his helmet. I always thought the brown bit was actually his hair. It was only about, <laughs> only about five years ago that I realised. Oh, it's actually um. Yeah, I mean, I, I I always knew there was something off about him because I'm like, well, he doesn't really look like the X-wing pilots. I don't know who he is exactly, but he looks close enough. I'll just I'll just go with that. <laughs> Is is Nainum a B-wing pilot? I, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess he flew an X-wing in in The Force Awakens, right? So I, he could definitely. Uh, I could see him flying a B-wing. I think he is. He's got the he's got the B-wing red jumpsuit, and he's he's has to have done something to get onto the Falcon. So why not be some quack hotshot B-wing pilot in a, in an earlier <laughs> life? <laughs> uh, I'll buy that story. I, I also like to to think of um, Akbar as being a former B-wing pilot. Well, Mr. Belomo, if you are listening, you also state this figure is an afterthought for collectors. Well, I'm telling you that that isn't true. <laughs> there are tons of B-Wing focus collectors out there with huge collections. Aren't there, Steve? Name them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know one other. <laughs> uh, there's a, a Joe Yegan from, um, I think he's from Ohio. Um, and that was actually, <laughs> it was really funny to, to realize that there was someone else that that was collecting this stuff, and I think we we finally met at uh, Celebration Anaheim. So um, there are there is another. <laughs> Do you despise him? No, no. <laughs> Copy him. <laughs> there, well, there was actually one in the UK, wasn't there, Rich? A couple of years ago on Souls Forum 
um, bloke yeah, Tim, Tim. I believe he sold it sold it up so I don't know what to <laughs> <laughs> whether he looked at it one day and thought what am I doing yeah but, I, don't know, I don't know if I'd say afterthought it, it's something along the lines of an afterthought but <laughs> as far as your B-Wing collection goes you collect production and pre-production don't you yeah so I, I, I collect both um, I, I'd say what I still have is, is mainly uh, pre-production um, I, I did have a, a few of the other like different offers. I mean, obviously, there isn't all that much you can do production-wise um, with the Beaming Pilot in terms of card backs and things like that. But um, so you know, I have a just a standard seventy-seven back, which I got at the uh, the Lucasfilm licensing archives auction back at uh, Celebration Four, which which was kind of fun. And obviously, not too many people were, were bidding too crazy on it. So uh, that was an, a nice. Uh, pick up and then I, I have a tri logo. Uh, in terms of the ship, uh, you know, I have a, a boxed, just standard uh, Kenner B wing. I'd love to pick up like a tri logo B wing at some point. Um, the box art for that is great, and you know, but it, for the most part, it's 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 pre production. So uh, and you know, like I said before, I was lucky at the time that there was a good deal of it um, out there that wasn't locked up. And um, so yeah, I mean, it, starting with the the photo art that was that was the kind of that was where I really I didn't I wouldn't say I questioned what I was doing but I I felt like oh man this is kind of getting this is getting a little too serious because <laughs> that was I think I picked that up when I was in college and it was I think I ate a lot of ramen for a while after <laughs> after that so that, that that's the artwork image you sent me earlier. yeah the, the card back image of just the ship um which I mean I'll say it's not the most exciting but uh, once you really get a close look at it, it's it's really quite well done. So each of the stars is kind of hand painted in, and the uh, the photograph of the ship is is kind of hand cut and embedded in the image. Um, it's it's not much to look at from a distance, but when you see it up close, it's actually um, it's actually really cool. You saying it's not one of the more interesting ones? I would I would disagree with you when it comes to the ships. It's uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. It, I'll say this: I'm sure if they actually went with a, a picture of the, of the character itself, like a blurry picture of him in the background, it would be much less exciting and much less uh, sellable. Precisely, <laughs> yeah. Was it in production terms? Was he available on many cards outside of? I mean, I mean, foreign cards outside of Kenner, um, other than Trilogo. So there's the the, the Lily Letty, which um, I'm a total fool. I did have one of those at one point, but I I stupidly sold it, thinking that I was just going to focus on on uh, either you know U.S. or pre-production stuff. But I, I'd love to pick one of those up again someday. Uh, I do have a card back, so that that's that's kind of the one big foreign variant, I guess you could say. Is there much difference in the figure, Lily Letty figure, to the standard? Um, not much. I mean, I I still have I have a loose uh, Letty figure, and it, honestly, it doesn't look all that much different. Um, I think the color may be a little bit darker from what I remember, um, but in terms of the figure itself, it's it's not all that much different. It's probably got a different weapon, though, has it? Uh, yes, it did come with a different weapon. I, I actually, I think it came with the the Luke Poncho style gun. Yeah, it'll be something chunky. I think most of the Letty weapons seem to be quite chunky. Yeah, and what about? Things like bootlegs. Yeah, so uh, also from from Mexico, I have a couple of uh, bootlegs. Um, there's a few out there. That, uh, the two I have, one is kind of painted all black, and the other is kind of a teal color. And I've seen others out there in that color scheme. There's others that are actually more like the uh, the color of the figure itself. And there's one, if I remember right, that almost has like a 
an X-Wing pilot deco, so his helmet was kind of white, and the suit was more orange, which I'd love to pick one of those up one day. Um, so yeah, in terms of bootlegs, they're mainly uh, from Mexico. And this is another kind of funny bootleg note. On, on the back of the Uzai card backs, <laughs> I think he just goes by Wing Pilot, and uh, <laughs> it's one of the figures that didn't ever actually make it onto a card, but I'd love to, to think that somewhere so <laughs> a, a Wing Pilot Uzai exists. I'd like to have seen the card back. He probably would have been playing croquet or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of randomness. You you do have a, a knockoff B-Wing toy in your collection. Yes. Um, so this this is one of my more recent additions. I think I picked this up. God, time's flying. It, must, it might have been over a year or two ago. But I was, uh, I think, I forgot who had pointed me towards this thing. But someone had found it on eBay. And what it is, it's this kind of tank-looking thing called the uh, uh, Futuristic Power Silver Striker. And, <laughs> and it combines, you know, multiple toy lines. So you have, in addition to, like, a, a B-Wing pilot in the, the front seat looking like um, like the character from Star Trek. Who am I thinking of? Uh, the guy that has the, the bar over his eyes. Um, Geordie. Yeah, right. So you have, you have Geordie B-Wing pilot in the front. Then you have uh, some kind of G.I. Joe uh, and then you have Clawful, uh from Masters of the Universe, this giant hulking monster uh, driving this this tank that has all sorts of crazy weaponry. And uh, so it came from Italy. So it had this sticker uh, that said Turcom, which is, I think, an Italian toy distributor. But I think it was actually made in China by this uh, company called uh, Echo Toys. And they kind of specialized in remote control toys. So I think that's what this thing was. <laughs> so it's completely bizarre, but it still fit in with with the the run. So I'm like, oh, that, this this is great. And it was actually, I think it was relatively inexpensive. I think I paid something like fifty dollars for it. <laughs> so yeah, it's you never know what you'll find. Is, is it dated? I think it has a copyright in 1984, if I remember right. What a random toy! It's completely random. And then there's another one of uh, kind of related toy that I think Joe O'Brien had uh, sent to me from a different uh, a different forum on other toys called the Grid Striker. So it's very similar. I don't think it has any Star Wars figures. I think that one, it has other toy lines, but yeah, more Masters in the Universe and G.I. Joe characters, but it's clearly related. <laughs> um, but yeah, for whatever reason, the, the, the Silver Striker has, has the B-Wing pilot and also has a very strangely painted uh, snow trooper. You know, unfortunately, the, the figures aren't packed in with the toy. They're just pictured on the box. So I'm sure you've had um, guys send you, even if it's just photographed, some bizarre things over the years of the B-Wing pilot. Is there anything that sticks in your mind? I mean, this this is definitely the, the weirdest. Um, some other stuff that... I mean, I can't really think of anything else with, with the B-Wing pilot itself aside from this, this knockoff toy. Oh, wait, no. I take that back. I think there was a, a German comic that has B-Wing pilots painted as X-Wing pilots flying X-Wings, which is, I'd need to pick one of those up at some point. I, I think I wrote down which issue it was in, but um, I always loved that because that was how I played with, with uh, the B-Wing pilots. I, I had a really beat-up old X-Wing that he piloted, and uh, to see it like as it should have been in my, my child brain, like that was really, really fun. I've just found a, an image of that uh, Silver Striker. Yeah. That is incredible, isn't it? 
It's just so bizarre. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's how they come up with these things, and such a random selection of figures they've tossed. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like like I was saying, he's got utility. You can plug him in anywhere, and he can pretty much... <laughs> he's your, your nameless soldier. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Is there many oddball items with the B-Wing pilot? I was racking my brain. I couldn't think of many. Not really. I mean, there's... Not with the pilot, definitely not with the pilot. With the ship, there's there's some stuff. There's, like, some funky, like, stickers that have the B-Wing on it. And uh, it was used in, obviously, catalog photography. There, There's some interesting uses of it. Like, one thing I picked up uh, a couple of years ago was a set of slides from uh, that were from Kenner that, obviously, it looks like they hadn't finished the B-Wing pilot figure at the time, so they were using other figures to kind of pilot the thing, and I'm, I'm assuming these ended up in catalog photography somewhere, but my, one of my favorites is uh, they have uh, Leia uh, Bausch flying the B-Wing. <laughs> See, there's no wrong uh, reason for that, is there? No. I mean, it, literally, you can just make up whatever you want. <laughs> See, you, you, you thought if you're going to take that kind of photography, you just stick an X-Wing pilot in it. Or... Yeah, and, and actually, I don't think I send this to you. In another picture, there is an X-Wing pilot, but most of them actually have have uh, the Bausch. Yeah, yeah, very peculiar. Huh? Very peculiar. Yeah, I suppose it's because of a helmet. It could be a pilot's helmet. I guess. Yeah, I think uh, I forgot. It might have been my friend Aaron Longbine. Um, he, he had said, you know, it actually it makes sense why it's called the B-wing. It's the the Bausch wing." And I'm like, "Oh, there you go." <laughs> well, why is it called the B-wing? Because right, you get the X-wing looks like an X, and the Y-wing looks like a Y. I, from what I understand, I think it has to deal with um, the guy at ILM who was designing the model. Um, it's silly, I should know this right off the top of my head, but his last name started with a, with a B, and so I, I think that's kind of where that started. It, it definitely doesn't look like a B at all. <laughs> no, you think it was more like a, a, a T-wing. It's a T, yeah, yeah, exactly. But the story that we, we, we were told was that um, back when they were making Jedi, they had two ships, and one mm-hmm. of them was just referred to as A-ship, and the second one was referred to as B-ship. I see, and that makes the, complete sense, too. Yep, and then the B-ship, like, like you said, they, they took the guy's name, and then that became known as, I can't remember what the guy's name was, but whatever it was, see, it was Baker, they became known as the Baker ship, and then <laughs> and then it, it followed on B-wing, and then it stuck with that. So it was just A-ship yeah. and B-ship. Right, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. You say you're, you're mainly into the pre-production stuff now. Is, is mm-hmm. there much pre-production stuff around? Uh, I mean, what, what was around... Um, I was lucky to to kind of to pick up almost all around the same time. A lot of it was was still on uh, Tom Nyheisel's old sale list. I don't know if you guys are familiar with with that, um, but back in the early 2000s, uh, Tom, who who was a former Kenner employee, uh, he had quite a bit of uh, 2D pre-production stuff that he had saved and uh, a sales list of of. You know, and at that point, there was a lot of original photo art still on it, which is how I got the art for the pilot. But he had, uh, you know, chromalins for the, the the Jedi and Power of the Force card backs, um, which thinking about now, it's just it's amazing that some of that stuff was still sitting there unsold um, at that point. And um, beyond that, I mean, there's there's, you know, there's proof cards. I have uh, the 77, which is actually it looks like it was cut from a bigger sheet. Uh, that one. It, in there, if you see it in the pictures, it has the color bars above it. Um, and then just a, a standard 79 back common proof card. Um, and then with Power of the Force, uh, there's the, the standard. Um, and there's also the production like, which is the one with the, the rounded corners. Um, and I think mine doesn't have the punch cut. So there's, there's little variations in, in proof cards. And in terms of the figure, 
I I was lucky enough to pick up a, a proto mold uh, back in the mid 2000s. So that's you know it's interesting in that that figure has uh, I believe it's the Han trench coat's arm instead of uh, as I think one of the arms instead of the regular straight B wing pilot arms uh, and it's hand painted. So that that's one of my favorite pieces and one I've had for for a long time. And then there's there's first shots out there as well. Um, I've seen a couple like the one I have where it's the the head that's painted, but the rest of the body is is unpainted. I mean that that's that's pretty much it. There's there's stuff for the coin as well. I have some of that, and Tom Tommy Garvey has has some of that as well. Um, so th- there's a not it's there's actually quite a bit for for a character from the end of the line. So it's 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 nice that a lot of that stuff was kind of saved, and that at the point that I got into collecting it, it wasn't as desirable as it would be today. We've just been talking to Bon Salvatore, as of, as of yourself recently, with regards to the wax-on, wax-off sculpts that uh, he did the vlog <laughs> about. Any possibility at all, I mean, I don't know if the B-Wing pilot was a wax or whether it was acetate, but any possibility at all that that was perhaps moulded into the A-Wing pilot? Yeah, so I I know, uh, speaking with Ron, that Bill Lemon did the, did do the sculpt for the, the B-Wing pilot in um, in acetate, which is it's pretty remarkable given how many, you know, usually with those kind of sculpts it's very kind of linear and, and straight but uh with all the the detail on the on the figures like suit and things like that i thought that was really impressive um and with the a-wing pilot being quite similar i, I could easily see them being in terms of how they were developed being related i mean the final the final products are, are you know different obviously but i think i could see them kind of coming from a, a common point of creation if that makes sense you've really surprised me there the b-wing was done by acetate because just, yeah, you know the folds and the legs and the, exactly, the arms would yeah. have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, that's it's. I, I definitely would not have, have guessed that. So, um, but it's great to, to know. Yeah, lack of fine detail. Detailing. <laughs> come on, come on. Yeah, what's he going on about? <laughs> I'm going to write him a letter later. <laughs> <laughs> well, all saying it. <laughs> have you gone down the pre-production route with the actual ship as well? I know you've got a, a box flat. Which looks stuck. Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, so with with the ship, I have a, a proof sheet for the for the package, which is ginormous. And then uh, yeah, I have a box flat as well. Uh, and then a, a first shot of of the ship itself. Um, that it has some some differences. Nothing nothing major. But and then you know really it's more. I've, I've been picking up a lot of the photography related stuff for, for the ship. Like I was mentioning those those kind of slides. Um, and transparencies. Uh, there's a. I have a nice transparency of of the original artwork for the the box for the B wing. And then one of my kind of favorite strange items that I picked up. I think it's Celebration Five. I have the set of slides that shows a young kid kind of playing with a B wing and Tie Interceptor. And uh, they came from uh, from a counter source that, that Todd Chamberlain um, had. You know got a bunch of photography and slides from way back. And uh, in terms of how they were used, we're not really sure exactly. They, they could have been used as some kind of focus group thing or, you know, some kind of internal presentation. But they just, they don't really look like they would end up in anything published, which which just is very curious. Um, but they're, they're kind of fun. So there's like, I think, a, a set of six of them or so that, that I was able to pick up. But no, I mean, I think the original art, I think, is out there as well as, you know, I'm sure there's like a painted sample of the ship itself, but that's at this at this point in time, it's it's like it's beyond just to know that it might be out there is great. But um, no, that's pretty much it for me. Is there any pre-production pieces in anyone's collections that you're aware of that you need? Um, yeah, I mean, like I've seen a, a painted hard copy. Um, the wood pattern exists, doesn't it? Steve? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, the wood pattern, which I 
was you know lucky enough to see it. Uh, that's that's from Todd's collection, and I think Gus might have a piece of that as well. So it's you know there's other stuff out there, but yeah, I mean I'm I'm really really lucky to to have been able to, to put together what I have. Uh, it just wouldn't be possible <laughs> anymore. Before I close this, I wanted to. Are you familiar with Star Wars Tracker at all? Somewhat. I, that, that's the site that you guys use for for doing market stuff, right? Yeah, basically. Okay. Uh, there's a chap called Jared that's he takes every price off eBay and mm-hmm. auction houses, and he puts them into the system. So it's got every sale listed in the last couple of years, and um, mm-hmm. he runs an average. So something that you do on your show, I just want to uh, do here. I've, I've, I've taken the prices from the 1st of January this year until today, okay. the 9th of April, and I've got the highest, the highest, the average, and the lowest of some of the items. And, okay. Rich, you haven't seen this, so perhaps uh, compete you against, against the B-Wing man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, these are in pounds. But let's just start with, with a loose, loose B-Wing pilot. Okay. What do you think is the average that a loose, complete B-Wing pilot has been selling for? Steve, let's get, let, we'll, we'll let you go first. Okay. Um... I'm going to go $13. $13. No idea what that is in English. Rick, <laughs> what, is that, what is that roughly? Um, that's about £10. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I'll try and uh, I'll stick with that. Rich? I'll go, a little, I'll go a touch higher because I think the weapon's been a bit of a, a tinker to find recently, so I'll probably go with £12. I honestly haven't sent Rich my notes, Steve, okay? <laughs> but it's, it's £12.31 is the average. But what do you think ah. the highest... Loose B-Wing pilot that sold on eBay this year. <laughs> uh, and is this just loose, not not graded or anything? No, no, ungraded. This is just loose. Okay, good. Oh god, um, I'm just gonna go crazy and say fifty pounds. Rich, it wouldn't surprise me actually. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go a little bit lower, though, forty. You're gonna go a little bit more forty when he said fifty. I said a little bit lower. You know, be lower. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> translate, translate. £60.82. No way. Doesn't even... <sighs> I don't care how mint it is. That is just... It's just <laughs> it makes mental. no sense. <laughs> and the highest graded loose one was £51.96. So someone's... Oh, a, wow. But okay. I don't grading. The, the average for grading was £37. I just, just don't understand. Jeez. I have no... No. So what about the coin? What do you think the average the coin is selling for? Loose. Okay. Um, I'll go with £18. Rich? Um, I think I'm going to go a little bit lower. £14? £11. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> there, has, there, was, there was two that sold below a pound on eBay. See, that, that's like, that's more in line with what I was thinking. Like, and the, the highest, it was, it was £32. So Jeez. Quite a, quite a difference. Kenner, Return of the Jedi, 79A. Okay. Okay. So, ungraded, what do you think the highest has been and the lowest oh jeez um let's see ungraded um i'll say 200 pounds for the high and then for the low 15 pounds <laughs> right and rich for the low i'd say probably 30 pounds and for the high i'll go 120 actually the highest was was only 62 pounds oh that's been okay this year the lowest 24 pound 84 but right. what I found quite interesting on this is the, the average is £40.20. The average okay. for the same figure graded, this is just the average. What do you reckon the average is for the same figure graded? So the, the ungraded was about 40 you said? £40.20, pence, the average for ungraded. What do you think the graded would be? 75 <laughs> Rich? I'm going to say it's probably about the same. I'm going to go £40. 
£297.89 is the average. Uh, Where where do you stand on grading, Steve? Because that, to me, is just ridiculous. I'll say with grading, I I really don't see the the point. I don't know. I've never been... I understand, like, getting stuff authenticated. I I see a a value in that. But in terms of of grading stuff, just the the artificial value that that tends to to add kind of doesn't sit well with me, I'll say. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, it's, it, it, I just, it's not for me. <laughs> even with, even with the B-Wing, it's the same. The return to oh, yeah. 79 back, mm-hmm. the average loose, um, ungraded is £24.28, where grade is right. £199. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, if that doesn't say artificial value, I don't know what does. Uh, it's just ludicrous. <laughs> okay, lo- last one then. Winner, winner takes all on this. We're gonna <laughs> go. Kenna, Return of the Jedi, 77A. It's debut card, yeah? Okay, yep. We'll go. What do you think the highest was, the lowest, and the average? So, Okay, I'll say average. Uh, I've already forgotten what the, the last one was. Uh, I'll go with I'll go 65, and then for the high, I'll go 275. And for the low, why don't we go with 35? Rich? Yeah, £30 for the low. I'd say about £80 for the average, and maybe about 160 for the high. Wow, you, you've both gone pretty high there. The um, the lowest sold was thirteen pound ninety five. Whoa! The average is only twenty eight pound fifty four this year. <laughs> upgraded, and the highest sold on it, the auctions or eBay's, was only forty seven pound ninety six. Wow! So hey, sensibility. Is, exactly, you can still buy Star Wars stuff within. That, that's because <laughs> Tim's flooded the market by selling his collection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's that's true. I will say that that's probably a valid point in terms of it being a pretty easy thing to to, to come across. I remember a couple, maybe a couple of years ago, there was a, an eBay auction for an entire case of Power of the Force Beaming Pilots. It's like, yeah, of course, there'd be some of those sitting around still. <laughs> I think um, Ian Sanderson purchased that, didn't he? I, oh, yeah? <laughs> it was my first ever interview, and he talked about that he'd bought a shipping box of um, B-Wing pilots. <laughs> I don't know whether it was it was that box, but uh, yeah, that meant I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. But he told me he was going to keep hold of them. The sly old dog, if he's put them out. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, see, finally, if everyone was being moved to another planet due to the end of the Earth, and you could only take one piece from your collection, what are you grabbing? I mean, this is, I'm going to try and cheat a little bit, but so I mentioned my my childhood X-wing with my beat up B-wing pilot. If they could come together. I would take that. If I had to take one or the other, I'd, I'd just go with the figure. We'll um, let you take one. We'll um, let your okay. We'll let your partner <laughs> partner take one as her. Uh, so. Okay. All right. That's fair. <laughs> and of course, mentioning your partner, impending marriage this year, haven't you? So massive congratulations. I hope that's thank it. you. Yeah, it's, well. it's coming up very quick. Um, but yeah, I'm. I can't wait. You're not come to celebration due to the wedding, are you? No, unfortunately, I I, I went to the first. London celebration back in 2007 and I had a, a great time. I just went for one day because um, we were I was passing through with my family and uh, I really wanted to go but it's just this year is just it's, it can't happen. Well Steve thank you ever so much it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you guys uh, for, for having me it's it's uh, it's been a blast. Well thank you ever so much Stephen P. Danley <laughs> don't miss that out thank you ever so much for taking your time tonight. Alright you got it. Cheers Stephen did you see P. Danley it's B. <laughs> <laughs> B man, you're not B. Is it B? Joe? It is B. Yeah, I thought that was a. 
Listen. I thought that was no. I thought that was a sky esque jab. No, no. I've listened to B. everything. I've always thought it was a P. No, no, it's it's B. <laughs> well, there you go. I've listened to seventy one episodes of uh, <laughs> the card cast and never picked that up. Well, thank you so much, mate. It's been a uh, pleasure to have you on. Yeah, sure. No, no, no problem. mix it up and if there's something which you think you guys need to talk about this please let us know probably miss some cracking stuff out there but what we've got for you in this new acquisition section is an awesome selection of vintage stuff i wanted to start off with as i always start off star wars forum uk the spiritual home of this podcast and on page 1900 it was savory 100 he puts up a post which is a vintage, what he thinks is a vintage point of sale R2-D2. And he asked the question, is it? And I looked at this and I thought, well, it looks a couple of feet high. It looks a bit battered. It's cardboard. It's just one-sided. Hmm, I wonder. So I contacted him to say, don't worry, Stephen, we'll get to the bottom of this. Now, let's see if we can't figure out what you are, my little friend. And where you come from. And, uh, and he's like, oh, brilliant. OK, well, Grant has actually already contacted me. What's going on with this? Has he got a vintage point of sale here or what? Well, it's like a it's a standy, isn't it, with R2-D2. So I started investigating it whilst I contacted Stephen. I was convinced that it might be a uh, factors standy, but it actually turns out that this is a uh, standy that was... It's a bootleg standy. Yeah, it's a bootleg from the 1990s. Oh, Sorry, Made by Mark... <laughs> no, no, wait, 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 it gets better. Made All by right. Mark Daniels. No way. Yeah. Oh, Mark, sub-level. Sub-level, who we interviewed two months ago. He made these in the early 90s and was selling them on his store with all his uh, you know, sub-level studios, vintage toys and all that. And he made about 15 of them, as well as 15 Stormtroopers, for about £20 each, and they sold. Uh, so, yeah, this is actually a bootleg made by Mark. Thank the maker. Mark was working in an advertising agency at the time, so he had access to all the printed materials. He actually used the image from the Art of Star Wars book. So, yeah, Steve's got a sort of vintage bootleg store display, which I thought, wow, you know, check that out. All these years later, and it's come come back home. I actually thought uh, Factors, uh, which is a company that produced a lot of the early uh, Star Wars collectibles, they did a lot of cardboard cutouts, so things like uh, C-3PO, Vader, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. So I actually thought it was might be one of those, but it wasn't. And those actual standees were taken over by Kenner to market the very first release of the Star Wars toys back in 1978. That's like a, you know, point of sale, big displays. Uh, so I thought it was one of those R2s, but it wasn't. Um, I also thought it might be one of the R2 standees. If you remember in the early 90s, it was all these standees sort of came out in one big go. They had like a collection of about 30 of them that came out before the special editions. Yeah. So it might be one of those. But no, it's an actual bootleg, uh, early 90s standee that was actually made by friend of the show and friend of the forum, Mark Daniels. Oh, what a <laughs> great story. Go on, sorry, was that, was that Pete? Is that black and white? 
Looks, I'm not sure. It looks like black and white. I don't know whether it's something to do with the toner or or. But it, it's yeah, it's it does look pretty too toned, isn't it? Oh wow! I bet Mark's I bet Mark's delighted in, in some respects that that's gone full full circle and ended back with a uh, a collecting buddy of his. So that's awesome. Yeah, page page nineteen hundred. <laughs> page 1904 i just want to give a quick shout out because i love this guy's ingenuity and it is poncho he's got the budget mint on card collection what, what he's got here is he, he's buying cut cards and then placing them on top of card backs so just from a you know from a foot away from a few feet away it looks like a really really good mint on card and he's doing it at an absolute great budget but there's one thing which is amazes me with this and one thing i'm really really chuffed with before I actually say what it is, I'll just put it out there. Is there anything you guys can think is really good about what this guy is doing? Preventing the U-grade. Yeah, absolutely. Bang on. What I just think is, is perfect. He's delighted because it's a great addition to his collection. And he's stopping these people, getting these cut cards and just U-grading them. So, yeah, awesome. Poncho, mate, it's a great thing to do. And actually... Hopefully, it'll give other people a really, really good idea that you you can have a really great displayed Minton card figure, which is actually made up of two cards. But that could just be your little secret. Nice. Yes, yes that, that, that gets me thinking, really, about uh, about little projects like this, where you know you don't have to you know, go down the route of opening it up and cracking it open and all that sort of stuff, and you can actually preserve a, you know, a part of you know Star Wars history. I think things like that need to be It'd be nice if there was like a central place where people could kind of put this this sort of thing and and say that you know actually you know this is what you can do you can be a bit more you know um, creative with preserving you know vintage Star Wars items you know well, rather than you know opening and destroying. Well, that's think, what the uh, that's what usually what the forums used to be for, wasn't it? It is, but I mean, it, you know, I mean by you, know, uh, uh, you almost want like a, a permanent area where you know. Things that you can do to not ruin things, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But um, I, I think this is a brilliant idea, and I think it should be promoted everywhere. And say, look, you know, actually, that's a pretty good thing. So you got a cut card, get an old card back, that which I know a lot of collectors don't really, you know, a lot, a lot of people sort of dismiss uh, used card backs and say they're two little items you can put together, and it looks really cool. Yeah, check it out, page nineteen oh four. I know exactly what you mean, Pete, and I think what you, what you mean by that is because. You're used now to the whole Facebook thing of they've got a group for absolutely everything. But then going back to what Grant was saying about this is what the forums are for. I don't know about you guys, but I'm just completely inundated and overwhelmed with Facebook groups right now. I love them. I think some of them have got really, really good part to play. But I'm being added to these ones, which I don't want to be added to. And it's like, oh, a Facebook group for a cool miscard, which isn't a Jabagoon uh, and various different miscard, uh, Facebook groups. And now, you know, this is the, the joy of the forums. The, the stars from UK's Tantive Elevens, etc. Um, and it's great. So you can see that. You can see this one, as you say, page 1904. Phenomenal. Great idea. Good on your poncho. Is there a Jabba Goons Facebook group? <laughs> I'm going to start one up. Yeah, you will. I'm not going to be a member of it. <laughs> I'm going to add you as an admin. <laughs> You're going to do that as well, aren't you? Yeah. Right. Okay, cheers. Still on page 1904. I saw this. Great, just completely got my attention. Picture this, everyone who's listening. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Toys Stocked Hair sticker. It's it's brilliant. He's got this Palatoy Junkie on page 1904. It's a great, lovely big sticker. Inner frame, pride of place. 
He's just put it on the thread saying it's the first purchase of the year for him. He said he's not seen one like it before until it showed up on Vectis a few weeks ago. And actually, it was the guilty one who bought it and then sold it on to him at exactly the same price he bought it for because he didn't need it. Now, Pete, you're into all sorts of stuff like this, and you've recently been into a shop or two. Star Wars mine. <laughs> really, Jess? Well, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm... you know, the, la- the last phenomenal podcast where you went and interviewed the old toy shop seller. So, you know, does this flick your switch? It, yeah, well, it does. I mean, I mean, I've, it's been hard to find information about it because apparently it hasn't really been seen because they were obviously used. So these were given by, I'd assume, Palatoy empl- uh, people to the shops. And, of course, they were stuck onto things. I mean, apparently it was it was kind of listed as a, well, it's referred to as a window sticker. But unless you're going to ruin your window, because it, obviously you put it on there, it's going to stick on your window, you won't really get it off. I'm surprised it wasn't a front-facing sticker. But um, it's also listed as a door-stroke window advertisement, which is a bit interesting. So I guess most of these would have been stuck onto things and very few remain. That's why, I mean, the fact when when someone like Grant says, I've never seen one of those before... Um, I'm quite shocked. So it, yeah, it is, it is probably quite a, well, I doubt if we see too many of these lying around because like, like I said, they, they were used in the, in stores. But I mean, where would you put that? I know exactly where I put that. That would go in its frame, which he's had beautifully no, done. No, so. no, no, not, not, not you. I mean, <laughs> not you, but, but where would you, in a shop, would you put that? I mean, you just like randomly stick it on something. It's just kind oh, of a bit. I'd put it on school. the back, I'd put it on the back window of my 14 year old Vauxhall Vectra. <laughs> I'm glad you said Vauxhall Vectra then. I was like, where's he going with this? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I meant Vauxhall Ferrari. All oh, right, yeah. But yeah. apparently it's not that big. It's only around about A4 in size. Yeah, it's big enough. It's beautiful. I mean, it is. It's, it's stunning. It's, but I, I don't know. When, when I saw it, I just imagined it being massive. Absolutely you know, enormous I, thing. I can poster. picture. As he said, it's on the door. It's on the door. You're there. It's Saturday, right? You've just got your 10p mix-up bag of sweets, and you've just gone off to get your look-in magazine, right? Highlight of the day. Uh, you've convinced your mum or dad to give you, you know, some extra money. You've got some pocket money, and you go through the door. The door which has got the little bell at the top, which goes ding, ling, ling. As you go through the door, that sign will be on the door. Oh, I can, I can picture it now. Oh. That's only, I mean, that's the only place it could be in it. I mean, within a toy store, if you walk in, it's going to have to be somewhere when you first enter. I think it's quite an, uh, uh, an intrusive sticker. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, I mean, I guess it might have been on maybe the underside of till, you know, on the uh, the bottom of like your till. So, uh, you know, as you walk in and you've got everyone queuing up, you might see it there. So you go, oh, are there Star Wars toys here? Hmm, good. And go and find them. It's, uh, I know, I'd, I'd, been, I'd be fascinated to see where, where their shops put it. Because you put it on a window, it's just going to leave a big mark when you try and take it off. Because it's, it is a sticker back, isn't it? It's not a sticker forward, so it's not something you put on the inside of the window to show outside. It's you stick it onto something. Yeah, it's, mm. oh, it, it, it's I mean, I asked him about it, and I said, "Right, give, give me some stuff." And he said, "Well, it's the same small era as his Empire logo store hanger, 1982." He said, "So sadly, no Palatoy logo. That would have been great, wouldn't it? Which is the same as my Empire Palatoy shelf talker." He said, Mark, this is the guilty one, reckons there's no earlier Empire store display, so no logo examples in existence. To get a logo store display with a Palatoy logo, you have to get the Star Wars era of Toys of the Film example. So, yeah, he's saying that it's not got the Palatoy. There's no chance unless you go right back. But, 
yeah, when when you've got people like Mr. Criddle saying, I haven't seen one of these before, then yeah, you, <laughs> you know, know it's rare. Something's pretty special. You know it's rare when Grant's not heard of it. <laughs> Congrats, mate. He's delighted with it. I think the framing he's done is, is fantastic. And to finish the answer I was giving you of where do you put it, that would be on the the door, the door to my Star Wars room, just as a little hint, a little flash of the flash of the sock. Flash uh, anyway. of the sock. What the hell was that? I don't know. I've just gone off. I'm just flashing flash. my you know, sock. That young just, lady. Just flashing, flashing the ankle. You know, flashing the ankle of come into the Star Wars room and see what you can get. I think is amazing. Would don't you have worry a flashing ankle. <laughs> Once again, none what of are you on about? Like, it's not, it's not going in the edit. Right. Flashing so. your thigh. It's the thigh, you no, goose. No, 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 it's not a thigh. That's just a bit rude. Well, flashing that's, that's ankle cool, is a lot more subtle. It's just, hey, look what you could have won. Well, flash, flashing your figure. Flashing your, Flashing your plastic. Right, come on. I'm going to say, come on, let's crack on before Rich does. <laughs> right, so then, we're up to page 1910. Hooch. Now, this really took my interest because he put some slides on there. Um, Revenge of the Jedi Ewok slides. Now, I can see a low grey Chief Chirper. I can see a Paplu. Now, I've had a little look. Not tons of information around, and they refer to in the various books as 35mm. Rich, you're really massively knowledgeable about this sort of stuff. So, um, what do you know, mate? Well, I wasn't until I did the research, because you're right, there's not a huge amount of information out there. Now, I was going to start off with a question for you, Jez, but I don't think you're going to know the, know the answer, because it's longer than five inches. So oh, I'm going oh, to have to chuck it out of the other ones. If you rolled out an entire 35mm print, okay, for a two-hour movie, how long do you think that uh, print would be? To have a guess, anyone. How long do you think would you expect that print to be? I don't know. How long do you think it would be if it was all rolled out? A mile. It's actually 11 kilometres, which is what, about 8 mile? Oh, what? I was close. I was close. Now, now when you're talking about num- um, numbers like 8 miles, and then if you think about how many how many prints of these would have been made for all the theatres to show the films, it just goes to show how many film cells there must be out there. And as I said, 24 frames per second, you know, that that's a lot of film cells. So I had a look to see how difficult these film cells are to get, and they're incredibly easy. There are thousands on eBay. There are thousands on places like filmcell.co.uk, and there was another one called filmlimited.com. And the start for about a pound, which I think is great for five film cells, ranging all the way up to, you know, the big presentation packs that are about, you know, nine pound each or, or maybe a bit, a bit more than that. So film cells is really something that I'm going to start looking at now. Now, initially, I, I thought, right, how are these made? You've got your 35mm reel, and then they're snipped up in the little slides. And I thought, you know what, I'm a little bit uneasy about that because it's destroying a bit of history. But then when you do more reading, you realise, well, these prints are not going to last. They're going to deteriorate. Um, and obviously, because of went digital now, they're not used anymore. So I understand that by cutting these up and then putting them in some kind of, you know, archival case or whatever, it's going to actually protect the film which is, you know, hopefully going to keep these um, these slides, these films around for a lot longer. So I'm, I'm less uneasy now than I was. But you're totally right. He's got three cracking Ewoks there, and obviously we know that Hooch is an Ewok uh, focus collector. But the names that he got on there by the guys who took the photographs, we've got a Ralph Nelson Jr. and we've got an Alba Clark. So those were two photographers on Jedi, and I did a little bit of research on those, 
Now, Alba Clark, he was involved in a lot of photography for other movies, and I believe he, he actually became a director of some small movies. But Ralph Nelson Jr. is actually really interesting. Anybody heard Ralph Nelson Jr. before in any kind of context, other than Star Wars? Well, Ralph Nelson Jr. was actually the creator of what was known as Project Xanadu. And I'm pretty sure you're going to go with Project Xanadu. I still haven't a clue what you're talking about. But Project Xanadu was actually the precursor to HTML. So we've got Ralph Nelson Jr. to thank for helping kickstart HTML, which obviously helped kickstart the World Wide Web. So what an amazing piece of history that Ralph Nelson Jr. has got. It's not just Star Wars, but for something that's actually literally changed the world. Nice one, mate. Yeah, awesome. Impressive. Going back to what you were saying earlier on about the eight miles worth of 35 mil film cells, these yeah. are in Revenge of the Jedi uh, holders. Yeah. So does that mean that Hooch has got something slightly different here? I believe that a lot of these um, transfers have come from trailers, um, not just the movie as well. So what I don't know is that I don't know if the trailers were labelled um, Revenge of the Jedi when they were shown before other movies because the trailers are also cut up in the film cells so they may not have actually been actual film prints they may have been trailer prints I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely certain alright okay. I, mean, I asked him and I just said right Scott what's going on where, where, where have you got these from um, and, and tell me about them and he said right prices for 35mm slides seem to get around 50 US for Return of the Jedi and Revenge slides bit more for Empire Strikes Back but like anything, if it's a main character and a scene pick, it can get more. He said he's seen plenty of sh- slides showing random scenes from the films with no markings on the cover go for less than 20 US dollars. He said he knows Kim Simmons, the man who shot LukeSkywalker.com, sells copies of his, his original photographs for more, but then naturally they've got good provenance. He said he's not sure about numbers of each, but some wouldn't be that rare. His Wicket slide was included in the Ewoks press kit. And he did manage to uh, pick up a complete kit on eBay for around £20. Considering the price of some of these, um, people are paying you know, at least double that now for your Commonwealth Guard and uh, Jabagoon Mint on cards. I think it's a great addition to uh, a collection and just something really, really cool. And, and the fact that it's got Revenge of the Jedi on, no one's going to argue with that, are they? That's pretty sweet. Right, so I moved on to page 1912, and it wasn't just Star Wars Forum UK. I saw this on a few different sites because, yeah, by golly, it needs to be shown, it needs to be seen. Hello, what have we here? You look absolutely beautiful. You truly belong here with us among the clouds. Kavok had his Empire Strikes Back, 18 back, Meccano, Boba Fett, Minton card. Yes, picture the scene. Now I've got your attention. You're going to go to page 1912 of Star Wars Forum UK. Even those people who have never been onto that site before. Page 1912 and you are going to see a very rare piece. The square, Mikano, 18 back, Boba Fett. Lads, did any of you see this or was it just me? It's beautiful, Jazz. It's a beautiful thing. I have never, ever, ever seen that ever, ever before. It's ridiculous. I almost feel like we're privileged to see it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know it existed. No, I haven't seen this before. It's the business. It's got the uh, it's got the yellow and red Meccano logo, bottom right. It's a square cut card. And at the end of the day, yeah, we see the Jawa ones, which are amazing. Occasionally, you see a Ben one and a few others. But to see this, it's it's just brilliant. It, it's really really cool. Kavik, he put it on there saying, so this showed up days ago. I never thought I'd ever own one. 
It's opened at the left bottom corner, but still displays great. It took for ages to get it. 42 days in transit. He said it was a wreck the whole time, of course. He's slowly recovering now. He hopes we like it. Yeah, we definitely do. A very, very desirable card back, this FET, although it's it's not the rarest. But it was a debut card back, wasn't it? Because wasn't FET not available on the 20 Meccano back? That's great. It wasn't available on the Star Wars back. Yep, so it was a debut card back for the Meccano card. So that, that really is a, a go-to item for Boba Fett collectors. Yeah, man, yeah. nails. Yeah, it's also highlighted. I looked at a 2010 thread on Rebel Scum site by Joe O'Brien and it was highlighted in that thread as one of the rarest carded figures. Uh, there's a bit of a debate on there to say that the Harbour Boba Fett was rarer but it was it was w- of the list the Meccano Boba Fett was one of the rarest ones mentioned but I think any, if you look at the, any of the Empire Strikes Back Meccano square carded figures that were was released at the same time as it the Yoda IG-88 Lando I think uh, Imperial Commander Han Hoff Luke Bespin Leia Hoff and the Rebel Commander, you, you you don't see any of these come up for sale ever. I mean, we're talking uber, uber rare. Interestingly enough, though, I spoke to uh, Stefan Forcourt because, you know, as soon as you have a uh, Meccano question, who's the best person to go to? And uh, Stefan said, you have to remember that the British Paddy Toy um, market was a lot bigger than the French market uh, at the time. And Meccano, because it was a subsidiary of Paddy Toy, was actually uh, making stuff for the Paddy Toy market and making that a priority before the French market. So with all those factors in mind, the market, even back in 1980 to 1982, was really small, let alone 35 years later. So Meccano were making stuff for Palatoy as opposed to themselves? Yeah. Yeah, I know. So stuff was getting made in France to keep up with the demand for stuff in the UK? That is correct. He says, as you, as you know, Meccano was a Pally Toy subsidiary and they were producing and packing toys, vehicles and carded figures for Pally Toy and production often went first for Pally Toy. Wow. So, and also the French market was a lot smaller. So if you put all of those together, you start seeing the picture when you got really rare uh, Empire Strikes Back, you know, 30 backs. Yeah. You can imagine how rare these square Meccano cars are. I wonder whether with the square Meccano, you know, the French always do their own thing. Like <laughs> yeah. you have like PAL for video and yeah. NTSC and yeah. you know, the French had CCAM, the square cards. That's very French, isn't it? It's, yeah. Yeah. Like, but, you know, they that, that's why one of the design capitals of the world is Paris, I guess, because they can just pull it off with some flair. Um, well, it, the, 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 the really good idea about having a small car, which is something that... Um, Hasbro have tried recently is by having the smaller card you can fit more toys on the shelf well you you can't really take it away from Poppy then because they nailed that whole concept didn't they oh yeah smashed it it looks phenomenal as I said everyone check it out page 1912 of Star Wars Forum UK they really are showing off some seriously cool stuff right now I just um I did say to him just give me a little piece of information man how many we were talking about rarity he said he would say there are at least two sealed ones and maybe four open re- resealed ones in different conditions again this one is open in the left hand corner now that is a rare mint on carded figure we are moving on april the 23rd april the 24th i was doing some little jogette you're all it farthest from having a great time An old Waltham Wookiee 
He strolls in there with a wallet full of cash and comes away with 12 Trilogo mint on cards. Now on page 1913, he has an image and it looks brilliant. A four by three grid of his Trilogo mint on cards. Hang on a second. I'm 93. I've just got to get my glasses on. So what am I looking at? A Trilogo Luke Jedi, a Chief Chirper, the Emperor, Asat Driver, Dengar, Lobot, Prune Face, Darth Vader, 8D8, Reese, Rankle Keeper, and Zuckus. I mean, I know which one I think I'd like. But guys, which one would you go for? Grump? Uh, for me, mate, the, the a lot of good carded figures there, actually. Uh, but for me, the, the, the cherry is definitely the, the Zuckus. Oh, Zuckus, right, okay. Ridge? Um, none of those appeal to me, but I would say the at at driver because it's probably the best card back of the ones you've just spread out. Yeah, I like, I like, I like the at at driver try logo. One of the ones I got. Now, Stu, come on, man, tell me about this. Did you, did you see what you got? What, what would, the, what's the best one and which one would you have got? When he told me he was looking for a couple of try logos, I didn't think when I had a chat with him because he's gone down that route of trying to get a complete collection, but to buy 12 in one hit. I do actually have five of those on try logo. So really? if I was going to add one, I would like the Lobot, please, Jez. Lobot, right, okay, okay. So we've got Zuckus, Lobot, and Atat Driver, Petey Weety. Uh, I, do. I like the fact that the pictures are always of the full body shot. So, uh, I mean, the prune face looks hilarious because like, his legs look weird. Uh, but I think because it fills the, the bubble out a bit more, I, I have to say the Darth Vader is the most uh, nicer of the cards because Trilogues always it kind of rattle around a bit. Yeah, in the bubble because they're not like fixed and tight in there. So, that like, they always scares me that if I, if I you know move it a bit too much, it might pop out. So Darth seems to be quite secure and snug. Oh, security and snuggles is is important to you. I get that. I get that. Absolutely. If you're going down that route, why haven't you chosen the Rancor Keeper? <laughs> yeah, but he's you know it's a bit boring, and his hats off, and that's going to cause more disruption and damage. Darth's just there. He's all in one piece. He looks like he's, like I said, he's nicely snug in there. What a steal, though. Imagine that. Just going somewhere. I'm glad I'm glad you all asked me what I would go for. Um, but you, 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 <laughs> you just imagine that. You, yes, you, yes. You, but, but we all know. Yes, it's mate. Chief Chirper, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not Chief Chirper. I would surprise you. I Go on. All You're lookalike Lobot. No, they're very good. Grant, which one would I go for? Lobot. <laughs> Richard, which one would I go for? Um, Boba Fett. Steve, save this. Boba Fett, where's Boba Fett? Boba Fett's not there. I just assumed he was here because he was that common. (laughs) (laughs) He won't let that go, will he? I think you'd go for Prune Face because your face has got a bit pruney since your 94th birthday. Yeah, that is true. No, actually, I was going to say Dengar. For some reason, Dengar on a Trilogo card. I don't know. I just just, uh, don't see that that often. I just thought, yeah, go for it. Yeah, just a tip for any sellers heading off the father's farm. I mean, James Martin's just proved once again that he's absolutely loaded. And then with his intention of purchasing two cards, he's actually went and bought 12. So any sellers who are heading off the father's farm, get your stock out, grab a hold of James. Um, don't forget the guy's totally loaded, so you don't have to give him discounts or anything. And, you know, there's, there's, your, mon- there's your money made. He's going to thank you for that. I just hope James doesn't get a forest from on a motorbike or something, because that would be really tricky for him. But there we go. So then I went on to Tantive 11 to check out what we've got on their page. And it was on page 15. 
First of all, it was Dr. Dengar, Marco, who posted a picture of a boxed Leddy snowspeeder. Such an iconic, such a brilliant ship. Just thought, right, there's only one thing we can do. We need to phone him up. So I'm pleased to say Marco's with us tonight. Yes, here I am, all the way from uh, the Netherlands. Thank you guys for letting me in. Well, thank you very much for coming along and welcome, welcome back again to the Vintage Rebellion podcast. Please tell us about this uh, Lily Leddy snowspeeder. It is uh, fantastic to see on page 15. Yeah, it's, it is a fantastic item and I'm really over the moon with it. Um, also, when you look at the box, there's so many fantastic things going on on the box. Um, it, it's uh, it's the box with the blue background artwork. Eh? There's the, there are two snowspeeder artwork, the one with the purple background, one with the blue background, and the little Let Eye version has the blue background. But on top you see uh, the logo. It says El Retorno the Jedi, and it's quite peculiar because uh, this is the only vehicle and the Darth Vader TIE Fighter which came with the El Ritorno logo and all the other playsets and vehicles they have the El Regreso, uh, the Jedi logo. You think, does it matter? Well, it's interesting. Um, it's not something like, uh, say, the difference between the Revenge of the Jedi and Return of the Jedi. I talked... Um, to my dear friend Horacio, and I asked him, what's the difference between uh, Retorno and Regresso? And he said, Retorno is if you go from A to B to C, and then go back from C to B to A. So literally means you go, you make a return, like a U-turn. And El Regresso is more like a return in more metaphorical style, like a comeback. And that's really what it means, of course. Eh? So Return of the Jedi, when you translate it well, at least for, say, the Mexican Spanish, it's not El Retorno, but El Regreso. That's why the logo was soon changed from El Retorno to El Regreso. However, after the Snowspeeder, it's a very early release, uh, and it never made it back in the El Regreso uh, series. So there's only the El Retorno, the Jedi box. And that's also probably why it is a very hard item to find. Um, what is more interesting, if you look at the title of the Snowspeeder, it says, uh, well, the English um, text is also there, Rebel Armored Snowspeeder, but then it says in Spanish, it says, and I hope I pronounced it well because my Spanish is not, my, uh, not so good, it says, Halcon de las Nieves. And if you Google translate it, it means something like Snow Falcon. Well, how cool is that? It's not a Millennium Falcon, this is a Snow Falcon in, for the Mexican kids in the 80s. So really cool, I think. Now, this particular one, I agree. I just look at the box and the colours are very, very bright on it with the blue background and the sort of the pinky red label. How long is it you've been looking for one of these? Um, I've been looking for it for five years. Um, I saw a few uh, loose uh, vehicles. But I'm a mint-in-the-box collector, uh, so I really wanted to have uh, a complete one with the box. And also including the inserts and the instruction, and that's a real pain, of course. And So I was really happy uh, that um, also my dear friend uh, Cape Town, Emil, he pointed me to uh, for sale trace on the Star Wars uh, Forum UK, and um, there it was, and then um, that's how I got it. And one more thing which is interesting, uh, if you look at the... The artwork, uh, you can see uh, 
scene from the from the from the hut. You see uh, Luke X-wing. You see rebel soldiers with Town Town. You see rebel commander, uh, rebel commander, two one B and R two D two with sensor scope. And the funny thing is, the only thing which was released by Little Ledi, uh, or I should say Little Ledi, uh, was the snow speeder and the rebel uh, commander. There were no town towns, there were no rebel soldiers, there was no 2-1-B, there was no r 2 with sensor scope, there was no layer hot, no hand hot. So it, it looked like the whole hot uh, scene was more or less, well, less represented than, say, the Jedi, um, Return of the Jedi movie. Which makes sense, of course, because it was already 1983 when they released um, these toys. And at that time, the Empire Strikes Back movie was already uh, three years old. So from a marketing perspective, it makes sense then to make toys from the latest movie, so Return of the Jedi, and not to stick too much to uh, Empire Strikes Back uh, theme vehicles and figures, etc. And if I can prolong, what is really interesting, um, the Rebel Commander was the one figure which you see on the, on the display art which was released. Now, if you go to um, uh, 65 back and you look at all the uh, Return of the Jedi figures which are on the back, and uh, you can see that most of them, except one, were all released by Lily Lede. One was not on the list, it was not released in the Return of the Jedi line. It has something to do with, I think, that's a wild theory, with the figure which was released on the, on the art display work of the Snowspeeder. It is a Rebel Commando. It was the only figure which was not released, never released by Lily Ledi. And the funny thing is that Rebel Commander is the only figure which was released by Lily Ledi it's the only figure from the hot uh, hot uh, hot series, so I'm not sure. This is just a wild guess, but I can imagine that maybe in the communication between the Lily Leda factory in Mexico and uh, maybe Kenner and Southeast Asian factories, which had the steel molds at that time, they made had some communication mix-up, and they said, "Well, yes, uh, please send me our Rebel Commando steel mold." And they get Rebel Commander instead. It made kind of sense, because why else would Rebel Commando not be released as the only Return of the Jedi figure? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I completely understand that. Talking about the actual vehicle, because that's what was the interview about, of course, um, it's also different from the, from the Kenner or the Pelitoy counterpart. Uh, everything is different, actually. If you look in the details, uh, it's a different type of plastic. Uh, you can uh, see that very clearly if you look at the, the gray parts, so the, the harpoon and the, the pirate seats. They are really this typical really dark gray plastic, um, like, like the guns of the cloud car pilot and the guns of the speed heads. They're all always dark gray and therefore also rare. And the same um, is uh, the case with the, the type of plastic they use for the harpoon and the, and the seat of the snow spear. But also the stickers are different. Um, I can't show you here because this is all audio, but, um, um, but you have to believe me. And also the type of uh, screws they used. 
Lily um, Lily always used, I think they call it in English, uh, flat screws, whereas Canon used uh, crosshead screws. Also, if you have a Lily Lady R2D2, you look at the bottom, there's always a flat screw. Wow. Most of the times, the Canon figure has a, a screw with a, with a crosshead. The same is the case here. So it's nice to see those differences which you see in the figures, in the figures' accessories, also back here in the vehicle. Yeah, that's kind of cool, I think. Yeah, man, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, Marco, is this uh, collecting journey that you're on? Are you just looking for Lily Letty, mint in box uh, ships and vehicles? Yes, I'm, I'm focusing on the on the loose figures, um, um, but pretty much done there. And also uh, figuring of uh, focus on the the minting box uh, of Lily Led. I am all pretty much uh, almost completed the journey. Still need um, the shuttle, and um, and that's it actually. Yeah. What's the um, what's the hardest one to find actually minting box for the Lily Lady? Uh, this one is uh, is hard to find the snow yeah. speeder. Five years definitely. Uh, for sure. Um, what about think, the, uh, the Darth Vader uh, on the Return of the Jedi? Because that's the only time that the Darth Vader TIE Fighter is on the Return of the Jedi box, isn't it? The Letty one. The uh, Retorno version, version, so the earlier version is, is more rare and also difficult to get uh, compared to the Regressor version. That's correct, yeah. Um, also from the Mini Rigs, in my experience, the AST-5 is a bit more difficult to get uh, than the other uh, Mini Rigs. Like the ENT4, um, uh, that's in the yes, not MLC but CLM they call it in Mexico. Uh, they are um, easier to get than the uh, AST5 uh, for sure, in my experience at least. Uh. Well, Marco, it's a fantastic piece. I assume you've tested it. Everything's working and it's fully complete. <laughs> no, I, I I I wanted to test it. Uh, um, but uh, I had no batteries. Uh, so what I can do is uh, when I have batteries, because I'm also curious, um, I expect there will be small differences also in sound, uh, maybe even in lightning in, in the color. Yeah. Uh, so it will be best to do the videotape uh, this, the say Kenner snow speeder versus uh, Lily Lady snow speeder. And then I will post it on the on the Tentive uh, 11 forum. Um, then um, I can send you a link. Uh... Yeah, please do that. Well, thank you very much once again. And on behalf of the lads, we uh, certainly hope to have you on again uh, in the future. Yes, hope so too. Uh, next month. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Marco. Have a nice uh, evening, uh, guys, and uh, good luck with your podcast. Really nice listening to it. Uh, so looking forward to, to the next episode then. Oh, how fantastic. That was some great stuff coming out there. And do you know what? I quite like getting people on, on new acquisitions. Maybe we might have to do that some more. But still, what else did we have on page 15? Check it out. And it wasn't just on page 15. It was on Stars Forum UK. It was on Rebel Scum. It was on Tansive 11. It was on TIG. It was on Facebook. I don't know anywhere where it wasn't really. It was Hell Hippies, Brown Haired, Luke Skywalker, Pock. Now, this was such a big deal, and he was quite clearly over the moon about this. Some people refer to it as, as chocolate brown. Uh, and, yeah, there are different variants. And you've, you've got the Kenner chocolate brown. You've got the Pock. So I contacted him, and I just said, like, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because 
on pretty much every podcast now for the last six or seven podcasts, we've been saying that we need to get some POC and PVP um, specialists on, some subject matter experts on to actually lay it down and just explain a few things. And I said, tell me about him. He said, I've been after him for quite a few years and he made a deal with a huge POC collector. He was not cheap, but it was a fair price as on the rarity scale of one to ten, he'd give him a solid nine. I asked him if he had ever heard of a carded one before, to which he had said, no, he's not seen a carded one. However, many moons ago, he may have seen a picture of one. He couldn't quite remember. That's how rare this thing is. He said, secondly, he's a category two figure. And so there's category two, class two, meaning a merger between Kenner and PBB parts. It appeared that Spain never produced their own Luke Farmboy head with brown hair. So what you've got here is a combination of, of Kenner parts merged and bolted with the POC stuff. So he said he's got the same mould defects found on his head as all other dark-haired Luke farm boys produced by Kenner. And you can see these mould defects quite clearly, as I said, in pretty much every forum post. But he's got the POC pale hands as well as a pale neck. And this is a great giveaway, telltale signs for various POCs. Indeed, I'm looking for the Luke X-Wing POC with the um, really pale hands. It's got a poor sonic welding, standard, but it is the classic plastic extrusion between the legs. Have any of you guys seen this? Often known as Luke's, can I say penis? <laughs> Luke's flashing may be a better way of seeing it. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Luke's, um, Luke's ankles? <laughs> I would be slightly confused and concerned if you had an ankle where this extrusion oh, is. Uh, Luke's sock? <laughs> Luke's, maybe oh. Luke, Luke's sensor scope? <laughs> uh, I don't know, but there's a... Luke's a, pop-up uh, saver. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should go with what, what Rich said, uh, Luke's flashing, because obviously... Yes. That is a technical plastic term for plastic which hangs off the edge of the, you know, which doesn't isn't cut off. That would be a beautiful thing. That's it. So, so if I combine all of those things, Rich is beautiful. Flash. So here we go. So we've got a a, a beautiful flashing pop up saber penis um, underneath Luke. That's that's fantastic. Um, and he's got pot greenish painted pants. Or, or trousers for those of us in the United Kingdom. He said it, he's got really loads of bubbles in the paint on his example. And the legs have also got very sloppy paint on the neck belt and hands. He said these are all POC traits. Obviously, their quality uh, control wasn't necessarily as good uh, back then. And he's mentioned along with the CAO, which is like all POC, is um, Hong Kong. Market value nowadays is six to eight hundred American dollars if you can find one in good shape. And it's, uh, it's just a classic piece. He's, he's obviously delighted. I just think it's fantastic to see the, these pox out there. And uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted for you. So uh, congratulations. You've been after one for a while. And um, yeah, good on you. I went on to TIG, the Imperial Gunnery Forum. And on page 26 of the latest acquisitions for TIG, a walkie had added this picture. And I just thought, what is that? Where is that from? I don't recognise that. Is that sort of some sort of concept thing? Is that is that a bit of pre-production? Is that the bit which actually was meant to go in between the 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 front of the Millennium Falcon? What is this? And then it was only in the second picture that I saw something which I thought, hmm, hang on a second, could be this? Could this be a droids thing? What's sir, droids? It turns out that it's a droids ATL. 
Interceptor. I saw this and I thought, actually, that looks kind of cool. I'm not a Droids fan myself. Um, unfortunately, I think it would have been better if the A-Wing fighter would have been a Power of the Force toy instead of a Droids toy. But the ATL Interceptor was originally going to be a Return of the Jedi toy. This was actually going to be known as the Death Star Defender Vehicle. Uh, Lucasfilm sort of allowed uh, Kenner to invent vehicles for the droids, so... And uh, this vehicle actually made its first appearance in the droids episode Escape to Terror, which is around about 20 minutes in. So um, I've got actually got a little bit of a clip here as well if you want to play it, just just so marks where the ATL Interceptor makes its introduction to, into the Star Wars world. We're stuck! R2, give me weapons power. Droid fighters. Intercept! Intercept! They're useless against the Trigon's weapons. No! The weapon systems are not yet activated! Okay, what's also really interesting, uh, Tim Vekoven, which is a friend of the show, remember Tim from, he did an interview with us on episode 5, I think, of the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he did a, bl- a blog about this uh, on StarWars.com, and he was talking about how the uh, the droids side gunner, which is another droids vehicle, uh, that was on the uh, an episode called the Trigon Unleashed, and in a, an episode called The New King. Droids Cartoon also has the Power of the Force sand skimmer in it as well. Don't seem to remember ever owning a droid. I I can't remember these from my childhood. I mean, well, when I say my childhood, I understand that I am 104. Um, but can any of you guys remember these as a as a kid? Well, they, they, I mean, they didn't actually come out in the UK That's as far as I know. Droids really reached the UK in about 1988. Now these were released in 1985-86 in the states. So. I think, uh, for some reason, Droid seems to have a big following or a big push in Spain. Really? Yeah. There's uh, there's a lot of unique Spanish items, so I'm, I'm unsure why that is. Uh, but, you know, checking this out, I went on and looked at some of the old uh, Droid's episodes, and you see some stuff in there uh, that looks a lot like the designs of a few things that turned up in the prequels. Well, uh, for, well for example, um, you know General Grievous's bike? Yeah. Yeah, that is in the Droids cartoon. Something really super similar to it, as well as uh, some of the uh, sort of transportation droids from the uh, the furnace factory scene in Attack of the Clones. Those are in the Droids cartoon. So I was like, whoa! I wonder, you know, th- is this just by accident or is this inspired? I mean, what, what, it's a bit of a link here. See, I want to say right. I'm going to go and check out the Droids cartoon. <laughs> but I've been so busy recently, I haven't even watched oh, all, the, all, all the extras on the, on the Star Wars oh, Force mate, Awakens Blu-ray. Don't, don't bother, I prefer to watch Harry Potter than Droids. Really? No, I'm, oh, it's I'm, awful. <laughs> These aren't the droids you're looking for. I was quite amazed actually how much little um, bits and pieces it does on the old ATL. Got a few well, little gizmos, isn't it? Well, we talk about the ATL, and then what, what does the ATL stand for? And I, I don't mean, you know, Air human rights and stuff. Interceptor. Air to land interceptor. So what it does is it's in the air, and then it goes to the land, and it intercepts stuff on the way down, like a sort of single-role fighter jet might do. So it then can't be a land-to-air to land interceptor. So 
Is an air-to-land interceptor a glider? Is it a ship-dropped glider? Well, it, it doesn't do that in the cartoon. It flies into space. It flies... So so it's a land-to-air land interceptor? There's, there's no saying that it started off on the land. It could have gone air-to-space. Air-to-space. So how would it refuel? How would the pilot get in it? Uh, Midichlorines. Metachlorians, uh, naturally the answer to everything. And I just think the whole air-to-land interceptor is a bit is a bit crazy. And there was a couple other things which I just thought not overly happy about this. Again, from an aircrew point of view, and I know that when I started saying about the whole B-wing thing with its rotating cockpit, which would just completely freak out a pilot because the pilot would be like, right, which way's up, which way's down, where am I? All I want to know is what my horizon is and where I can go so I can lay down the pain. The air-to-land interceptor. Where are the guns on this thing? Stu, you told me about the gizmos. Where yeah, are the guns? It's at the very, very front. Um, <laughs> it's, it's basically a little barrel thing which comes at the very, very... It's a stupid place, isn't it, really? Well, it's, Have you it's, got a picture of it? Yeah, I've got the picture. I've got, so I've got a little gun at the front. The guns under the side, on the side of the little wings, when those little front things pull forward, the yeah. guns are under, on, you know, under the flaps as well. Yeah, you got, got multiple guns. Well, well, it has. Yeah. So let, let's just have a little look at the catalogue description. And I have to say that I've taken this catalogue description from very own Star Wars Collectors Archive. Here's another great vehicle the droids and their masters can use to patrol the galaxy. The ATL Interceptor is a droid vehicle that on first sight looks very passive. But don't let that fool you. When a lever is activated on the back... Wings pop down and side cannons appear on the sides, turning the ATL interceptor into an aggressive vehicle, one that would make even uh, the meanest mobster run for cover. The front landing gear is also retractable, and the vehicle holds most of all Star Wars droid action figures. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you're flying along, right, as a big badass um, Star Wars dude, from the droids range and suddenly someone you've got a quarrel with comes in your way and rather than just blast them into a million pieces you've got to be like oh hang on a second let me get my lever down oh right i'm just motoring my wings down oh now 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 the wings have just passed my cannons i'm just about to sh- oh i've just been blown up personally from a military point of view i think the atl interceptor vehicle is flawed yeah i totally agree with you jez but you know it's science fiction who cares uh, yeah, fair one, fair one, fair one. Right. Has anyone seen a picture of the box of this vehicle? Yeah. It looks to me <laughs> like... I, it looks to me like something I would have done on my Toshiba MSX back in 1989 or whenever it was I got given that computer. Um, because it, it, it's got the ATL interceptor with the wings down firing at another ATL interceptor and it looks like someone's just photoshopped this cartoon head which could have been anyone's head just looking out the side of it looking at you it doesn't look like production packaging it looks like some real budget and scarper piece of merchandise it really really looks lame yeah it's um I think it's supposed to be Thal Drubin, but it looks more like Sloth from the Goonies and um <laughs> If you actually have the toy, there's no section on that toy where there's a little window for someone to poke their head out. There's a <laughs> cockpit and that's it, so it doesn't make any sense. It's hideous. Yeah. The the whole thing is just... Um, I, th- I think when the wings are down, it kind of looks like... Um, it almost looks like Ed 209 or whatever it is from Robocop. I'll tell you what it does remind me of, Jez. Um, yeah? 
I, I, ignoring those front things that sort of flop down, which I have no idea what they're for. But what other space franchise does that ship remind you a little bit of? Can you think? Alien. No. Well, no, I was said, that, no, you just that, said to me, what does it remind you of? And it reminds <laughs> me of Alien, so I was right. <laughs> I was thinking of Battlestar Galactica, the, 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 the Viper ships. It looks like a poor man's version of one of those. Yeah, no, I, I was still right. Um, alien. And, and possibly... <laughs> and, and possibly even... What's the other one with the blue alien who I find a little bit sexy? Heat. <laughs> Avatar. Avatar. Cocoon. Avatar. Yeah. Avatar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, good cover. Um, so, so on the whole, ATL interceptor, Walkie said that it was the last one he needed, um, the last one of the three. And as we've said, it's the a- ATL interceptor, A wing, and the droid's side gunner, uh, which is another crazy, crazy one, which we'll come on to another time. Um, to me, the A wing represents part of um, the original trilogy, and therefore, I think I like it. I think I'm just an original trilogy snob. Yeah, I wonder as well, maybe it's because it wasn't out in the UK, maybe the countries it was out in, you know, there's more reason to collect it, there's more nostalgia or whatever. Yeah. Seeing that though, Jez, just confirmed to me that when those cartoons came around, to me, I'd had enough with Star Wars stuff. It's like, <laughs> no, that is for little kids and, you know, not 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 the toys as such, but the whole droids, Ewoks kind of line. It was something I did watch, but, you know, it was, it was like, <laughs> There was no affection for it, so... I remember watching droids and thinking, oh, I'm sure the Phantom Menace will be fine. I think those new droids are going to work out fine. Now, Grant mentioned the fact that it had a cockpit, uh, and we'll be talking about the box. Now, if you look closely at the cockpit, you'll notice that it's got a B-wing figure in the cockpit, and I, I think, personally, it's pretty obvious why they have an action figure from that line, and why probably the B-wing pilot as well. But do you want to explain to our listeners why the B-wing would be in there? I would like to give it a guess, uh, and you could say it's one of two things. One is, yeah, because they want people who have got the B-Wing pilot to think, ah, that's somewhere where I can put this guy. Or was it quite simply that this came out before the figures? Because the A-Wing, I don't think the A-Wing pilot was in the droids line at all, was he? He wasn't in the droids cartoon at all. No, he wasn't in the cartoon. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and the, big, the big wing pilot was there. I mean, I don't know why specifically the big wing pilot. They might wanted to keep the A-wing specifically to the A-wing. You know, they weren't going to lose, obviously, the X-wing pilot. So probably that stands to reason why they would have used the B-wing pilot when I think about it. But it was purely because the droids figures weren't ready. The droids figures weren't ready to, you know, uh, put in the in the in the shots and then take the photographs for the for the box work. And it was probably pointless hanging on until the figures were ready as well because. You know, they had they had the picture of the the cartoon character on the top at right hand corner. And and you're right, it probably wasn't, you know, the the complete ideal one they'd want to go with, but uh you know, get it out, get it on the shelves and get it sent off. But there were there were things inside the box as well, weren't there, other than just the the uh, ATL interceptor. There were maps, the planetary maps, which we haven't talked about yet, the three different planetary maps that you could collect. Now what I don't know is is the differences between the Kenner and the Glassleet. I don't know if the ATL interceptor was different. The box obviously would have been different, but I don't know about the the interceptor. And I don't know if the planetary maps were different either, but there were three planetary maps to collect, uh, which were the Death Star 2, um, Tatooine, and Endor, which were available in those uh, boxes. Now, where are you getting your information then? Because most of my stuff, which I'm getting, which includes things like the planetary maps, 
is on Star Wars Collector's Archive. Are there, are there any other decent places to get your stuff? I think I found a lot of this on Rebel Scum Forum in, in searching. Because obviously I, I know that everyone's going to go to the SWCA, so yeah. try and dig a little bit further into it. Oh, right, of course. Now, people keep on forgetting stuff like that. Now, we're, you know, generally a lot of people are the Facebook generation, and it's sad to see that people have moved away from Rebel Scum. But as you say, yeah, that is a fantastic resource. So just by using the search function there, you've got actually quite a bit uh, of in-depth stuff. So, yeah, fair play. Cheers, Rich. They're up for sale if you want them. Pete, just out of interest, I mean, what, what are we talking? Because a loose A-wing nowadays, I mean, we're talking between, oh, I don't know, about 150, 200 quid, I think, for a loose A-wing. So what are we talking about for an ATL interceptor? Well, loose, um, not too bad, actually. You can pick it up between, well, average is around about 44 quid. And um, for a boxed one, um, averages £150, so not ridiculous, but there's not a lot of them around, it seems. You would have thought that there'd be loads around, seeing as only about three people bought them when they came out in the shops. <laughs> well, congrats, Walkie. For a while, whilst the wings were still up and it was hiding the cannons, I had no idea what it was. As soon as that button was activated and the wings slowly came down to reveal the side cannons, then I recognised it as still another ship that I had seen but I had no recollection of. We'll move on. So, the final thing which I want to talk about. Facebook, GDE group, the French group. And I was delighted to be informed by Matteo, who had said, Jez, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but check this out. And Matteo, I'm glad, I'm so glad you did point it out, because you have found something which no one knew existed. He's put it on the Facebook groups. And he said, how do you call it when you find a Meccano item which has not been referenced in Stefan's book, when the item is Darth Vader related but has no example in Bill's collection, and when the item is a large size action figure which is not in Duncan's collection either? So we're talking fairly rare. It was the 14-inch Darth Vader, or in this case, Dark Vader, Meccano, absolutely special, completely unique, completely blown away everyone, in a box. Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honoured by your presence. So he's got this boxed figure with the Meccano sticker on it. I mean, what are we talking about here, Rich? I mean, you kind of interested in stuff like this? You're a bit of a 12-inch collector. I am more so now because I know of how many variations there are. I was talking to Lee Bullock of Father's Farm. Um, Grant, can you remember, was it you who interviewed him a good year ago now, how many variations he said existed? of box 12 inch um i don't but i was speaking to bill mcbride in uh speaking to bill mcbride online the other day researching this and he told me which ones were available just for the darth vader mm-hmm. the uh, lee bullock interview from about two years ago i think he, he said maybe about 80 odd different uh 12 back variations I, th- I thought it was in the 60s or possibly low 70s because at uh, father's form just gone lee said that the number now hit 82 so oh, okay. I'm guessing that that is included this because I knew that Lee was aware of this one. Well, there's if we if we just talk about the Darth Vader one, including this one there, there's uh, 14 known different Darth Vader variations when it comes to box 12-inch Darth Vaders. Two of those are prototypes. So you've got an Empire Strikes Back Toy Fair prototype. The only other Empire Strikes Back ones released before we knew about this uh, Meccano Empire Strikes Back sticker version uh, was a Toll Toys Australian one and the Bassa Peru one. This is all information, uh, as I've said, provided by 
Phil McBride because I couldn't find any. It's really hard to investigate uh, items that no one knew existed. <laughs> it's not the easiest thing to do in the world. So all in all, it's looking like there's about 14 Darth Vader, 12-inch, and this Denise Fisher slash Meccano uh, Empire Strikes Back sticker, 12-inch Darth Vader is the new new addition to that line. As, as Grant's got some little bits of snippets of information there, that's great. I believe, from what I found, and I could be wrong here, the Chewbacca was the only other um, yeah. Meccano item in the UK Dennis Fisher box bearing the Meccano import sticker. Is that still correct? I believe so. I've, I've not seen it with that Empire that The Empire Strikes Back sticker seems unique to that Darth Vader one. I'm not 100% sure on that. I've never seen that sticker before. No, I did get in contact with him, and, um, and I did say, right, how did you get hold of this? And he said it was found on Le Bon Coin, which is the French equivalent of Craigslist, the, the American uh, buying and selling group. He said the seller had three pieces for sale, a Meccano 12-inch FET, a Meccano 12-inch 3PO, and the Vader. He said the seller found it in the wild and had no clue of what he had. He's the kind of guy who buys old stuff at garage sales and flips them for a living. Sounds like fun to me. So needless to say, these were a bargain. And his friend Fabrice, now I really, really want to say this because he said this on Facebook, that he gave a shout out to his mate Fabrice for sending him a link to the listing whilst he was actually snowboarding with the kids. Uh, Fabrice knew he collected Meccano lifeside figures. He instantly called the seller whilst on the ski lift um, and he answered and he said the FET was sold and the Vader was on hold. Now, at this point, he was really, really crestfallen. He, he, was, he said he was really disgusted. He was really crestfallen. He got back to the hotel. He texted the seller and said, look, I really, really, really want this. And he offered him a considerable amount more and said, look, come on, please let me have this Vader. And the seller said, yeah, OK. So he knew exactly what he wanted. The seller got a good deal. He was happy with it. But as we said, this hasn't been seen before. It's, it's fantastic. It's on this Dennis Fisher box, black Meccano, Empire Strikes Back sticker inside, directly packaged on the French box, distributed by Meccano. Absolutely brilliant. Too late for Stefan's book. It's not on the archives, um, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be on the archives soon. But I just want to add to that, Jez, um, that this item also appeared on a French magazine or a French um, website magazine. Yeah, it did, and there were yeah. some really, really high-quality photos on there. You could tell by looking at the photos that the the weight on the sticker matched quite closely the weight on the box as well because there, were, there, were, there will be a couple of people who will be thinking, hmm, I'm not so convinced that this is what it is. It could be the sticker from another item, but I think that the high-quality photos on the shelf weight clearly shows to me that they did belong together. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm convinced exactly what you say. Was that the toysmag.com website? It was a French website. It was yeah, uh, toysmag.com. Now, I looked at this and I saw the photographs and I thought, yeah, oh, man. Uh, and I've got these photographs and I'm sure that you guys will be called that we'll just put them on the podcast. We'll just, sorry, we'll drop them on our Facebook group um, uh, as the month goes on. But I took every single paragraph from toysmag.com and I dropped it in, into Google Translate because I just wanted to see what it said. And it said, this is an amazing discovery worthy of the Ark of the Covenant that arose yesterday in a closed Facebook group. A doll, Darth Vader, 
Darth Vader French Meccano, distributed in France by the early 1980s, but in a very particular packaging, is the Dennis Fisher English box partially covered with a black and white sticker, French Empire Counter-Attack. You have to forgive me, this is the Google Translate. But it goes on to say it's a, it's a piece of beautiful, rare and exceptional. Uh, it goes on, it said pretty much what we've already said about the fact that Stefan hadn't seen it, Sansweet hadn't seen it, Bill McBride, uh, Arnold Grunberg, and, and it just goes on. But it's a really, really good, really good article. Toysmag.com for the last 20 minutes. It's amazing to see that even now in 2016, we are still seeing things come in which we've never seen before. What a fantastic new acquisitions this has been. We covered half the things which we did last month, but boy, we have seen some cracking stuff from some bootleg R2-D2 stuff made by within our own circle of friends and then found by someone else going through to find some great purchases then from some things which have never been seen before and some things which have stopped people you grading by putting cut cards onto card backs and then we've flashed our ankle in the droids line and seen the atlt but there we go it's another brilliant month thank you ever so much for posting what you've been posting i've really enjoyed looking at them but please for next month if you see something, or even if you've bought something, tell us about it and we'll look into it. Until then, see you next month. From Kenner's Star Wars collection, each sold separately, large-sized Darth Vader with his lightsaber. Princess Leia, champion of the rebel cause, with her defender Luke Skywalker. You can swing him into action on his grappling hook. And load Chewbacca's laser crossbow. Star Wars large-size action figures. Up to 15 inches tall and ready for action. Large-size Darth Vader, Chewbacca, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, each sold separately from Kenner. New Force Attacks trading card game from Tops. Challenge your friends. Master the Force. The fate of the galaxy is in your hands. Available now. The idea of me being on bubblegum cards. You know, I thought you had to have athletic ability to be a bubblegum card. So I enjoyed the merchandising aspect of it. You know, we signed away our likeness, so when I look in the mirror, I have to pay George a couple of bucks. Okay, welcome to this month's Oddball section. This month we'll be looking at an overview of vintage Star Wars trading card collecting. And to help me investigate this, we are fortunate enough to have Kathy Kendrick from StarWarsCards.net. Kathy, welcome to the Vintage Rebellion podcast. Thank you. It's kind of fun to be here. I think my first question would be to ask you uh, where your interest in Star Wars trading cards started. Well, I was eight when the movie came out. Um and I was lucky enough that one of my neighbors took me to see the movie because it was the sort of thing that didn't always get to happen in my family. We were not rich, so we didn't waste a lot of money on uh, frivolous things. But the neighbors were going, and they took a bunch of kids from the neighborhood, and it was wow, as as I think a lot of us recalled from, from that time period. 
And luckily enough for me, I lived four blocks away from a white hen pantry, which in America um, was sort of like a 7-Eleven back in the day. And they had a candy display rack where you could get packs that had gum and cards. And a few months after the movie came out, they started having Star Wars. They were only 15 cents a pack. And that was kind of in my budget. And you got five or six cards, a sticker, and a piece of gum. And to an eight-year-old, there's nothing better than gum. (laughs) And the cards were really cool, too. Um, So my sister and I, and she was four years older than me, um, would spend our money um, on the occasional pack of Star Wars cards. And that was kind of where it started for me. Eventually... I got a couple of Star Wars action figures at Christmas time. And, you know, I think I had Leia, Luke, I had a Jawa. I might have had Chewbacca. You know, just a few. My parents thought, well, it's odd that a little girl wants, you know, boy toys. But why not? Um, And Star Wars has kind of been part of what I have done since then. And that's kind of where it started. Fantastic. It's um back in the 1970s. Was what was trading card collecting big? I mean, it seems that uh, baseball cards. I always see reference to in in America the people would collect yeah. baseball cards. But was Star Wars like a the first TV film license to to go in this sort of direction? It wasn't the first. Um, so trading cards were not huge. Frankly, trading cards were being used. Um, as sort of a supplement to sell the gum. Really, Topps, uh, who did the Star Wars cards in America, uh, was a was a gum and candy company. And they just happened to put the gum w- with their baseball cards. And there was a, a division of Topps that was kind of focused on entertainment um, types of things. And they did some television shows. They did a lot of uh, oddball TV show stuff. And I'm trying to think of some of the brands that they would have had, but they were not hugely popular, but but they were sort of right. an inexpensive. So a candy bar would cost, you know, 25 cents. <laughs> and, you, and you didn't always have that. Right. Um, but the gum was 15 cents, plus you got these trading cards, and, you know, they weren't awful. Um, and it was really... Um, they had the previous year, I think, to Star Wars done a Star Trek set that bombed. They had previously done a King Kong set that didn't do so well. <laughs> they had done some uh, television sets like Davy Crockett um, was a big TV show over here. Davy Crockett. Um, and they had done a card set for that TV show. And some of the other kind of Old West TV shows that were popular had had trading card sets. Um, and you would get them and you would, you know, pin them to the spokes of your bicycle. You would, you know, glue them into a book. You would trade them with your friends if it was a cool character. But they were almost disposable in a, in a sense, in a lot of ways, kind of until you got to the Star Wars cards. That, that, that's so interesting that the, uh, especially for the evolution of tops, that the gum was the selling point. And now when you see where Tops are now, they're very heavily into the trading card world. Yeah, Tops, people think of Tops as a trading card company, but originally they were a gum and candy company. 
Um, and, and here in the U.S., they still do ring pops, which is, you know, a lollipop shaped like a ring. Um, right. And they and they had the Topps candy heads, which you and I have talked about before, um, that sold really horrible candy <laughs> inside yeah. of a little plastic uh, container that in in some cases looked like a Star Wars character, if you were lucky. Um, but they had a whole, you know, way of kind of promoting the gum. And it really was, if you go back to the Bazooka Joe comics, um, where the wrapper of the gum was a comic, that was meant to really promote, right. you know, opening another wrapper and and eating more gum. And so this, the cards kind of were that way too, except that, Obviously, you're putting a lot more design work into five trading cards and a sticker in a pack. Um, and so it really did slowly become the trading cards more than the gum. But for the longest time, it was really just another way to advertise gum. Oh, that's, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Um, Tops obviously seem to hold the vast majority of um, Star Wars trading cards throughout the hobby. M- many, of our, m- many of our listeners are... Vintage only collectors mm-hmm. were just sprinklings of collecting things that are, you know, post-1985. If we go back to the beginning, uh, Star Wars in the U.S., they, the U.S. actually, Topps released five sets, that's correct, yeah? Yeah, so originally Topps just did the Series 1 cards. And to be honest with you, Topps originally turned down the Star Wars license. All right. So, um... Fox, the the movie studio, came to them and said, hey, do you want to do this? And the vice president or president, whoever he was in charge of entertainment cards, said, no, we just did Star Trek. This sounds a lot like Star Trek, and Star Trek bombed. Um, In terms of trading cards, the movie was a hit. Um, So they really were not that interested. But the people who worked at Topps under that um, person were interested and wanted to do the card set and kept trying to kind of reconvince him. And Fox movies, you know, obviously they signed the deal with Kenner to do the toys. And Kenner also had a trading card division. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of their trading card division. I think it's Don Russ. And so Don Russ kind of got the right of first refusal right. because their parent company was doing the toys, did they also want to do trading cards? And they looked at it and said, yeah, this is not going to be a success. We, we're not interested. And so they turned down the trading cards. Um, and Tops kind of went and said, okay, you know what, we'll take a risk. And the rest is kind of history because there was the original first series of cards done in a very sort of traditional way that they did all of their sets, 66 cards, More than half of the cards, the back of the card has no text. It's just another image that makes up a poster. Um, Most of the images are just, here's a character from the film. The first grouping of characters is just the character name and a little bit of info about them on the back. Right. And then a second set, which is the actor's name. So instead of saying Luke Skywalker, it says Mark Hamill on the front of the card. Um, And it was really, you know, here are the actors. Here are the characters. Here's some scenes from the film. And here are the actors who portrayed those characters. And it was very kind of simple. It was released after the movie was released. So it wasn't 
They didn't even make the deal until the movie had been released. So it was a couple months after that these cards go out. And I don't think there was a huge, you know, anticipation that this would be a success. Uh, they were wrong, very much so. The cards sold massively. There were lots of reprints. So they would, you know, normally you print up, you know, 5,000 boxes, 10,000 boxes, however many, send them out. In those days, not to trading card stores, but to little things like the White Hen, the 7-Eleven, the kind of candy stores that would put them out on the counter. So the box was a display box designed to sit on a countertop and sell the gum. And they sold like crazy because lots of kids had 15 cents and just loved the movie. And literally, who cares about the gum? They were opening packs to see the cards, which was really not the norm at that period of time. So they came out with a Series 2. They came out with a Series 3. They came out with a Series 4. And finally, even a Series 5, which really all within the space of a year. And if you remember, the movie's released in May. So it's really a seven-month time period that these five sets of cards are being released to the public. Wow, that's a so the full set, the full five sets was 330 cards and 54 stickers. Mm-hmm. The blue, red, yellow, green, orange top set that we're familiar with in the U.S. was only in that short period of time. Yeah, they were all released during 1977. Wow. Uh, I, yeah. didn't know, I didn't know that. I thought that that would have been uh, the five sets led from 77, maybe up to the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. That's that's an intense no. amount of uh, uh, releases there. Yeah, this was really, this was unprecedented, both from uh, the trading card company's perspective, but toy companies for everyone who was dealing with Star Wars. It was a wow. You have to remember, I mean, Star Trek, which was immensely popular, they had done a card set for Star Trek just the previous year, and it had been a failure. They were left with leftover boxes sitting on shelves that, you know, the candy stores are like, can we return this? Or they're deep discounting them. They're, you know, dumping them in warehouses. Whereas with the Topps cards... Stores were calling and going, when are you coming out with more? When can we we get more? Um, The infamous Series 4 card set, which is the green border card set, infamous because um, some airbrushing work on a particular C-3PO card was perhaps not done airbrushy enough so that C-3PO seemed to be uh, more adult and excited than he ought to be. (laughs) That card set, when parents complained, hey, this card card is obnoxious um tops just said yeah well we're you know in the next printing we'll correct that and because there was a next printing um you can get that card in both variations yeah, yeah i was the, going to ask you first, about that um, the first card you know is is kind of obviously fun and the second card um you know he's been fixed the angle of the photo is corrected there's not more rarity to the first card than to the second card because they just did another print run, and there you go, corrected issue. Right. And that's the card number 207 from the Green Series 4 collection with the added appendage. Um, 
So, you know, when you look on things like eBay and you see the uh, the error card go for a higher value, is that is that incorrect to think that actually, um, you know, there's a there's an incorrect markup there that this card isn't rarer uh, than the the reprint? It, it actually is not um, rarer than the reprint. Tops didn't keep really good numbers on how much they were printing because they weren't really thinking of these as collectibles in a lot of ways. But the first print run would have been very large uh, because they'd already had these three previous huge hits of multiple print runs of the first three series. So they were printing a lot of these cards. So if I were to go on eBay today, I kind of guarantee that I could find at least one and probably more than one of those error cards for sale. Yeah. And it's not the same card getting sold over and over again. <laughs> you know, it's 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 not a, a difficult-to-find card. What's difficult to find is that card at a price that's reasonable because people want you to pay $15 for it. Um, in, in reality, that second printing card, there were probably fewer of those printed. So it's sure. probably more rare to find the corrected version, but nobody really cares about that one. Sure. Because it's, it's not fun. Uh, so it's actually, you know, that should be the card with a premium price attached to it. It's not. And, um, chances are if you have a complete set of the 1977 cards, you have the corrected version. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that is correct. Um, it just seems, I mean, do you think uh, this is a good way of gauging the impact of Star Wars from the amount of work and effort the tops have put in just in a small amount of time there? I mean, it seems... Unprecedented. I think it absolutely. I think it is. Um, you have to remember that the entertainment portion of Tops was a smaller group at the Tops company compared yep. to the sports division. They had they had done wacky packages and they had some other um, kind of TV show releases of sets, but they hadn't had a big success with a movie previously and they certainly never had done five series of cards in such a short amount of time for a single franchise right and and realistically um i don't know that any other movie franchise in that time frame would have sold as well sure And, and it's important to kind of remember hey it's not just tops in the u.s because tops in the uk issued cards um, you guys got the red border cards that were numbered funny, yep. <laughs> as we, as we like to say in the U S um, Japan got trading cards and that really was a tops, uh, affiliated company as well. So it's tops in the UK tops in Japan, which is called Yamakutsu. There was a, a series issued in Mexico and there were Scanlon's cards in Australia and OPC cards in Canada, and OPC is essentially a Tops-related company. So there was just this: Hey, where do we have a card company? <laughs> you know, we we bought this license. Where do we print cards currently today? Right. Let's print these cards up and get them out there. Let's get that uh, that sort of global reach. Yeah, I mean, to be printing cards in Mexico in Spanish for this movie franchise. I mean, that was probably a major change for Tops because they certainly had printed sports cards in Mexico. 
but I don't recall them having done any sort of entertainment franchises there. Yeah, I was interested in that actually. Is the because the Mexico well, all of the tops affiliated companies released uh, their versions of essentially based on the the U.S. template. Yes. Um, but are the Mexico and the cards from Argentina are they really difficult to come, to come across? Because I've never seen them for sale. Yeah, so the Mexico cards um, are incredibly difficult. And when I was first kind of exploring why the heck is this so hard, there's kind of a a number of reasons, partly because probably a lot fewer were printed. Uh, You know, it's just, you know, the nature of the beast is their main market was the U.S. and, and Mexico was just an extra market. They were given fewer cards per pack. So it was, uh, I think, three in a pack in Mexico. And at a certain point, there was apparently a warehouse in Mexico that got flooded that had had a lot of the cards in boxes in it. So a lot of, if you do find Mexican Star Wars cards and they're unopened, it's probably not a great idea to buy them because they're possibly water damaged. Right. uh, Which really unfortunate but I, I think a lot of those cards are probably sitting in people's collections um i think there's probably a lot of uh 40 something year old folks in mexico who have these in their collections and they're just not interested in selling them there's you know a little bit of difficulty in mailing items out of mexico to the u.s and other countries because of you know, corruption in the mail system yep and then there's just this you know a smaller number of cards getting printed and then this, you know, warehouse flooding, which, you know, may or may not have damaged a lot of the, the product that was originally created for Mexico. Right. Okay. Got you. The, um, really I, I think I have to point out as well for our UK listeners that we did get the, the red, uh, red set and a blue set. Yes. But we didn't get a yellow, orange and green. So, you know, I was wasting my, a lot of my time looking for orange, green, and yeah. uh, yellow sets, but we only got the red and the blue set, but with higher numbers, wasn't it? So so your blue set is exactly like the U.S. set, um, but your red set has some numbers that are different. So for whatever reason, um, cards were put in a slightly different order, and then they were numbered differently, so that you actually have cards with, you know, 66A. So you have slightly more cards than we than we did. But you guys were cheated out of stickers. Yeah. So some of your extra cards are actually images from stickers. Right. That's one of the things I was going to ask you. Is it Was it usual to add stickers to um, these card packs? And is, so, this, is this something they still do today? It, it's something they don't exactly do today. The Star Wars card set, if you look at the original packaging, um, the boxes sort of promote the stickers and it was really this, Hey, uh, we're going to be selling these, you know, we, we made this deal with Lucasfilm, which was actually Fox in those days. Uh, but we, we've made this deal to sell this movie franchise. You know, our staff went to see the movie. They thought it was great. They think this is going to sell, but how do we make sure it sells? And the stickers were kind of one of this, it, it says sticker in every pack all over the boxes for these cards. And it was really that it was, look, we're giving you a sticker every single pack. So previous entertainment card sets, there had been stickers, but it was more of a chase kind of situation where maybe every fifth or sixth pack, you would get a sticker. 
and it was like, ooh, lucky me. I got four cards and a sticker instead of five cards, and I still got my piece of gum. Right. So with the Star Wars, they actually did, you know, five cards and a sticker, and you're getting the gum. Come on, kids, buy these cards. And since they did it with the first set, it really kind of stuck for the next four sets, in the U.S. at least, that, yeah, let's definitely make sure we put in these stickers. So every single pack had stickers. Right, which, okay. Which was incredibly great for kids. Um, I can tell you, if you were to go to my mother's house right now, there is a bedroom closet that still has stickers on the wall of the bedroom closet because it was my sister's room and we would stick stickers up there on the wall of her closet. <laughs> um, and, and no one has ever had the heart to paint over them, but they're also, you know, never going to be able to be removed. My little school notebooks all got, you know, stickers put on them. Uh, you know, it was a big, they got used and they were, you know, just incredible. You know, it was like, yay, sticker. And you were really thrilled if you got, you know, the character that you wanted. So was it the only the U.S. market that had these stickers in the packets? I, for the for the original vintage sets, I'm pretty sure, yeah, because I don't think OPG had stickers for the Star Wars. Um, it, it was really a, a very U.S. thing. The U.K. didn't get them. Mexico didn't get them. Uh, I don't believe Canada got them. It, it was... Very much a U.S. thing. Uh, OPG for Canada, what, did they have a separate uh, subsidiary because of like uh, bilingual cards? Or Yeah, basically that is the reason. Uh, part of it, it, to be honest with you, part of it is it's easier to just have a separate company when you're in a separate country. Right. So Australia had Scanlens. Yeah. Every, you know, Japan had Yamakutsu. Uh, everybody, which I'm probably saying wrong, but everybody had their own company by country. And Canada, you know, their cards were mandated by law to be in both French and in English, which is great if you're a collector because, you know, they're they're really terrific to have, you know, Jan Solo instead of Han Solo. <laughs> uh, but um, if you're Canadian, you get cheated out of stickers. You know, sure, you got bilingual, but, you know, the vast majority of Canada uh, doesn't speak French um, and probably would have rather had the stickers. I guess it makes it easy as well not to uh, mix the cards up where you've got, you know, different cards from different countries. Because I think Canada only had three sets, wasn't it, instead of the five? Um, yeah. So Canada, like most of the other countries, uh, did not get the five sets. They just, you know, they did as many as they could sell well. Um, and I believe Canada got three, but they did get Empire Strikes Back. Yep. Which, you know, I don't think the UK got. Nope. And, you know, for whatever reason, Canada had enough, you know, purchasing power to get that. Um, Scanlon's got that. So Australia managed to do that. But you guys kind of got cheated. Yeah, it seems that OPG managed to get uh, both the license for Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Yes. So, you know, they did a fantastic job there. Uh, Scanlon's for Australia, did they only have the uh, set for the original Star Wars film? Yeah, so they got, you know, the one set. Or they might have gotten two. They might have had a red series. Um, but then they got an Empire Strikes Back and a Return of the Jedi. But again, um, whereas we had three for Empire, they did not. Where we had two for Return of the Jedi, they did not. Um, right. And, and part of the reason Empire and Return of the Jedi have fewer series isn't because they were less popular. It was, you know, that they did more cards per series and they actually, you know, kind of did it more thoughtfully. 
Right. I suppose that would have made it a lot easier as well, rather than having to release new series all the time, just to have, you know, one or two or three series rather than, you know, five to, you know, contend with. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem with doing five series was you have to come up with a new wrapper. You have to come up with a new box. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of artwork and things that has to happen and they were making really good money. So they were happy to do that. But for the, you know, follow on movies, it was probably more cost effective to, you know, not go crazy. One, one of the things I found really interesting with tops, um, was in 1978, they released their sugar free gum collection. Is this oh. something that is popular in America? Cause I can imagine being a child and wanting gum without sugar. No, it is not at all popular. Um, <laughs> it, it was it was sort of a, a newish concept. Right. So you started having you know parents thinking healthy, and there was a lot of you know dentists who were talking about sugar free gum as a way to be healthy. So sugar free gum was a, as a concept was starting to be out there, and and as a gum and candy company, they were trying to get kids to eat their sugar free gum. So putting them in Star Wars wrappers was one way to do that. Uh, was not a huge success. I mean, it, it certainly sold. But yeah, as a kid, you didn't go, ooh, please get me some sugar-free gum. <laughs> I, I, as a child, never even saw the Topps sugar-free gum uh, for sale in stores in my area. So that was a, a set that literally I didn't come across until I was an adult. And starting to go back and like... Hey, maybe I'll get some of these other cards that I never got as a kid. You know, I'm going to get, you know, tip top New Zealand ice cream promo stickers. Ooh, you know, <laughs> really, really strange things that were released for Star Wars. And it was, wow, there was sugar free gum. <laughs> I yeah. did not know that. But yeah. And, and I was, you know, eight, eight or nine at the time that that would have been released. Never saw it. Never even conceptualized it, never heard about it from my friends, nothing. It was literally, you know, in my late 20s to early 30s that I was like, huh, so there's this other thing that I have to try to collect. And it's not easy to find. Today, it's, you know, they're either people threw out their wrappers, which is possible, or a lot of them have damage because when you opened them, they, you know, tended to have this little tear location. Yeah, they're not, they're not easy to get. And they were not something that I can imagine was popular. Well, they're definitely uh, one of the favorite things I've got in my own uh, collection. And it was quite a surprise stumbling across them because I didn't know that they existed either. Um, it, yeah. does, it does seem, though, that at that time, uh, Tops were quite open to experimenting because they also released the, the, the large photo cards, the um, five-inch by seven-inch uh, film cards. Yeah, those were... Um an interesting experiment because those really were just cards. No gum. <laughs> right. That was, you know, that was purely we're selling you a card and it's sort of a mini poster size. It's really geared toward somebody who wants the image of the card. And yeah, it, it was definitely tops being more open to trying things out as opposed to some of these other companies that were not so big on that. Yeah, um, and, uh, and partly I think it was inspired by some of the things that you were seeing in Japan with oversized cards. Right, like the uh, Yamakatsu cards that came out for the original Star Wars film. Yeah, and they were incredibly popular, and, and more so, I think, with adult collectors. 
So whereas Topps really, in the U.S. in particular, thought of these cards as for children, I think a lot of these cards were not being collected even then just by kids. Right, okay. Yeah. I mean... and, and so that was probably not something they necessarily anticipated. And so these oversized cards are really kind of a nod to that, that teenagers and young adults and some not-so-young adults had an interest in collecting trading cards. Right, yeah, it seems um, in the vintage action figure collecting uh, hobby, uh, the collectors themselves, if they they do collect trading cards, but I have seen a couple of them pick up the uh, the Japanese uh, Yamkatsu trading cards. So there's there's something about them, I guess, that, you know, is attractive to the adult collectors. They're like, you know, oversized postcards. They, they are. They're, they're really more of a mini poster. They're bigger than a postcard. Their imagery is, is unique, the Yamakatsu cards. They are not the stock photo images that the studios released necessarily, um, which, you know, Topps definitely used primarily the stock images in that first card set. And it really took them almost until they got to the orange card set before they said, here's some behind-the-scenes imagery, here's right. some original artwork, they they started including things that were not stock images, that were not just, here's the theme of the movie played out for you in a trading card, which, again, kind of unusual for even the time period or for trading cards to, to kind of veer off of the, I'm going to present you this, this movie in chronological order from start to finish, done. And yeah. because they did so many sets, they started including some other things. Yeah, I guess um, great. When I when I look back at the the original five sets released by Topps, you know, three hundred thirty stills from the film. I think you know, six months out from watching The Force Awakens, I'm not sure if we've seen three hundred thirty stills of the film yet. You have not, <laughs> not even close. You know, that's, that's um, that that is a lot of uh, imagery that they released there. Uh, you know, and I guess the appetite was there, but it's quite—I'd say—it's quite unusual to see such an extensive list of uh, images. Well, and a lot of them were images that you don't actually precisely see in the film. So when you're taking and making something a trading card, you can't always present what exact the thing that was on the screen. So sometimes what you're presenting is a cropped version of that, or a a close-up version of what's seen on screen. So it's slightly different um, than, than the imagery purely from the screen. Right, yeah. Did they, did they also have any deleted scenes and things like that? Well, for the orange card set, um, you definitely get some starts of behind the scenes. So you see some things that, um, you know, George Lucas talking to people. Uh, you, you've got some scenes that you probably didn't see in that way on film. Right. So you do in the orange set because they really focused a lot on the cantina, all the fun aliens, but they also have, you know, at least two or three cards where it's George Lucas talking to the actors or the director talking to the actors or, you know, putting C-3PO's costume on him or working with Chewbacca's costume. So there's, just more sort of stuff going on. Um, I think the most famous behind the scenes is Alex Guinness's birthday celebration. Nice. So you've got them kind of raising a toast to Alec Guinness. Yeah. 
on a on a trading card for children. That's fantastic. So you know, it, it's clearly at that point not so much a trading card for children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You know? I never really thought about it that way. They, uh, they've really got a lot of here's how we made the models. Here's you know us putting makeup on a on a Wookie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which probably, I mean, I I liked it as a kid, but it really probably was more of interest to my dad um, to see some of that stuff than it was for me. I was more like, get to the pictures of Luke and Leia and the droids as a kid with those cards. And yet, you know, these cards were coming home with kids to houses where their parents and their older siblings and others were kind of going, oh, those are interesting. Let me look. Because Star Wars was very multi-generational and it had more interest to it than just for children. Yeah. And I think it had that sense of wonder that everyone wanted to know how they managed to make it. You know. The... Yeah. And, and prior to those tops cards, you didn't tend to have as much writing on the back of the cards that was interesting so the backs of trading cards tended to rehash whatever was on the front of the trading card right and with and with the first blue set of trading cards you get that and by the time you get to the orange set you're getting them talking about hey they built these models and isn't this cool and they're really kind of narrating a story about the making of star wars rather than just narrating the movie for you. Right. That's really interesting. Um, some, of, some of the stuff I actually see come online, which I thought was very unusual, was the uncut sheets of the cards and the stickers. Now, yeah, when... and I wish I bought them when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, so they were available. They were very available. And I, I think that's one of the myths of collecting the vintage is people think that those uncut sheets are rare. And that they're super rare, and wow, I managed to get this original uncut sheet. Somebody must have taken it from the printing factory or some other means of this coming about. Tops actually, even with the very first series, and for all five series in the U.S., sold these as a mail-away offer. So for a a whole $2.50 plus a Star Wars wrapper to prove that you had been buying their cards... You could mail away, and in about six to eight weeks, you would get back the uncut sheet. And it would arrive rolled, and you would get the uncut sheet, which some people, you know, cut up, <laughs> foolishly, because uh, you could. And some people hung it on their wall or tacked it up on a bulletin board. It was a, a mail-away offer. It was an additional way for Tops to make some extra money. And it was meant to be this, you know, sort of poster. It was really intended, like, here's a poster of our cards. But it's, you know, very easy to make that poster when you just roll an uncut sheet off and, you know, roll it up and drop it in the mail for 250 plus a wrapper to show that you had purchased some of their cards. Right. Okay, that's really interesting because I've seen them for sale on eBay and I... I naturally assumed that they were from the factory and thought, wow, that's a fantastic item. But Well, they're, they're technically from the factory. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. But they're not something that slipped off the factory floor um, and, you know, and was hidden away by a factory worker. This was a product that Topps was deliberately making. Um, and in the U.S., they did that for all of their um, Star Wars sets. So Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back. If it was a Topps-produced set, 
you could buy the uncut sheets. And I think that this is something that they've done with other sets of theirs for cards as well. It's just notable for Star Wars because people um, are so fascinated by Star Wars. Now, kind of ironically, these are not that popular because they're big. (laughs) They're difficult to store. Um, If you do, you know, frame it, it's expensive to put it in a frame. It tends to get faded by the sunlight. So there's a lot of, you know, disadvantages to the uncut sheets. So they're not hugely popular. You can definitely buy one on eBay at at probably a reasonable price. Um, But it's not a rare item and it's not, you know, some, you know, it got off the factory floor. This is unique item. Um, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of these were sold to regular collectors over the years. Uh, And many of those collectors apparently just kind of kept them rolled up and didn't display them or ruin them in some way, which is great uh, because they're really terrific, but awkward, awkward, awkward to display. Um, So you don't find many card collectors collecting them. Excellent. Uh, they're well, much more. They're much more popular with the non-card collectors who are Star Wars fans. Yeah, I have been. I have been tempted many times, but uh, it's good to know that they're not sort of you know taken out the back door of the factory or left over stock. But they were available. I didn't know that. No, yeah. Um, the advertisements are usually on the on the card wrappers. So if you have a an original wrapper from one of the card series. You may, you may find that like one in five wrappers was actually an advertisement for getting the uncut sheet. Right. Okay. Um, um, sometimes it was on the box. Sometimes it was on the card sheet. It was, it was a fun thing. Actually, outside of uh, tops, just touching on the, you know, the wider trading card hobby. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a large relationship between trading cards and food items. And looking on your website, uh, StarWarsCards.net. It's quite an extensive list. I mean, Wonder Bread did a set of 16. There was Tip Top Ice Cream in New Zealand, Lloyd's Made in the UK, Savory Ice Cream in Chile, York Peanut Butter in Canada, Burger King did a big uh, push in the United States, Kellogg's, High C. They've all done uh, sort of card promotions along with the food. Why do you think that trading cards and food promotions uh, went together so well? It's one of those odd things things where either a trading card or a sticker is really ideal to promote a food product because it's very cheap to produce and it fits inside the packaging without rearranging things too much. So you can either make it part of the packaging itself. So the um, Canadian candy bar packaging where the tray, the cardboard tray had the cutout for the candy, you know, for the card as part of the tray that you were buying for your candy. You're not having to remake the wheel in a, in a lot of ways. So to a certain extent, it's it's the simplicity of printing these, it's the inexpensiveness of printing these, and the ability to kind of sneak these into the wrapping or make them the wrapping itself that makes trading cards and stickers such a popular way um, to kind of push your food items. Right. Uh, And and most of these are food items, you know, geared toward children. And because they are food items and, you know, food item collecting, it's so disposable. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you find that a lot of the trading cards associated with these food promotions are a lot more difficult to, you know, get complete sets of? Yes, um, almost all of them are more difficult. But to say more difficult isn't always to say 
actually difficult. So the Wonder Bread trading cards, for instance, you can routinely and easily find those on eBay. Despite the fact that you really only got one card per loaf of bread, and there were 16 cards to collect. So if you conceive of being a child in 1977 in the U.S., where Wonder Bread was the the expensive bread, so you had to talk your parents into (laughs) buying a loaf of Wonder Bread every week for at least 16 weeks (laughs) in order to maybe collect the set you know now there was also a mail away offer for those so i'm sure many of those sets were completed that way Uh, but for for a lot of these products collecting the set in the time frame of the vintage era would have been difficult for kids to do and expensive in a lot of ways for kids to do so you would assume that not many of these were collected as full sets by kids in that time frame and yet Thousands and thousands of these still come up for sale um, on eBay and in other means. So people apparently did a really good job of keeping them, which is great uh, from a collector's perspective. The, the Wonder Bread set is one that you can easily still today get for under $20. It must be such a bizarre reality back in the 1970s of children pestering their parents to buy bread. Uh, tr- trust me, my mom was not going to buy me Wonder Bread, no matter <laughs> what was. Because it was the, you know, it was, you know, 10 cents or 15 cents a loaf extra for the Wonder Bread compared to the regular store bread. So she was like, no. I, I wonder in Australia how many. <laughs> not happening. I wonder in Australia how many children were pestering their parents to buy dog food and they didn't even have dogs. Just to yeah, you do. <laughs> now that that set that set is a very almost impossible set to get. Yeah. Um, I don't yet have one of those, even a sample in my collection. Uh, and I and I've had people tell me that they don't exist, and I'm like, no, I've seen them. <laughs> you know, I've actually physically seen samples, so I know they exist. Um, but, you know, people who grew up um, in that country are, will say, I was a kid in the 70s and I don't remember those. Uh, and it's like, well, but they do exist. You you probably didn't have a dog. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you did, your parents probably said, yeah, we're not buying the Purina. It's too expensive. <laughs> you know, sorry. Uh, but, yeah, you, you get a lot of that sort of um, the perspective of a child during these time periods is very different than us looking back on them today. So you cannot, you can often find somebody who'll say, well, I never saw those when I was a kid. Um, yeah, because your parents probably steered you out of that aisle <laughs> because whatever product that card was attached to was, you know, the premium, more expensive product, well, which, which is a shame. Well, I think one of the, obviously one of the big differences, um, I'd say in recent years, but it's actually been quite a while now, is the addition of the internet into trading card collecting. Um, do you see that as had, you know, that must have had a sizable impact on both the rarity and value of trading cards? It, it really has. Um, trading cards are one of those collectibles that don't necessarily go up in value. So if you go, to, if you were in 1977 buying a pack of five cards for 15 cents, and you got five cards and a sticker and a piece of gum. Today, those same trading cards, if you were to try to sell them on the Internet today, are worth about 25 cents per card to a collector trying to finish a set. 
and the sticker is worth a dollar, two dollars per sticker to a, to a collector who's trying to get that last sticker for their set. But if you take into account, you know, economics and all that stuff, that's not really an increase in value. Right. It's just, you know, it's held its own. It's still worth what you paid for it, but it's not really gone up in value. Now, if you look at something like, you know, a tip top New Zealand ice cream promo sticker, um, where you got a, an ice cream bar and a sticker, probably for under 50 cents, I really have no idea what they cost. Um, those have significantly gone up in value because New Zealand is a small country. Uh, these were in an ice cream product, so many of them got sort of ruined. Many of them would have been thrown out or because they were a sticker stuck to something because that's what children do. So those, now if you go on the internet, you're going to pay $15, $20 per sticker to get those stickers. So they have gone up significantly in value, and God bless the internet, you can actually find those. Right. When I first started trying to collect beyond the U.S. market, it was because I was a college student and had access to this internet thing. But, you know, my email address back in those days was my student ID number. And it started with a Z, and it was a number, and then it was at my university. Right. And the only other people on the internet at, at that point that I was interacting with were other kind of college kids in other places who were getting free internet from their from their college. And the internet was, you know, you connected over a 28.8 modem or a 14.4 modem, and there was, you know, the connection beep sound, and it was all very difficult. And the internet was not about making money. Yeah. yeah. You were you you were forbidden from, you know posting that you wanted to pay something or that you, you know, it was just not done. Um, so when I first put up my website, I was just putting up a website to help other collectors know that these cards existed. And originally I only had up, you know, the U S card sets. So I had the vintage U S card sets and I had the modern U S card sets because this was the, you know, the early period of tops kind of re-emerging into trading cards and i only started adding the quote-unquote foreign card sets because people who were collectors in other countries were reaching out to me and going did you know we had these in the uk too but they're different right <laughs> and, and literally the uk set was one of the first sort of awarenesses of oh they had these too but they're different and then the Canadian, it was, oh, and Canada had these, but they were different. And little by little, it was, oh, lots of people had these, and they were different. And it was very sort of, in those days, the Internet had news groups, if you're old enough to remember what those were. Yep. And, you know, rec art collecting Star Wars, rec art Star Wars collecting, I don't remember what it was exactly. Uh, which was really focused around the action figures and the vintage action figures in particular, also had this little kind of sub area where people were talking about things like the trading cards. And because it was the Internet and you didn't know where people were, <laughs> um, people would go, hey, when I was growing up, I got X. And, and you would start to research it. And research was difficult to do at that time. And so it was, let me put it up on a website. And let me just keep adding to this website. And I think, I don't even know how many sets we have listed today, but it's hundreds. 
And although a, a chunk of those are vintage era, the vast majority of those card sets are really kind of after 1986. Yeah, it seems that, I mean, I use your website a lot as a resource. It's been really helpful over the last couple of years of trying to find out what, what is out there and what I should be looking for. Um, but you can see after the 1993 Topps Galaxy set, it really takes off again. And it just seems to be, you know, through the special editions and the prequels, just so many sets every year. Yeah. And, and I've been very bad about keeping the set up, the site up to date so that, you know, the past few years are not even on there right now. And yet we've had a huge number of card sets sort of issued in the 2000s when there was no movie in the theaters. Sure. So it's like, wow, there's no movie out there until, you know, just this past year. And yet card set after card set after card yeah. set. Um, and it really is now not about necessarily being a promotion for a food product, although a lot of the card sets are. Um, but it is often just a card set produced to sell cards. Um and that still, you know, tops still dominates and the U.S. still dominates. But we do have um, some international. There is a Topps UK and they still put out some sets, not as many as we would like. And they're mostly, you know, top trumps type things. Um, but you do have, you know, international sets still happening. Yeah, it's um, it, yeah, it seems quite overwhelming at the moment. Um, some the of my most, the most of your most of the international stats are still really you know food promotional items, um, and it's it is it is very overwhelming how many food promotional items there are for cards or stickers or little trading discs and things like that. Yeah, I think as well there's probably a lot more markets a lot more markets out there now than there probably was in the vintage era. A lot more countries have, have come into the trading card world and that just, you know, makes it even even more difficult to, you know, comprehend the hobby. Well, and I think that more countries have come into the Star Wars world. Yeah. So, you know, in nineteen seventy seven, Tops essentially said, Do we have a trading card branch in this country? We're going to put Star Wars cards there because we we have that ability to do so. And 1977 is definitely essentially tops, and it's all tops, with the exception of the Panini stickers that were issued in Europe, and you know the the sticker album in Argentina, which is actually a tops company as well, um, and and a few um, sort of one-off bootleg kind of things. Yeah. Well, but once you get to like 1978s and 80s, you get a lot more non-tops related things happening in the US, but also just everywhere. Well, uh, two of my favorite sets, uh, the FKS Empire Strike Back card set from the UK, which are the small miniature cards, and the Monty yeah. the Monty Fabrican Return of the Jedi cards from Holland. I was wondering is there is there a vintage set that that's a favorite of yours? Well, see, the Monty are my favorite. Oh, okay. I love I love the Monty for a variety of reasons. One of which is Ewoks. Right. This is this is a card set that is just rife with Ewoks. I mean, you can't. <laughs> yeah, I I know a lot of um, Star Wars fans uh, don't love the dancing teddy bears, but the girl Star Wars fans adore them, 
and they are so adorable. Um, but the other thing about the Monty cards was they were this very odd size, so they were much smaller than a traditional trading card, and they were bright, bright yellow. Yeah. They are just almost, they're not neon, but boy, they're pushing it. Um, <laughs> um, and, and they're just wild. And if you've ever gotten an unopened pack, which is almost a euphemism because they're not exactly sealed. Yeah. Um, but the unopened packs, the, the cards are all sort of attached to one another by a little tiny nub. Um, so you kind of unfold them and then break them apart, which is just adorable and fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I have to say, Girl Collector, part of the appeal of trading cards is that they are um, not action figures. And part of the appeal is they, they have this fun sort of appeal. Uh, the Swedish cards are also kind of cool. They're, again, that smaller sort of size. Uh, they're not as pretty or cute as the uh, Monty cards, but they have the foreign language thing going for them, uh, which is always kind of interesting when you're collecting a trading card to find it in a different language. Yeah. So, yeah. so part of the appeal of the Japanese cards is the Japanese text. Yeah. Part of the appeal of the Swedish cards, um, which I can't pronounce how they're actually Starnos Krieg um, is that they have the foreign language. You know, the, the vintage Greek bootleg cards are entertaining and a favorite of a lot of collectors because they have such odd things going on in them. Yeah. So you have, you know, here's a card of Spock in the Star Wars set. Why is there a Star Trek character in a Star Wars set? Why not? Um, you know, it's bootleg. <laughs> We don't, we don't know what they were thinking, but there you go. Uh, uh, you know, I'm actually going to uh, start wrapping this interview up uh, now, Kathy, if that's cool. I do do have a few just final questions I'd be really interested to find out uh, your answers to. Uh, first of all, uh, what, what would you say is the rarest or most difficult set to, to complete in the vintage era? I think in the vintage era, and this depends on, you know, how complete you want to get. Uh, obviously, the, the dog food... <laughs> from New Zealand. Um, it's not a huge set, but it is not... I don't know anyone who owns the full set. And I know some collectors who have amazing, amazing collections, and I do not know a collector who has a full set of those. Wow. Which, you know, is kind of scary for me, because it's like, you know, someday I'd like to have a sample in my collection, and I really, with that set, am like, I'm going to have to have a single sample. Uh, but if you look at, you know, what an average collector who's ambitious might try for, I think the bootleg Greek set, I know, you know, 10, 15, 20 collectors who have a nearly complete collection. And some of those collectors are only incomplete because they don't have the prize winning cards because you could win a bicycle. Um, so they don't have any of the prize winning cards or they are trying to collect them all in either small print or large print, right? which, wow. which makes it more difficult and challenging and crazy. Or they're trying to get one of each card in both small print and large print, which is insane. So those sets, you know, bootleg sets in particular are always difficult because you're never entirely sure how many there are. Yeah. 
that set has been fairly well documented as to how many there are, but because some of them you could win a prize and because that prize was a really good prize, like a bicycle um, or an action figure or another toy, some of those prize cards are difficult to come by. And so that makes that set really challenging. And most of the collectors I know have it minus the prize cards. Right. Okay. And and it's, you know, it's a fun set to collect because it's in a foreign language and it's hard to get. And, you know, nice. Um, Tip top ice cream from New Zealand is actually an achievable foreign set um, where you can get those stickers and collect that set without, you know, making yourself too insane. And yet it's rare enough that you can feel that sense of accomplishment and, you know, in taking five or 10 years to get it. Amazing. You know, well, what would you say is your Holy grail? Hmm. I don't actually have a Holy Grail because I'm one of those collectors who is happy to have seen it. So if I can go to someone else's collection and see the and see the item and kind of get it documented on my website and maybe get a picture of it if I'm lucky, then I'm usually pretty content. Um, I will say that if you look at the card sets that are listed on my website, I own at least a sample from almost every single one. Right. And having that sample is always just like so cool to me when I get my first card from a set. Um, I know last year I got um, an Ewok set from Australia and I, I don't have the full set, but I have sort of, you know, enough samples just to feel really good about that set as being part of my collection. Mm. And it's, you know, That is good enough for me, which is not always true for many other collectors. Uh, So, you know, it's it's nice. So those Ewok cereal cards from Australia, I feel great now that I actually have samples of them, which I didn't before. I think that's a really nice way of looking at things. Um, I collect a lot of the Helix stationary items. And a couple of weeks ago, a a counter display box turned up. No previous example had ever been found. Oh, wow. um, As much as I was like, I'd like in my collection, um, I was just happy that it was found. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's enough to go, hey, that exists. Yeah, Um, you know, this big search for this item over the years, and and there it was. It finally turned up, and that in itself was just really cool. You know, and I'm sure whoever spent an enormous amount of money on (laughs) on the cardboard boxes going to look after it because you wouldn't spend that kind of money on an empty box if you weren't. Just one final question, Kathy. Um, what do you make? I mean, I, I have to admit this, that I am actually addicted. Um, <laughs> uh, what do you think of the recent development in the Tops Digital App Trader and the fact that we now find ourselves chasing glossy JPEGs? Yeah, I find it really fascinating. Um, I have the, the app. I, I was one of the early adopters of the app because, of course, Tops emailed me and said, hey, we're going to come out with this app. Um, you can sign up early, and if you sign up early, you get bonus points when you do your daily check-in. And I was like, huh, okay. <laughs> you know, it was like, hmm. Uh, but I find myself logging in every day <laughs> to get to get my points because, you know, you can spend those points on packs later. Mm. And, and, you know, and I, I – Definitely want to have my points just in case. But I find it an odd collecting thing because you're not collecting something that you actually have. Mm. And 
more confusing for me is I can see every card in the collection, even if I don't have it. Yeah. Which is just fascinating because I'm like, oh, that's a really cool card. I love the imagery. I love the, you know, what they put on the back of it. I don't have that card and it doesn't matter because I can still go in and see it. Um, which is fascinating to me because I have friends who are, you know, very avidly in that app collecting and trading those cards. And, you know, and if I get a trade request in the app and it's a friend of mine, I just say yes. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. If, if, if you're a buddy of mine and I've known you for years and you want that card and I have a spare, there you go. Say yes. If I don't have it as a spare um, and you really want it and you're going to trade me cards for it, fine. Yes. Cause I can still go see that card. Um, so it's a little different than the physical trading cards. And it's a little different from the physical trading cards because I don't find that I have to go out and go looking. You know, those dog chow from New Zealand, you have to go looking for those. You have to actively not just have eBay, but, you know, reach out to people who live in the area. Uh, yeah, area that's... and say, hey, if you ever are at a flea market and come across, <laughs> yeah, I need you to be looking for these for me. Um, you know, the the New Zealand, um, the Australian, I'm sorry, not New Zealand, Ewok cards um, that I was able to get last year, someone emailed me because of my website. Um, and to be honest, you know, she had 40 of them and she emailed and said, what are these worth? And if I were a horribly dishonest person, I would have said a dollar each. <laughs> <laughs> and and bought them all from her, and she would have probably been happy. Um, but I'm not a dishonest person, so I said they're actually worth a, a fair amount of money. They're worth between five and fifteen dollars a piece. Um, and I put her in touch with the types of people who really like to collect those, and she sold a number of them in that price range. And the ones that she didn't sell to those folks who were in that price range, she sold to me uh, for five dollars each. But, you know, and I was grateful to get the ones I was able to get. Uh, but it doesn't have that feel and it doesn't have that energy for the Tops trading card app. Yeah. So although I'm avidly, I'm not avidly in it. I, I, the, the strange thing to me, I mean, I never thought I would bother with it. I, I am slightly addicted at the moment. Um, <laughs> the, the strange thing is, I wonder if people said the same thing about MP3, that you wouldn't have that tactile CD or vinyl and, you know, MP3s have now taken off and no one's looking back. Well, not really. And it's, it's, the, it's the main form of listening to music. So I wonder if the Tops Digital app will actually replace the, the, the physical card. I don't know that it will. Um, I have a couple of, you know, reasons for that. For one thing, if the Tops app, if they shut down the app tomorrow, you no longer have your cards. Right. You don't have a local copy of the electronic file. So when I go on iTunes and I buy an, uh, a music selection or a movie selection, I have that digital file copied to my computer or my phone or my iPad, and I own it. And I have it forever and, you know, ta-da. With the Topps Trading Card app, there's a server out there that has the image and that has a reference to the fact that I'm allowed to claim ownership of that image in my copy of the app. But I can see that image even if I don't own it because it's coming off of that server. But if that server goes down and dies, 
my app will connect up and say there is nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and I can't print it. And I, you know, I can, I can make a CD out of my iTunes music. Um, I, I can't do that with my, my cards. And I can take my physical cards that I get from Tops for their modern card sets or even the vintage ones if I'm evil. And I can cut them up and make crafts out of them. I can, you know, hand them to a child. And I can't do that with the cards in the app. So I can't share those cards with others. Yeah. Unless they also have the app. And then I can only share them to the extent that I trade them away. Well, I almost had a panic attack two days ago when my password wasn't working on the app. So uh, <laughs> I don't think you have that problem with vintage trading cards. No, I mean, I actually own them and I have them and I can touch them. And, you know, in five or ten years, if I get old and tired, I can literally hand them to my nephew and go, here, they're yours. Um, which is not going to happen. So <laughs> he, he's out of luck until I die. Well, uh but, you know, you can't do that with a digital app. So I'm not sure. And I, and I found that when I talk to people, um, age has a lot to do with how you feel about the digital app. Right. And um, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be enthused about it. But those those are the, also the same collectors who aren't necessarily collectors. So where I really feel a need to have a Star Wars room in my house, um, <laughs> I I don't know that those are, are necessarily the folks using the app. And I I have seen, you know, commentary from people who will come to my website and go, I came to this website because after going on the digital app, I discovered that Topps actually prints cards, you know, that, that I can go to a store and buy Topps trading cards. But now I need to trade to get the rest of the set. So I'm coming to this website to trade with other people to get a physical card set. And they came to physical card collecting from the digital collecting. Oh, which, wow. Which is incredibly terrific, but also like a little scary. Yeah. Because um, they didn't know there were trading cards out there, um, which is kind of a testament to the fact that you can't go down to your local 7-Eleven White Hen Pantry anymore and just find trading cards for sale on the countertops. Um, you either have to go to a comic book store a trading card store, you have to know they're out there and, and buy them online. You might see them in a Walmart or a Target, but they're not as, the physical cards are less accessible than they used to be when I was a kid. Well, um, So for a lot of younger collectors, they're finding out about the physical cards kind of via the app. Well, I think that, that says a lot really about how iconic uh, vintage trading cards are because they really cement in that period of the late 70s and 80s where you know trading cards were big and star wars was big yeah um, they're a great motif for that era they, they really are emblematic of that period in time where star wars was big in a way that even today it's not um it was big in a different way for us as kids than it is for today's kids um oh. and a lot of the big for today's kids is because their parents are so enthused about it um, because they had that enthusiasm from the seventies and, and, and a lot of, you know, yeah, trading cards were a thing. You, you, every little kind of candy store you went into also was selling trading cards. 
And Star Wars kind of kicked off that thing. You know, after Star Wars, there were the E.T. trading cards. Um, Garbage Pail Kids eventually came out. Yeah. Um, you got a lot of these kind of kid-friendly uh, things that we hadn't had before. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. I think we've, we've literally just touched the tip of the iceberg of vintage Star Wars uh, trading card collecting. There's so much more. Hopefully, we've inspired some of the people that listen to the podcast to go, go and check some of this stuff out. Um, I definitely want to signpost to your uh, amazing website, StarWarsCards.net. It's a great resource for someone who's, who's looking to start like I was and to sort of like get an idea of, of what's out there and then which countries are out there and, and maybe, you know, what you can type into eBay and, and, and start searching uh, yeah. uh, collections. And, and what I would also say for the non-card collectors who are kind of hearing about this for the first time is you don't have to collect a set of trading cards or or try for all the trading cards if you are a darth vader collector um you should totally look at some of the vintage darth vader cards and just get those and you'll get them very cheaply and they will be really great to display with your action figures yeah that's um, good and and they have you know fun information on the back of the cards that you know, you may have heard in a trivia contest somewhere, and that's where it came from. It was really first printed on those trading cards back in the day. Um, and, you know, if you're an oddball character collector, the trading cards may be your only option for something other than the single action figure that was put out. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> if you collect Greedo, he was only made, you know, one vintage action figure, but he's probably on two or three of the cards. Or um, Grand Moff Tarkin doesn't even get an action figure, but he's got plenty of trading cards. He does. And, you know, there's information about him on the back of those cards, which you would never have gotten, you know, on the action figures. It, it is really an amazing way to kind of delve deeper into the film and into a particular character if you're a character collector which I know so many people are. And I do get um, a lot of inquiries from folks going, can you tell me how many cards, you know, so-and-so is on? Um, and very rarely do I have to say none. And usually I have to say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to dig through the checklist or craft your own little Google search of my site um, specific to that character. And it will pop up with everybody that they're in. Um, it is an amazing way to, to kind of expand your collection beyond just the toys um, in a very fun way. And right. from there, they can go to all of the things like the, uh, the stationary sets and whatnot that have the characters, but those tend to only have the main characters, whereas the trading cards tend to have everybody. Fantastic. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the Vintage Rebellion. And, um, and uh, yeah, uh, look forward to catching up soon either after celebration or a yes hours event i will definitely be at celebration europe in july oh fantastic definitely looking forward to it it's it's my first uk convention for star wars well we'll definitely meet you at the uh, convention and, and say hello in person great i look forward to it thank you kathy thanks bye And now, the Market Watch. I 
right. Vectus Auction. There was actually another Vectus Auction. This wasn't amazing, but there were a few bits and pieces. There was a carded Akbar for 20 quid. I thought it was pretty good. Um, a mock. Obviously, Return of the Jedi. Uh, Bubble was eh, not in the best condition, but you know, all sealed and fine. 20 quid, I think it's pretty good. So what's that? 20, 24 quid after all your fees. It's all right. £20 for a mint on card. 20 quid. Someone bought a week ago on eBay a loose figure for £21. Yeah. Plus plus £3.80 postage. Then the other bargain was uh, Palatoy radio-controlled R2-D2 for 30 quid. It even had its box, even though its box was pretty wrecked. Then there was a, a, a very nice display piece, a uh, forced lightsaber display, and it only went for 100 quid. Sean Kemple had one of them, and I spoke to him in the, um, his interview. He said it's not so much the display, but the price of them now to fill a box will cost you into your thousands. <laughs> I wonder if anyone just displays displays without the products inside. Do you think? How many does it hold? 16, isn't it? Isn't it 4x4? Four four? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, actually. Yeah. So, how much is a forced lightsaber at the moment? Finding them as well, isn't it? Well, exactly. They don't come up very often, do we? And the colours are different prices yeah. for different colours, aren't they? Yeah, because you'd want to have four of each of the different colours, wouldn't you, to just make it look correct, otherwise your OCD's going to work. <laughs> the, the piece itself wasn't in amazing condition, but, I mean, it's such sort of flimsy cardboard at the top. I mean, there was a few dents and stuff in there and a few, like, watermarks and stuff, so it wasn't wasn't pristine. But uh, a nice little piece, and only for 100 quid as well. And uh, there was a couple of pieces which... Uh, went for nice, tidy amounts. And these were the, the Palatoy Chad Valley catalogues. Now, we've been talking about Chad Valley. I, I had no recollection of the words Chad and Valley with Star Wars at all. Can anyone tell me the two products that came under the, the, the Chad Valley banner? It's for younger kids, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You see it on the really young kids. I can't remember. Those little, I'm thinking of those yellow pots with the different colour tops on them. No, yes, you, I know. Yeah, that's better. You're, you're going away for that. Come, come on, Stu. Come on, Stu. Right in there. I, n- I know you know. Oh, I feel the pressure. Oh, fuzzy felt. <laughs> oh, fu- I used to love fuzzy. Fuzzy felt, felt was cool. Does that still oh, get, is that still going? Can you still yeah. get fuzzy. Oh. Yeah, you still can buy fuzzy felt. My lad's got some. But oh, I would have loved Star Wars fuzzy felt. Definitely didn't exist. That would be incredible. <laughs> I've seen fuzzy leather. That's something else. I've seen fuzzy buzzy toys. Yeah, exactly. With his fuzzy jacket, fuzzy leather. <laughs> Come on, guys. I thought you got this. Seriously. Right, no. Right, let's think about this literally. So, okay. Right. Okay, yeah, so something no, for no young children, them. back around 1980. It's got to be something like... It's a game? Board game type there, thing? There is a game. Right. What kind of game? Uh, is it so a board game? It's... it's No, it's not. A, it's an electronic game. And then the other thing is something I think we have covered on the market section before. Should not a projector put... type Yes. Thing. Spot on. The slide projector... And then it was the electronic battle command game, and that, oh. that that information came from Craig Stevens. So thanks to him, there was two brochures or catalogues from 1980, and had about 12 pages of Star Wars figures in. Uh, one of them, they were in varying conditions. The one that went for 240 pounds, I think, for a catalogue. It's incredible, isn't it? That, that is mad. Do you know what? I couldn't believe the price. Someone had posted on um, the forum about um, Argos catalogues. Yeah. I've got no interest in buying an old Argos catalogue, but I, I googled them. Um, eBay, look on eBay. And they're like 1986 Argos catalogue, 60 quid. What bugs buying them? I, mean, I remember the K's catalogue. Um, I can't recommend too much about Argos. 
I don't get that, right? I reckon I recognise and I remember very vividly the K's catalogue, but that's for another reason. Um, but with, with regards to the Argos, why would you want to get one of those? All the stuff's going to be out of stock. Um, just just get a new one. People are just silly. Yeah, but uh, but the other one went for 180. That's a lot of money for two books. This appeared in the forum recently. Uh, our friend Dave Tree um, imparted some really interesting information about about Chad Valley. But it's, it, it is weird how he's just suddenly come out of nowhere. I just, I'd never heard of the... I don't think I'd even heard of the name. I, it, it had no no resonance with me with, with toys, and then suddenly it's all come along at once. You'd never heard of Chad Valley? i never heard. I, I might have heard of it, it just never resonated with me with Star Wars. Yeah. The mid class, I assume. Yeah, Chad Valley's quite big. I think they're still around, aren't yeah, they? I'm, yeah, I think they are, yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah just, just something I'd never looked at, just thinking, why would I ever look at the toy brand? I wouldn't care. But there were some nice mocks... In this auction as well, there was a few Palatoy Empire Strikes Back figures. There was a couple of the Hoth ones, and then there were a few 12-backs. And I have put a little chart for the rest of the podcast, guys, which we can put in the show notes and also on the Facebook page. And it shows, in general, that the prices that went at Vectus with fees are actually quite under the average of some of these carbacks. For example, a Han Hoth 30A... Um, that went for £750, which is 930 with fees. And the average of that figure is normally well over £1,200. So in those terms, there was a bit of a bargain. The only one that went for over the average was a Darth Vader 12-back, 12B, and that went for uh, £2,108 with fees, which was about 1000 over the average. Stu, I know you missed out on you were desperate for this item, a Dancing Jar Jar Binks for £10. Well, I used to have one back in the 90s. I think even my my what is my dear wife now bought it for me when we were just teenagers. But um, yes, happy memories. I'm going I'm going to track one down, and this is going to be a start of a mini Jar Jar. Oh, really? That is interesting. Yeah, you heard it here first, okay? Are you actually serious? I am going to have one shelf in my large garage dedicated to Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar Binks. So, guys, if you heard that, if you've got a Jar Jar... I've got a Jar Jar Binks figure loose if you want it, Stu. I can send it to you. Yeah, like that. Good. Oh. We can get him started. Finally, something, something worth mentioning, and he went for £1,000. A Boba Fett factory error, missing rocket, and um, Jeremy Bullock has signed it. Now, I find that... A, it's, it's a 21B. I find that a little bit odd. The signatures on cards... Because I know it's the actor and stuff, but I don't know. There's something wrong about it. You know, he didn't make the figure. I can understand something like George Lucas, but not, I don't know, not the actor. We've talked about this before, haven't we, where I can see the link between the actor and the character, and I can see the link between the character and the figure, but I can't see the link between the character and the figure. So by sending that card, he's destroyed that card. You know, <laughs> that's what's happened there. <laughs> Well, that's 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 pretty harsh, um, but yeah, I I I do kind of a well, the re- it does come with images of uh, Jerry Bullock signing it. Actually, went for a grand. Anyone surprised by that think, price? Um, not really, because you know it is a it is a very very expensive card to get. Have you got the price for a, a typical one that's not been signed? Right, a twenty one B. Anyone want to guess on the average prices for normally for twenty one B? Three grand. Anyone else? A 21B... Uh, Star Wars... Is Kenner, yeah? Yeah, Kenner. No, Rich is too high, I think. Average average price? 1800 Yeah, I was going to say about 1500 
Well, it's averaging at £1,354, but people have spent... Um, have have well, Rich is quite right on the the, the upper end. It has gone for um, just under three grand a couple of times. I conclude that signature has devalued that that uh, that mock. Um, I would disagree. Controversial, because what what we've done is we've we've spoken about loads of loads of deals and loads of this that and the other, but we haven't actually answered why. You know, there's a theme here. Did Vectors mess up? Was it the time of year? Is it to do with um, tax returns? Is it to do with lack of publicity? Um, because, I don't know, I mean, I've been really, really quite busy over the last few weeks, and this completely missed me by. So I didn't realise that it happened until the day afterwards. Was it the same thing? So you, you pick up a £20 mint on cards, Admiral Akbar. You pick, you know, the, you pick up an R2-D2, that R2-D2 for 30 quid. You pick up a dancing charger for £10. £10. That's not like your communal garden figure. And the fact that those can go for three grand, and that's only that's only gone for a thousand plus, you know, the what two hundred and forty pound tax. That's still that's still under the average. I think the signature has devalued that card. I I agree. I think this has only appealed to guys because of the missing rocket. Um, it's it's potentially a cheap way of getting um a miscarded FET or you know a, a FET that shouldn't have appeared on the card. Was this the debut for FET Pete the twenty one B? Was FET available on twenty one A? Uh, yes, it was. It was, was it? Yeah. yeah. And that, there wouldn't have been too many 21 years, though, would there? Because obviously, because of the mailing offer. It looks quite a rare thing. Out the last couple of years, uh, Star Trek only has four examples of it. Um, and again, there's only nine examples of the of the 21B. I'd imagine a lot of those have been, you know, missing the radar things at eBay and have gone collector to collector. But I mean, I couldn't find any information about the, the missing rocket. So again, I mean, that that surely should make it quite a, a weird thing, doesn't it? I mean, was that something that was standard? Well, it certainly that... wasn't standard. But... No, 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 but I mean, you know, on that card, back, is it something that's, that all 21Bs come without the rocket, for example? Or... No. So... No, I, th- I think it's just a genuine error, this one. So surely surely then, if it's a genuine error, then then people would be fighting over it. And again, Yeah, that's why I think it's went as high as it possibly has, you know? Yeah, but... I, mean... I, do, I do think if that was a normal fit, you know, with the ink touch-ups, with the, the signature on it, it could have went for even lower, you know. I think it's because it was missing the rocket that it actually went up. But is this the same Vectis auction where you had the face-melted Boba Fett, which we spoke about earlier on? Yeah, this is the latest auction. Yeah, yeah. so pretty much most things which got sold on that auction went for far less. People were saying, bargains galore, what's going on? Yeah. Something's, something's, something's going on there. So you can't just put this down to signatures or ink touch-ups. It seemed to me, from what you've pointed out, that there were bargains galore. And I'm sure that there were some silly prices as well as there always are. But what went wrong here, would you say, that they've had an advertising issue, generally, with the whole auction? I think that's a good point. I think it is a good point. Yeah. I think uh, I think that, I think because it was missing the rocket, I think just with the signature, I think, uh, yes, of course, it's a, it's a, a bit of a weird one. But yeah, I, I, I think I think that should have got a lot more. I, I think you, you should have been talking around about that three thousand pound mark because you know that if that's something that's not a regular thing, then people should be fighting over it. I didn't hear about any of this stuff online. Um, normally, some of these auctions have gone across the um, the bowels of Facebook, but I didn't, didn't even hear about it. Um, most of the comments about this auction seem to be aimed at oh, there's a lot of beaters on there. Again, if anyone out there knows how many times a missing rocket appeared on a on any Boba Fett card, I'd be interested to find that out. I never knew that existed. 
You learn something every day in this hobby. And now, the top five priced figure-related items from StarWarsTracker.com. Scrabbling around the desert like an overweight gentleman who's dropped his last cheesy watsy down the back of his lazy boy chair, it's a loose, ungraded vinyl cape Jawa with a small tear for 920 bucks. Don't lock this little scamp in an acrylic prison. It's a vinyl cape Jawa, loose and ungraded for a perfectly formed 1,000 buckaroos. His fingers are far too small to plug any dikes in Holland that we know. It's another vinyl cape Jawa, ungraded loose bought in Holland for 1,401 US national dollar bills. Being in second place is usually perfectly okay, unless you're in a human centipede. It's a vinyl cape Jawa, Loose AFA grade at 90 for $2,750. And it at one. He's sealed, he's short, he's definitely been bought. It's a mint on card, graded AFA 80 Kenna 12A, Vinyl Cape Jawa for 5203 North American dollar bills. See you guys next time on the StarWarsTracker.com Top 5. Right, so I want to welcome back Steve Danley for this month's Rapid Fire. Are you ready, Steve? As ready as I can be. <laughs> Favourite Star Wars movie? Uh, Empire Strikes Back. Favourite Star Wars scene? Ooh, I'm going to go with the uh, the attack on the second Death Star. Favourite on-screen character? Obi-Wan Kenobi. Favourite part of the prequels? I'll go with... Uh, the Order 66 montage. Your favourite new character from The Force Awakens? Uh, Ray. And your favourite scene from The Force Awakens? Honestly, I think it's got to be the, the Falcon chase, the, the IMAX sequence. Which character would you like to see a standalone movie of? Uh, not the B-Wing pilot. Please don't <laughs> do that. Honestly, I, I might say Obi-Wan Kenobi. At any period? I, I mean, I liked Ewan McGregor, so I'm, I'm, I'm up for something in that kind of <laughs> the Dark Ages. <laughs> Which actor or crew member do you most like to meet? I would love to meet Dennis Murin. Which of the vintage action figure line best resembles you? I've been told that the B-Wing pilot resembles me, but I don't know if I I buy that. I'll go with uh, I'll go with R2D2. <laughs> Fair enough. Short, short. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now which of the uh, vintage figures do you think best resembles Sky? I mean, it's an easy answer. He really does. At least he used to when he had his long hair. He was definitely a a walking Chewbacca. He still is, even though he's got the short hair now. I still see it. Your favorite figure as a child? Viewing pilot. Favorite figure now? I mean, I, I, it's hard to pick one. Uh, to give an answer other than the B-Wing pilot, um, I've always liked the uh, the original R5-D4. Which figure do you wish they'd made a figure of? The Rebel Fleet Trooper. And what is your least favorite figure in the vintage line? Uh, I think I have to say Ugnot. Favorite vehicle or playset? Uh, playset, I'd say the uh, Hoth Imperial Attack Base. What is your favorite card back image? One of my favorites. I don't have a particular favorite, but I go with 2-1-B. I really like the, the colors on that one. Uh, what was your first purchase when getting back into collecting? I'd say it was a blue snaggletooth. It was one of the figures that I didn't have in my loose run, so that was the figure that really got me back into it. What is your favorite oddball collectible? I'm a big fan of the uh, movie viewers, the Kenner movie viewers. What was the last vintage Star Wars item you purchased? The Italian Harbor uh, Give a Show projector. And finally, what is your Holy Grail item? Got to be the sculpt for the, the B-Wing pilot. 
Um, I know it exists, but it's it's up in the, the stratosphere in terms of. <laughs> but it, it's it's nice to know that it's out there and it survived. But that I'd say that's my holy grail. Well, Steve, thank you ever so much. So on to our rapid fire question for this month. Question, lads, is which Star Wars character's costume would you like to see Jez run next year's marathon in? Rich. I'm going to say IG-88. Pete. That's quite easy, really. A man, a man, a man, a man, a man, a man. Grant. Uh, it really is. He's Skywalker. He's got the hips. Jez. It's got to be a challenge. Dinoga. I thought about you on a mint on card with a piece <laughs> of cardboard around you in a bubble. I'd like that. Jez in marathon disguise. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I do. You could even wear a stormtrooper outfit, but take it one step further and get inside the bubble. Have a think. Um, I need to think. I need to raise it. I need to raise the bar. Yeah. Rich, do we have much feedback for episode 23? We do, Stu, and it's pleasing to see that we are getting more iTunes reviews. So, guys, don't forget to log on to iTunes, leave us a review. You'll have a chance to receive a £100 credit from Ian Sanderson, uh, and the winner at the end of that competition will be announced soon. There's no doubt at all what was the big winner in last month's show, and that was Pete's interview with the Lemming Toy Store owner. We got by far more feedback on that than we did on any other section. And we knew it was a really good interview, and we were even thinking about moving it forward to ensure that every listen to it but it's nice to know that so many people take the time and the effort to stick right the way through the to the bitterest end of our shows for the huge volume of positive feedback that we got so we're all looking forward to uh, follow up with the other um, Le- lemming and toy store owner pete any ideas how long we are going to wait for that one Ooh, <laughs> he's uh, he's a challenging character so uh just keep your eyes and ears peeled and it was also pleasing to see some great comments on the wax sculpt interview with ron and the main interview with Christian. Now, obviously, the purpose of those interviews was not only to discuss those two, you know, great articles and uh, great collectors, it was also to help direct traffic towards the SWCA blog, the Tantive 11, and to Christian's Bobby Blogs blog. So, by all accounts, that has increased a bit of traffic towards that way, and it was, it was great seeing guys asking questions and, you know, interacting, and that's exactly what we're looking for. It's a bit surprising, certainly to me, how something that's heavily advertised on lots of Facebook pages on forums, seemingly discussed endlessly in PMs, um, something like the C3PO pained fault, and it was still missed by so many people. For all of those who doubt the need for podcasts, there's clearly the validity right there. People don't have time now to check hundreds of Facebook posts, don't have time to check umpteen um, new threads on a forum or, or even several forums. So us guys picking out some highlights and recording it and releasing it in a show that you can listen to in your own pace, in your own place, there's clearly a need for podcasts. So it was great resurrecting some old threads and getting some new input and some new discussion in those. Grant was temporarily made a saint of patience because the Harmy interview, it was pointed out that quite clearly that guy could talk and talk and talk and it was all fantastic and great stuff that was coming out and I'm sure Grant edited to be less of him and more of Harmy, which is what we do with most of our interviews and we all agree the interviews are about the guys who come on and it's great listening to them and we're just there for direction from time to time so so don't think that it was just Harmy non-stop, non-stop, non-stop. Grant would have had some, you know, little bits and pieces in there and obviously we've cut them out for, for time purposes and to make it flow better. 
it's really pleasing to see so many people have got copies of Phil Heeks' book waiting for Star Wars. I know a lot of guys are waiting for the digital release, and as soon as that's out, we will make that digital release available for our Facebook page, and we'll point people to them. So well done those on bo- who bought the book, and it's nice to see some of the reviews that are appearing on Star Wars Forum UK about the book. So if you haven't bought the book yet, go out and check it out. I believe it's available at Amazon.co.uk, Amazon.com. Uh, won't be stocking it, I believe. I think they're only going to have the digital release when that comes out. So go and help support a fellow collector with his project. Finally, we have had a negative, and we're not always just going to talk about uh, positives when we go through feedback. We've had one negative in that we had a, a comment on the face, uh, sorry, on the on the forum about discussing episode eight theories. Can I just say that it wasn't a spoiler, it was a theory. We don't have any more information than anybody else. And the theory that Grant brought up probably wasn't intended to be included in the podcast. It was an outtake right at the end. It's also been discussed on other podcasts as well, and it's been you know, on, on many other Facebook pages. So we will not cover spoilers at all in our show. I don't want to talk about spoilers. We don't want to talk about spoilers. It was just a, a topic of conversation that us guys were having during a little bit down moment that ended up on the outtake. We'll just be a little bit more careful in future, and we'll try and make sure that stuff like that doesn't appear in future. Was that actually some feedback, was it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I literally made that up on the way uh, home from work, driving in a car. I don't look at spoiler stuff or anything like that. I don't read any, any videos or anything like that. I don't know anything about episode eight. I just made that up. So, yeah, sorry if that came across the wrong way. Uh, I don't know anything. Yeah, that's why, that's why I wanted to cover that. It's also been yeah. on other podcasts as well, so other podcasts have had the same kind of thought that this may be what's going to happen. Well, we better um, not mention the uh, decapitation of Luke Skywalker then. But, guys, keep all your feedback coming. We do read every single piece of feedback, and we've got a fantastic, absolutely fantastic, because Facebook keeps telling us this, response rate to all our questions. So keep them coming, and don't forget to leave an iTunes review. So, Rich, just remind me, why should they be leaving a review on iTunes? To be in with a chance of winning a £100 credit towards Ian Sanderson's stock, his plastic display stands, his new ship display stands, which if you've had a look at those, those are fantastic, in particular the one that holds the B-Wing up. That's, that's a cracking little design, and I know we've talked about displaying the B-Wing before, but a £100 credit with Ian Sanderson is always going to be worthwhile winning. Hang on a second, you must have made a mistake there. For, for just putting a review on iTunes, someone can get £100 worth of credit? Are you kidding me? It's our birthday present for all of our loyal listeners who've supported us. At some point in the next three months, <laughs> we keep changing our mind, but at some point in the next three months, we will have a two-year birthday, and that's when the cut-off point's going to be, and we will announce it on a podcast. It might even be our next podcast, actually. I thought we were asking people to leave a review because every other podcast was asking that people to do that. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, that, that's really good. Yeah, we should definitely do that. Because it's the right thing to do. It's just the right thing to do. We can fly anything. Right. If you want to contact us or leave us feedback, give us more information on something we've discussed or anything you fancy, you can email us on show at vintagerebellion.com. Find us on Facebook by searching Vintage Rebellion, on Twitter at SWTVR Podcast, on Instagram by again searching Vintage Rebellion or find any of us individually across many of the forums. Huge thank yous to this month's guests, Stephen Danley, Kathy Kendrick and Marco J. And don't forget you can listen to all of our previous shows via iTunes or directly at swtvrpodcast.podbean.com. So, for another month, it is goodbye from Rich. Later, guys. Goodbye from Grant. 
thank you for listening and thank you for all the guys at Father's From. That was fantastic. See you next month. Goodbye from Jezebel. Hey guys, thank you ever so much for helping me out with my Make a Star Wars Wish. You guys are legends. www.justkidding.com forward slash The Force Awakens. Much love. Uh, goodbye from Patricia. <gasps> goodbye, Stu. And it's good night from me. And remember, only you can decide with Star Wars toys. This podcast is not endorsed by Disney, Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or anybody who cares about the Star Wars franchise. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All names and sounds of Star Wars are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited and other associated copyright holders. All of the original content of this podcast are the intellectual property rights of the Vintage Rebellion. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to email swtvrpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't enjoy this podcast, tough. Are Star Wars products going to have the durability of, say, that old favourite, the teddy bear? Teddy! I'm just going to bang out for one minute, all right, lads? I'm just going to bang out. What? Do you mean bang out? What? (laughs) They're banging one out. He's he's doing what? What? Is Jez Fish banging one out? Hello? Jez, we can hear you saying hello. Listen to it, Moda. Jez? You guys hear me? <laughs> Jez, Jez, speak up, Jez. I can't hear you. <clears throat> Jez. Pipe something in the chat if you can hear me. He actually can't hear us, can he? I think he's the one with the problem, though. <laughs> yeah. Jez, oh. t- 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 stop being mute. <laughs> or muting us. <laughs> I haven't changed anything. <laughs> we must you have got something. How did he hear that? Jez has gone mad. I think there's military you drugs. He's coming. Hello? Jez, can you hear me? Jez, can you hear us? I've just unplugged the mic, and uh, I can now hear you. Can you hear me, Jez? Um, I'm now going to plug my microphone back in, and then we'll get the show on the road. Yeah. Did you have your headphones plugged in, then, and you didn't realise? <laughs> Hello. Hello, Jez, can you hear us? We've obviously done something to the settings. He's gone again, hasn't he? Right. Jez? No, I'm here now. I've just changed the... Um, speakers back to built-in speakers instead of the microphone which is what it was working for a while what about now jez you there oh man yeah i'm here now (laughs) jez yes jez yes (laughs) jez you still there are you taking a piss now (laughs) yeah that'll go all night can't we oh send him mad can't we move on? Um, right, let's go on to this month's question, which I believe Ricardo has for us. Yes, I do. So, guys, we've talked a lot about toys and who would you like to see in the movies and different cast and things uh, recently. So, I'm going to change your things around a bit. I want to talk about some of the actors and actresses from Star Wars. So, I need you to be in two teams. So, I'm going to pick somebody at random here. And, Stu, I'll pick you at random. Who do you want to join your team? Oh, dearie me. I'm going to take... This is the hardest question I've ever received. I'm, g- I'm going to work with Jezebel. So you've chose Jez. Well, unfortunately, Stu, you can't have Jez. You can only have Grant. Right? And the reason being is because... Not because Grant's going to be any good at this. It's because I had a great name for the teams. So Pete and Jez, I'm putting you two together. Right? And you're going to be known as Granddad's Army. Brilliant. And then I thought... <laughs> 
<laughs> that took years, Rich, didn't it? Years Maybe. to put that name. I tell you something, it didn't. This was even better. I put uh, Stu and Grant together. News are going to be French and sawdust. Okay, so, Stu, I'm going to start with you then anyway. Right, so you and Jess can confirm this. I'm going to give you choice of four. You choose oh, who you want. Four with Grant. It's me and you, Pete. This is going to be a play on the popular game show, Would I Lie to You, where I'm going to give you three statements, and you've got to figure out which one of the three is the truth. The other two are lies, okay? So, Stu and Grant, you've got Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, and David Prowse. Who do you want to go with? I'll tell you what, because like, he doesn't get much attention, um, we should do Dave Prowse. Yeah, it's right. Prowse. Dave Prowse, okay. So I'm going to give you three statements. One of these is true, the other two are rubbish, and you've got to find out which one's the truthful one. Okay, ready? Number one. Dave once urinated into R2-D2 when they were filling <laughs> scenes in Tunisia for Return of the Jedi as he didn't have time to find a bush. Number two, during film for Clockwork Orange, Dave had to change costume after he bent over to pick up a chair and split these gold hot pants, revealing a very large gaping hole. Number three, Dave played the Minotaur in an episode of Doctor Who where he was thwarted by Tom Baker who brandished a red cape like a bull to a rag. Well, there's no bushes in the desert, so I reckon number one, Stu. Number one? Yeah. You're going with number one? So was everyone weighing into R2-D2 because I couldn't find a bush? <laughs> I wonder he was angry. Um, yeah, number one, Rich. Pete, I've got a feeling you might know this. Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> Funny okay. enough, no. Well, the truth was, Dave played the Minotaur in an episode of Doctor Who, and it was in the Time Monster released in 1972. The other two were both lies. Jez and Pete, then you've got... Ford, Fisher, or Hamill? Ooh, come on, Jez. What about a bit of Luke? Mark Hamill. Ford. Ford, yeah. Are you going for Ford? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, Ford's an interesting one. Right, number one. When filmed Star Wars, Harrison would often sit in the Falcon cockpit wearing only his shirt and boxer shorts. Filming was suspended one day when Harrison caught a testicle in the Falcon's electronics and received minor burns to his groin. Number two. Harrison is heir to the Swedish throne. His great-great-great-grandfather, King Ghoulies, his cousin, places Harrison 273rd in line to the throne. And number three, Harrison is a keen longboat enthusiast. He was spotted in Wales punting on his longboat through the Welsh canals, where he has been known to pop into the local co-op for bin bags, tea bags and sugar. Which one of those three is true? I know there's some history with him, with European stuff, but I can't remember what it is. And I'm not sure, I'm not so down with men's underwear. However, wearing boxer shorts, you know, I mean, with boxer shorts out then in 77? And the thing is also, when he's getting down to the whole, oh yeah, he's the 1100th and 11th line to the throne, if he's just taken that off of Wikipedia or, or whatever, it's probably already out of date. So I would say that they're all massively inaccurate, give me the points. It's gotta be. It's gotta be the boating thing. Yeah. Is that what you're going for? That is true. Yeah. Harrison has often been spotted in Wales punting on his longboat through the Welsh canals, and he often pops into his local co-op. Okay, yeah. Stu Grant will go Fisher or Hamill. Carrie Fisher. Okay. Yeah. Number one. When Carrie was 12 years old, she was almost killed by an ice cream van who swerved to miss hitting a dog. The van struck a lamppost and a large plastic traffic cone flew up into the air and landed perfectly on top of a young Carrie Fisher's head. Number two, Carrie had to receive the Heinrich manoeuvre from fellow Blues Brothers actor Dan Aykroyd when she was choking to death on an extra-large Brussels sprout in a restaurant which was lodged in her throat. Number three, Carrie slapped an enthusiastic crew member who tore off her boot tape too quickly, causing friction burns on her nipples. Which one of those three is true? 
What, what do you reckon, Grant? What up, Sprout? You want to go Sprout. Okay, Blues Brothers Sprout it is then, Rich. That is the correct answer. Yes, oh. Dan Aykroyd had to give Carrie Fisher the Heimlich manoeuvre to dislodge a sprout that she was choking to death on, by all accounts. Um, from a medical per- point of view, um, before you do the Heimlich manoeuvre, you need to do five back slaps. Okay, so this podcast, we want to put the correct information out there. Bend over the person who's choking five good strong back slaps between the shoulder blades and then if all else fails then you go in for the Heimlich guys don't do it straight away um, unless it's Carrie Fisher and you want to stand behind her right okay granddad's army no pressure on you winner takes oh. one yeah? Mark Hamilton number one Mark's climbing into a torn torn in Empire Strikes Back wasn't a new thing for him in A New Hope he climbed inside a banther and then Jedi snuck inside Jabba the Hutt, much to the annoyance of the stage crew. Number two, Mark revealed that he didn't have a speaking role in The Force Awakens because he had lost his voice. He teased that Ray's character was a bit like Peter Pan, who would spend episode eight on the hunt for Luke's voice. Number three, Mark once dropped a very young Warwick Davis who had fallen asleep on his lap. Mark was cheering when his favourite baseball team hit a home run. But I've never heard him talk about baseball because I think he would have appeared somewhere with a baseball top on view as a baseball. If you're cheering a home run, and I, I believe the middle one, I, I you know, I, I believe you know he's he's a funny guy. He teases with people. Yeah, we're going middle one, Rich number two. One for Peter Pan. No, unfortunately, that was a lie. The answer was he often climbed inside other creatures, Bantha oh. and Jabba the Hutt, much to the annoyance of the stage crew. So we're going to call that one a draw. Well done, guys. Granddad's <laughs> army, French and sawdust, 1-1, one, one, move on. Is there no tie-break? There's no tie-break, because I didn't expect that to be a draw. <laughs> <laughs> Two questions each. What a high chance that it was going to be a draw. 